11. IBID, the 21st of May 1956, the 8th of September 1956. 12. Interview with Francis McEwen, S.J., Conigius House, Harare, the 15th of May 2000. J.A.Z., Box 117-8, Constantine Mashunganyika, T.H.E. Seminary at Chishawasha, 21. 13. Archives of the Archdiocese of Harare, A.A.H. Hereafter, Box 528-E, Sacred Congregation for Propagating the Faith Decree, the 25th of March 1958. 14. A.A.H., Box 528-E, Visitation of Seminaries, the 28th of August 1959. 15. Ah, 528F, Francis McEwen to Markall, the 21st of June 1960. 16. A.A.H., Box 528-D, Chichester to Hugh Boyle, the 17th of August 1955. J.A.Z., Box 116-5, W.F. Extracts from the Historia du Muse of the Seminary, Chishawasha, 1937-1975, 17. A.A.H., Box 528-C, Governor of Southern Rhodesia to Chichester, the 25th of May 1950. 18. A.A.H., Box 528-D, Chichester to Hugh Boyle, the 17th of August 1955, A.H., Box 528-D, Seminary Jottings, 1956, 19, A.A.H., Box 528-E, McEwen to Markall, the 23rd of July 1958, Interview with Francis McEwen, S.J., Conigius House, Harare, the 15th of May 2000. 20. J.A.Z., Box 116-5, Seminary Jottings, 1962, Seminary Jottings, 1963, Box 108, Seminary Historia du Muse, January 1963. 21. J.A.Z., Box 116-5, Seminary Jottings, 1962, Seminary Jottings, 1963, Box 108, Seminary Historia du Muse, January 1963. 22. Conversation with Reverend Albert Planger, SMP, Mumbo House, Harare, the 16th of May. 2000. 23. Docks and Re, 1979, 148. 24. IBID 181-182 25. C. Terence Ranger, Peasant Consciousness and Guerrilla War in Zimbabwe, A Comparative Study, Berkeley, University of California Press, 1985. 26. J.A.Z., Box 109, Seminary House Consultations Minutes, the 18th of August 1958. A.A.H., Box 528, File E, 1958-1959, Mark Alta McEwen, the 18th of January 1958. 27. A.A.H., Box 528, File E, 1958-1959,
Mark Alton McEwen, the 18th of January 1958. 130. Fresh Battles in Old Struggles. 28. J.Z. Box 109, Chishawasha Seminary House Consultors Minutes Book, the 6th of March 1961, the 2nd of September 1963. 29. A.A.H. Box 528, File G, 1962-1966, McEwen to Markall, the 6th of December 1961. See also J.A.Z. Box 116-3. Seminary Custom Book, January 1963, N.N. 74-79. 30. J.A.Z. Box 109, Chishawasha Seminary House Consultors Minutes Book, the 6th of November. 1961. 31. J.A.Z. Box 108, Memorial Visitationis, T.E. Corrigan, the 27th of March 1961. 32. IBID, the 19th of September 1962. 33. IBID, the 23rd of September 1963. 34. Interview with Patrick Maloney, SJ, the 29th of May 2000. 35. Interview with Reverend Walter Nyatsanza, Africa Synod House, Harare, the 15th of May 2000. 36. AAH, Box 528, File G, 1962-1966, McEwen to Markall, the 31st of August 1964, Markall to McEwen, the 5th of September 1964. Interview with Francis McEwen, SJ, Conigius House Jesuit Community, the 15th of May 2000. Interview with Patrick Maloney, SJ, Prestige House Jesuit Community, the 29th of May 2000. 37. J.A.Z., Box 108, Seminary Historia du Muse, the 9th of February 1965. 38. Ibid. 39. Ibid, the 19th of February 1965. 40. J.A.Z., Box 117-1, Seminary Group to His Lordship, February 1965. See also J.A.Z., Box 108, Seminary Historia du Muse, February 1965. 41. J.A.Z., Box 117-1, Anthony Turner, Memorandum to Reverend Father Rector, 11 March 1965. 42. Interview with Reverend Christopher B. Gardner, St. Elizabeth and Seton Church, Bark River, Michigan, the 8th of July 2000. 43. CJAZ, Box 117 1 Passim. 44. Interview with Reverend Christopher B. Gardner, St. Elizabeth and Seton Church, Bark River, Michigan, the 8th of July 2000. 45. Ibid. 46. Ibid. 47. J.A.Z. Box 117-1. Diamond to Edward Ennis, S.G., the 29th of March 1965. 48. J.A.Z. Box 117-1. Seminary Group to His Lordship, 
Francis Markle, February 1965, 49, Interview with Reverend Christopher B. Gardner, St. Elizabeth N. Seton Church, Bark River, Michigan, the 8th of July 2000. 50, J.A.Z., Box 109, Seminary Consultors Minutes, 1965-1966, see also, Box 116-7, Diamond to Bishop Adolf Schmidt, the 29th of October 1965. 51, C.J.A.Z., Box 109, Seminary Consultors Minutes, 52, J.A.Z., Box 116-5, McEwen to Father Provincial, the 16th of March, 1960, Francis McEwen, Some Reflections on Matters Missionary After a Visit to East Africa and the Congo, June 1960, Box 116-7, Diamond to Ennis, the 19th of April 1966, 53, J.A.Z., Box 117-1, Diamond to Ennis, the 29th of March 1965. 54. A.A.H. Box 528. File G. 1960-1966. Mark all to Cardinal Sigismondi, Prefect of the Sacred Congregation for Propagating the Faith, N.D., but after the 5th of May 1965. 55. C.J.A.Z. Box 117-1. Pass him. A.A.H. Box 528. File G. 1960-1966. Pass him. 56. J.A.Z. Box 117-1. Meeting with seminary staff. The 22nd of June 1965. Interview with Reverend Christopher B. Gardner. St. Elizabeth N. Seton Church. Bark River, Michigan. 8 July 2000. Speaking the language of protest, 131. 57. J.A.Z., Box 117-1, Minutes of Meeting with Seminary Staff, the 22nd of June 1965. 58. J.A.Z., Box 108, Seminary Historia du Muse, the 12th of April 1965, the 24th of May 1965, 8. 15, 29 August 1965, the 3rd of September 1965. 59. Christopher Gardner left Chishawasha to return to St. John Vianney Seminary in Pretoria in 1966 and was ordained for the Diocese of Bulawayo in July 1968. J.A.Z., Box 108, Seminary Historia du Muse, the 8th of December 1966, 13 the 14th of July 1968. 60, Ibid, October, 1967, 1967, Relatio Nuel to Sacra Congregatio de Propaganda Fide, in J.A.Z., Box 116.5, Extracts from the Historia du Muse of the Seminary at Chishawasha, 1937-1975, Typescript, 17. 61, J.A.Z., Box 108, Seminary Historia du Muse, the 10th of October and the 1st of November 1967. 62. J.A.Z., Box 116-7, 
Diamond to Father Superior, the 12th of October 1967, Interview with Archbishop Pius and Cube, Archbishops of Fisa, Bulawayo, the 10th of May 2000, Interview with Reverend Constantine Mashunganyika, IMBISA Center, Harare, the 17th of May 2000. 63, JZ, Box 1167, Diamond to Father Superior, the 12th of October 1967, Interview with Archbishop Pius and Cube, Archbishops of Fisa, Bulawayo, the 10th of May 2000, Interview with Reverend Constantine Mashunganyika, IMBISA Center, Harare, the 17th of May 2000. 64, JZ, Box 1167, Diamond to the Bishops of Rhodesia, the 13th of December 1967. 65, JZ, Box 1167, Comments on their seminary training by five African priests, FRS. Mugadzi, Nariwa, Chijania, Murumazhira, Uriai. 66, JZ, Box 1167, Diamond to Ennis, the 19th of April 1966. 67, JZ, Box 117-2, Rhodesian Catholic Bishops Conference Minutes, the 22nd of October. 1970, 68, IBID, Docs and Re, THE Catholic Church in Zimbabwe, 1879 1979 223 69 interview with Reverend Walter Nyatsanza Africa Synod House Harare the 15th of May 2000 70 Ibid 71 JZ box 117-3 John Barrow SG Rector's Report THE Seminary Strike the 30th of September to the 7th of October 1974, 3-4, Rector's Report Hereafter, JAZ, Box 117-4, Rhodesia Catholic Bishops Conference, Report of the Seminary Commission, 22 December 1974, 2, Commission Report Hereafter, THE Report does not specify what Mukaiwapazi did to anger Barrow, and informants who were present as seminarians did not recall Mukulbis's actions either. 72. Commission Report, 2-3. 73. Barrow, offered the deacon the opportunity of departing without embarrassment, offering to have him driven from the seminary while the other students were in classes. Rector's Report, 4. 74. Commission Report, 2. 75, Ibid. 76, Reverend Ignatius Mhanda, a report to the bishops concerning the October events at the Regional Major Seminary of SS. John Fisher and T.H. Omas Moore, the 25th of November 1974, cited in Commission Report, 2. 77, Rector's Report, 6, Commission Report, 4. 78, Rector's Report, 6, Commission Report, 4. 79, Rector's Report, 7. 80, IBID. 81, IBID, 78. 82, IBID, 8, Commission Report, 5.
83, Rector's Report, 89, Commission Report, 56, 132, Fresh Battles in Old Struggles, 84, Rector's Report, 9, See also Commission Report, 67, 85, Rector's Report, 10, Commission Report, 7, 86, Rector's Report, 10, 87, Written by Kosa-speaking South African Enoch Santonga in 1912, T.H.'s hymn was associated with the black South African struggle for equality before and during the apartheid era, and was adopted as South Africa's national anthem in 1994. 88. IBID 10. 89. Commission Report 10. 17. 90. AAH Index Box 528-0 Left after strike 4 for guerrilla training 22,010,000 Ring 174 Death of Jonathan Zambuni and Kenneth Mazilakazi Crossfire. Although this filet was listed in the AAH index, access was denied. Interview with Reverend Walter Nyat Sanza, the 15th of May 2000. 91. Interview with Reverend Walter Nyat Sanza, African Synod House, Harare, the 18th of May 2000. THS had been one of their demands dating to 1970 when Barrel was FRST appointed rector. 92, Ibid. 93, Ibid. 94, JAZ, Box 116-5, Extracts from the Historia du Muse of the Seminary at Chishawasha, 1937-1975, 26, Chapter 7 1968 and Apartheid Race and Politics in South Africa Chris Saunders in the now quite extensive literature on 1968 There is all too little discussion of South Africa. Mark Kurlansky, for example, in his well-known book 1968, T.H.E. Year That Rocked the World, only mentions the country twice, in passing. While both events he mentions were related to the racial politics of the country, this chapter will argue that he misses the greater significance of 1968 for South Africa. Kurlansky FRST records that 1968 was the year in which the surgeon Christian Barnard performed the world's FRST successful heart transplant operation in Cape Town. Barnard had in fact carried out the FRST such operation at Grutur, Cape Town's leading hospital on the 3rd of December 1967, but the patient had died 18 days later. TH at VRST operation, and the more successful one Barnard carried out on the 2nd of January 1968, this time the patient survived for 19 months, certainly brought South Africa more international media attention than any other single event in 1968. When the operation was performed in January 1968, much was made in both the local and the international media of the fact that Barnard had saved the life of a white man by implanting in him the heart of a black man, for this seemed to show up the absurdity of the country's racial politics, which were dominated by the apartheid idea that races should be kept separate. The apartheid regulations that required Grootschuer to be racially segregated meant that there were separate wards for white and black patients, but white doctors treated black patients and black nurses attended white patients. One Barnard himself was a critic of apartheid, 
though he never came out strongly against the system. The second South African-related story that Kurlansky mentions is that the president of the International Olympic Committee spent much of 1968 lobbying to ensure that a South African team could participate in the Olympic Games held that year in Mexico. Despite the South African government's insistence that the country's sport be racially segregated. Too. While the president's lobbying was successful and South Africa did not participate in those Olympic Games, the country was then barred from all subsequent games because of the application of apartheid to sport, and the bar was only lifted after the end of apartheid in 1994. 134. Fresh battles in old struggles The heart transplant operation and the issue of taking part in the Olympic Games both therefore relate in different ways to the dominant fact of South African life at the time, the obsession with race by the state. The are not, however, the most significant events affecting the country in 1968. More significant in the long run was the resistance that was emerging to the race-based policies of the state and this chapter focuses on three aspects of that resistance, all of which had transnational dimensions. First, 1968 saw the beginning of a new phase in resistance to apartheid in South Africa, with the birth of the Black Consciousness Movement, BCM. Much influenced by the Black Power Movement in the United States, the BCM was to become the dominant resistance movement of the 1970s, one that would pose a serious challenge to the apartheid regime. THR was, secondly, a new wave of protest on South Africa's university campuses in 1968, the key event being the sit-in at the University of Cape Town's administration building in protest over the university's failure to confide RM the appointment of a black African lecturer. THR in 1968 the South African government vetoed the selection of a former South African to the cricket team to tour South Africa from England, on the grounds of his race, a veto which, as we shall see, had important consequences in terms of sporting sanctions against the country. Race, and more particularly South Africa's apartheid policy, the most extensive system of racial segregation ever devised anywhere, three clearly lay at the center of the significance of 1968 in the southern part of the African continent, and this chapter places the three key events of 1968 in context to show how they relate to apartheid and resistance to it. South Africa had of course become notorious for the policy of apartheid long before 1968. THAT policy took many different forms, from the creation of so-called Bantu homelands, black African areas that were in 1968 in the process of being led toward nominal independence, for to the petty restrictions on interracial contact. Resistance to apartheid had largely gone underground after the banning of the African National Congress ANC and Pan-Africanist Congress PAC in 1960. From its base in exile in Zambia the ANC, working together with the Zimbabwe African People's Union, launched its largest ever attempt to send guerrilla figures back into South Africa in 1968. The new president of the ANC, Oliver Tambo, watched as men of the organization's armed wing, Umkinto Wisiswo, MK, crossed the Zambezi River from Zambia into what was then Rhodesia. But what became known as the Wonki Campaign, from the area in Rhodesia that the guerrillas entered, soon failed, 
for the guerrillas were either killed by the Rhodesian and South African security forces sent against them or were forced to FLE into neighboring Botswana. THEANC retained its commitment to the armed struggle after this failure, but from the 1970s was only to send a few individuals at a time back into the country covertly, and the focus was then on attacks on government targets in the urban areas. In the long run it was mass internal resistance, rather than the armed struggle, that would bring apartheid down. Of greater long-term significance than the failed attempt at the 1968 and apartheid, 135 guerrilla incursion, then, was the birth of a new internal resistance organization in 1968 inside the country. The Black Consciousness Movement as 1968 began, there was little overt resistance to apartheid in South Africa. After going underground, the ANC and the PAC had relatively soon been crushed by the state. By the end of 1963 most PAC activity in the country had been suppressed and in 1964 the main ANC leaders, including Nelson Mandela, the commander-in-chief of MK, which had been engaged in sabotage and planning a campaign of guerrilla war, had been sentenced to life imprisonment. Mandela and his colleagues then languished in prison and in the late 1960s were virtually forgotten figures. It would be over a decade after 1968 before the attention of the world began to be focused on their fate, when a campaign for their release began to gather momentum and was to become known around the world under the slogan, Free Mandela. In 1968 not only were the leading figures in the struggle largely forgotten, but also the apartheid regime seemed all-powerful and it was willing to use any means, including torture and even the killing of opponents, to suppress any attempt at resistance. 5 th at year saw it pass new apartheid legislation through Parliament, the Prohibition of Political Interference Act, to ban multiracial political activity. THEFRST non-racial political organization, the Communist Party of South Africa, had been banned in 1950, at the time of MC Carthyism in the United States, and in 1968 there were two political parties that had both white and black members, the small but influential multiracial liberal party, which had been formed by a group of whites in 1953 and remained under white leadership but had more black than white members and the Progressive Party, which had been launched in 1959 by members of the opposition United Party in Parliament fed up by their party's failure to oppose apartheid legislation. In 1968 the Progressive Party had only one member of Parliament, the redoubtable Helen Suzman, who missed no opportunity to speak out against apartheid legislation in the all-White House of Assembly and argue for the introduction of a constitutional democracy. In the face of the new legislation, the Liberal Party, which had put up candidates for elections to Parliament, none of whom had ever been returned, decided to disband. Six the Progressive Party chose to become a whites-only party in order to continue to exist, meaning that it abandoned such black members as it had, and it would be two decades before the party was once again able to accept black members and again become a non-racial organization. Suzman was able to continue in Parliament until 1989, 
and from 1974 was joined there by other progressives, who kept the idea of a non-racial democracy alive, but the party's decision in 1968 to abide by apartheid legislation would forever damn it in the eyes of those who did not believe in any compromise with so evil a system. 136. Fresh battles in old struggles despite the overwhelming strength of the apartheid state in 1968. New resistance now came from an unexpected quarter. By 1968 a new generation of black students was emerging at the segregated, apartheid-created universities and the non-white section of the medical school at the University of Natal. Some of these students had read Franz Fanon and Malcolm X and knew that the civil rights movement headed by Martin Luther King Jr. in the United States had been followed by the more militant black power movement. In July 1968, at the annual conference of the non-racial, but white-dominated, decades-old National Union of Students, NUSAS, to which between 20,000 and 30,000 students were affiliated at the English-speaking, predominantly white universities, the charismatic young Steve Biko and other black students discussed among themselves what they regarded as their second-class status as blacks in NUSAS. After attending another multiracial conference the following month, they resolved to break away from NUSAS and form an all-black student organization. In December 1968, at a meeting at Marion Hill, near Durban, they founded the South African Students Organization, SASO, which was open only to blacks, whom they defined as all who were oppressed by apartheid, whether black African or of mixed descent. According to a BCM publication, The Black Review, it was felt that a time had come when blacks had to formulate their own thinking, unpolluted by ideas emanating from a group with lots at stake in the status quo. 7 Biko believed that most black South Africans had come to accept the idea that they were inferior, and that what was required was psychological liberation, for a people to be free. He said, they had to realize that they had as much right as anyone else to be equal citizens in the land of their birth. TH's challenge to the mental self-enslavement of blacks by Biko and SASO was a decisive turning point in the long history of resistance politics in South Africa. SASO spawned many other BCM organizations in the early 1970s, organizations that would be banned after the extensive Soweto uprising of 1976, which the state was to blame on black consciousness. Eight after the Soweto uprising the apartheid state was on the defensive, and many scholars have seen that uprising as beginning the process leading to the final collapse of apartheid in the 1990s. Student protest at the University of Cape Town of all the events that took place in 1968 in South Africa, the founding of BCM was to have the greatest significance in the long run, but the event in student politics in South Africa that year that received the greatest attention in the media occurred on the almost entirely white campus of the University of Cape Town, UCT. UCT was the leading English medium university in the country, with many ties to Britain, and its liberal ethos was strongly opposed to the ruling Afrikaner National Party, headed by John Vorster, the door politician who had succeeded the assassinated H.F. Verwoerd as Prime Minister of South Africa in 1968 and apartheid. 137. 1966. 
Many students and staff on the UCT campus shared the anti-apartheid views that Helen Suzman of the Progressive Party voiced in Parliament. THUG, there was no television in South Africa, and strict censorship was meant to prevent the spread of any literature deemed subversive. Nine material relating, say, to the civil rights movement in the United States circulated on the UCT campus, including recordings of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. King's assassination in April 1968 sparked a wave of emotion among those who identified with him as the leading black figure of the time, the man more than any other who had been responsible for what seemed a successful challenge to racial segregation in the United States. A few months later came the news that Robert Kennedy had been assassinated. His visit to South Africa in 1966, arranged by NUSAS, had the country's leading newspaper said at the time, blown clean air into a dank and closed room. Kennedy had attracted enthusiastic crowds on his visit, and had delivered what many have considered his greatest speech ever in the Jameson Hall at UCT, as the keynote speaker on UCT's annual day of affirmation. Kennedy had drawn attention to similarities between the United States and South Africa and had emphasized how any individual could work to help bring about change for the better.10. It was on that same campus in August 1968, in that very same venue, that students, who had read and heard on the radio of the student revolts that had taken place in Europe and the United States, and especially of the confrontations that had taken place on the streets of Paris in May and June, decided to stage their own protest. At issue was the decision by the Council of UCT to withdraw an offer of a senior lectureship to Archie Mafige, a black South African anthropologist who had studied and worked at UCT and had then gone on to Cambridge University in England. THE government put pressure on the University Council not to make the appointment, not wanting blacks to teach at what were regarded as white universities. THE Vice-Chancellor and Council of UCT feared that if they did not withdraw the offer to Mafige, the continued employment of one or two other blacks already on the staff of the university would be jeopardized. One, one. On 16 August 1968 some 1,000 mostly white students condemned the Council's decision at a mass meeting in the Jameson Hall, and then, wanting to do more than merely pass a resolution, 300 students marched down the hill from the upper campus to the university's administration building, entered the building, and refused to leave until the council had reversed its decision. In the administrative building they set up a virtual, alternative university, at which left-wing lecturers spoke on topical issues. THR actions outraged the government, on which the university was dependent for the bulk of its funding, and captured the attention of the local media and of student bodies around the world, many of whom sent messages of solidarity. Some of these messages explicitly linked what was happening in Cape Town to what had happened in Paris and elsewhere, and encouraged the UCT students to see their movement as part of a global challenge to authority, albeit it in a particular environment, where the challenge was 138. Fresh battles in old struggles to a very explicit and overt form of racial oppression. After ten days of occupying the administration building, the students, faced with the increasing likelihood of police intervention, were persuaded to abandon their protest and leave the building.
The University Council had not backed down and the government's racial policy had not been threatened, but the lives of many of those who took part in the protest were changed by the sit-in.12 its leading figure. Rap High Kaplan Sky was one of many who soon left the country in the face of police harassment. The University's Dean of Arts resigned from UCT in protest at the council's action and emigrated. When veterans of the event held a reunion in 2008, 40 years after the event, many of them pointed to the sit-in as shaping their later careers and political involvement. On the UCT campus the sit-in was long remembered as the most important student protest, and the memory of it inspired later generations of students to continue anti-apartheid activity, though there was never to be another sit-in. On the 40th anniversary in August 2008, the university finale made a formal apology for its treatment of Mafij, and the main venue in the administration building, where the students had held their sit-in, was renamed the Mafij Room.13 THED Oliveira Affair, Cricket, Race, and Apartheid later that same month in 1968 what became known as the D Oliveira Affair began. Basil de Oliveira, or Dolly, as his fans knew him, was a South African of mixed descent who had left the country because of apartheid and become an English citizen and had become one of that country's leading cricket players. In the conservative world of English cricket, the idea that teams should not tour South Africa because of apartheid had won little sympathy by 1968. But when the team was chosen to play in South Africa, de Oliveira was initially not selected. Many assumed that the selectors had capitulated to the known wishes of the apartheid government, for in terms of South Africa's racial classification system de Oliveira was colored and apartheid severe segregation meant that he could not be treated in South Africa as an equal member of the English team. Whether or not the selectors had this in mind in their initial selection, when another player dropped out, de Oliveira was then named as a member of the team to tour South Africa. When he heard this, Prime Minister Vorster announced that his government was not prepared to receive a team thrust on us by people whose interests are not in the game but to gain political objectives which they do not even attempt to hide. 14 THE tour was therefore cancelled. THR was then a successful campaign in Britain to stop the South African team, the Springboks, from touring Britain in 1970. After one further Australian tour had taken place, South Africa did not play a five-child test cricket again until the 1990s. It was then too late for de Oliveira to play for his country in South Africa, for he had by then retired after a long and very successful cricketing career. 15 1968 and apartheid, 139 in itself the ending of a cricket relationship was not of great significance and rugby players from Britain were to continue to tour in South Africa for some years, 16 but white South Africans took their sport very seriously, and the ending of cricket tours was a major blow to their identification with the country from which many of them had come, the country's main trading partner, and regarded as one of the most friendly toward South Africa in an increasingly hostile world. The cancellation of the tour in 1968 
along with the pressures that year and after against South Africa sending a team to the Olympic Games, was evidence that a major campaign was now underway to isolate South Africa. TH's campaign would take a long time to gather momentum and to include a ban on the supply of arms and eventually to include financial and other economic sanctions. But eventually, in the late 1980s, the isolation of South Africa would contribute significantly to the ending of apartheid. THUG South Africa did try to send a multiracial team to the Olympic Games in 1968. Sport within South Africa remained highly segregated, and after those games the Olympic movement decided not to allow any further South African participation while apartheid remained in place. Conclusion The events discussed in this chapter are only three among many that took place in South Africa in 1968, but they are emblematic. THA show that for South Africa 1968 must be understood in a particular racialized context, even if that local context was inextricably linked to the wider world, whether through intellectual influences, international student contacts, or sporting tours. THE's three events were not directly related. The government's decision to bar de Oliveira from playing in South Africa did not have anything to do with student protest. The white students who took part in the sit-in at UCT did not know that black students were about to form an organization that heralded the start of a major new phase in the opposition to apartheid. And for black students elsewhere what happened on the UCT campus was not particularly significant for they saw white students as privileged and not part of the oppressed masses. But these events were all related in that they arose from the policy of apartheid, and they did not take place in isolation. When black students at the University of Fort Hare began their own sit-in later in the year to protest the way their leaders had been victimized, police invaded the campus and broke up the protest, and in response white students at other campuses, including UCT, came out in support.17 THE's three events were further evidence of growing resistance to apartheid, and they heralded the build-up of new pressures, pressures that would in time begin to erode the fundamentals on which apartheid rested. At the time, it was difficult to see the significance of these events, though they showed that South Africa was not immune from global influences. It would be another two decades before the end of apartheid was clearly on the horizon, and that was only the 140 fresh battles in old struggles case because of the build-up of much more overt resistance within the country, increased pressure from abroad, and South African military adventures in neighboring states. THEs together would eventually destroy the capacity of the apartheid regime to continue its oppression. As the year 1968 came to an end, there was no likelihood that apartheid would end in the near future, it seemed impregnable to most observers. But those opposed to apartheid could hold out more hope for change than when the year began. It would take many years for the consequences of what happened in 1968 to manifest themselves fully. While those consequences could not be anticipated in that year, with hindsight we can see that 1968 was a significant year in the long history of apartheid and its final collapse. Notes 1. Anne Digby and Howard Phillips, at the heart of healing. Grutcher Hospital. 1938 to 2008, Auckland Park, Jakarta, 2008.
It was only in April 1969 that a non-white person received a transplanted heart. IBID, 72. A number of blacks, on being admitted to Groot Schuer, were reported to have said, Don't give me to Chris Barnard. Barnard retired in 1983, having performed hundreds of heart operations. 2. Mark Kurlansky, 1968, THE year that rocked the world, London, Vintage, 2005, 2021, 328, 348, 349. THE world's attention was caught by the Black Power salute given by two African-American athletes as the national anthem of the United States was played at the Mexico Olympic Games. 3. CF. George Fredrickson, Racism. A Short History, Princeton, N.J., Princeton University Press, 2002. 4. In 1968 an election took place in the largest of these, the Transgay, a major step toward the independence that the South African state bestowed on that homeland in October 1976. No other country was ever to recognize its independence. 5. On continued small-scale acts of resistance, see South African Democracy Education Trust, THE Road to Democracy in South Africa, Volume 1, Cape Town, Zebra Press, 2004, Chapter 15. 6. See especially, Randolph Vigny, Liberals Against Apartheid, London, Routledge, 1996. 7. Black Review, 1972-19, quoted S.A.D.E.T., 2004, 684. 8. On the BCM, see especially South African Democracy Education Trust, THE Road to Democracy in South Africa, Volume 2, Pretoria, UNISA Press, 2006, Chapter 3, and G. Gerhardt, Black Power in South Africa, Berkeley, University of California Press, 1978. 9. Christopher Merritt, A Culture of Censorship, Cape Town, David Phillip, 1994, and Peter MacDonald, THE Literature Police, Apartheid Censorship and Its Cultural Consequences, Cape Town, Oxford University Press, 2009. 10. See especially Larry Short, Ripple of Hope in the Land of Apartheid, Robert F. Kennedy in South Africa, June 4, 9, 1966, Safundi Volume 3, Number 2, 2002, and Dominic Sandbrook, Robert Kennedy in South Africa, Unpublished M.Let Thesis, University of St. Andrews, 1998, 1968 and Apartheid, 141. 11. One of these was in the Department of African Languages, one in the English Department. The latter had an Afrikaans name, van der Westhuizen, and the government had not realized, at the time that he was appointed, that he was not white. 12. See especially. Robert Erdman, Conservative Revolutionaries, Anti-Apartheid Activism at the University of Cape Town, 1963-1973, History Honors Thesis, Oxford University, 2005. 13. T. 
the author of this chapter has met many of those involved in these events, and draws upon discussions with them. 14. For an excellent and concise overview, see Martin Williamson, The de Oliveira Fair, a timeline of events which led to the cancellation of the 1968-69 England tour of South Africa, the 13th of September 2008. http://www.cricinfo.com/magazine/content/story356092.html. 15. On all this, see especially C. Murray and C. Merritt. Caught Behind, Race and Politics in Springbok Cricket, Johannesburg, Wits University Press, 2004, and Basil de Oliveira in El Siegel and P. Holden, Great Lives, Pivotal Moments, Auckland Park, Jakarta, 2008. Some rebel tours did take place by cricketers from England. See also Ronald Hume and Peter Henshaw, T.H.E. Lion in the Springbok, Britain and South Africa since the Boer War, Cambridge, Cambridge University Press, 2003, Chapter 13, 16, T.H.E. Springboks beat the Lions three games to nil in South Africa in 1968. 17, S.A.D.E.T., 2004, Chapter 8 Brother Wally and the Burning of Babylon Walter Rodney's Impact on the Reawakening of Black Power, The Birth of Reggae, and Resistance to Global Imperialism James Bradford in October 1968, Riots Rocked Kingston, Jamaica, THE Riots were a reaction to the expulsion of black activist and scholar Dr. Walter Rodney from Jamaica by the Jamaican Labour Party. THE following week's massive riots wreaked havoc upon the economic infrastructure of the island. TH's chapter will explore how Walter Rodney's ideas on imperialism, black power, and the Jamaican political system had a profound impact on the politicization of reggae music, Rastafarian culture, and the role of reggae in Jamaican and global politics. Inspired by the black power movement in the United States, Dr. Rodney sought to reawaken black consciousness and empowerment among the poor, black community. He used his academic background to explain the social and political situation of the Jamaican people. In doing so, he helped forge a new self-awareness that had a direct impact on the reshaping of cultural expressions and political representations. Dr. Rodney was a catalyst in the re-emergence of the self-consciousness of the Jamaican people, which in turn affected the change in musical expressions found in the evolution of Jamaican music from ska and rock steady to reggae. Ultimately, the exploration of Walter Rodney's teachings and his impact on Jamaican culture demonstrates that the rise of reggae music and Rastafarian culture in Jamaica indicate a mass movement, of which reggae plays a key role in substantiating political and cultural self-understanding. Dr. Rodney and the riots The long history of slavery and racial conflict in Jamaica had a profound influence in shaping the political and social foundations from which reggae would eventually emerge. Jamaica gained its independence from Britain in 1962, and Brother Wally into Burning of Babylon, 143 prided itself on being one of the only peaceful independence movements.
Out of its sovereignty emerged two different political entities, the People's National Party, PNP, and the Jamaica Labour Party, JLP. THEJLP appeared the most competent and powerful of the two parties, and was put into power. Many in Jamaica expected radical social and political transformations since for the FRST time in its history, Jamaicans, and not the British, would make decisions. However, that change never came. Rex Nettleford argued, Tejans certainly did not fall apart. In fact, a great many things, like the class structure underlined in color, continue to appear immutable, the political order merely moved from one phase to the next. One THEJLP demonstrated the authoritarian character of its rule, censoring all oppositional material and violently oppressing the Rastafarian communities, all the while claiming to be the embodiment of peaceful multiracialism. THEJLP created a national motto that would symbolize the direction of the new independent nation. Out of many, one people. THE motto, writes Nettleford, targeted social cohesion, political unity, the bliss of multiracialism, and peaceful, civilized SOCIO political interaction as goals of independence. 2THE new identity reflected the aims of the government and those in power, however, it contradicted the stark realities on the island. Michael Manley, PNP leader elected president in 1972, stated, Either one belonged to the great majority who could not escape from the world of manual labor, or one belonged to the minority who enjoyed a privileged status. Three Jamaica could not escape the intensifying pressure to address the problems of its identity, or the corresponding emergence of a whole new generation of young radicals anxious to pry the society out of its ostrich-like refusal to face the reality of a black underclass dispossessed and a lopsided polity structured and operated to enrich a traditional few and strengthen their leverage of power in national decision-making. For THE question of Jamaican identity would serve as the root of political and social grievances later in the decade. Walter Rodney would address this issue directly with his book THE Groundings with My Brothers and help galvanize the masses into discovering and embracing a new, more realistic Jamaican identity rooted in its African heritage. Prior to the Rodney riots, there were a large group of Jamaicans who resisted British colonial culture and also a number of civil disturbances, which foreshadowed the radical change to come. The most obvious element of civil resistance to the British colonial rule and, later, the JLP government were the Rastafarians. The Rastafarian community originated in Jamaica in opposition to the slave trade that displaced millions of Africans. Rastas openly rejected the repressive culture of white supremacy and colonial society. In the 1930s, Rastafarians united under the leadership of Marcus Garvey, who believed that all black people should return to Africa. As Horace Campbell notes, it is the identification with Africa which laid the foundations for the doctrine of Rastafarian ideology which combined the resistance against oppression with an underlying 144, fresh battles in old struggles love for the freedom and emancipation of Africa and African peoples. 5THE Rastafarian community was in perpetual conflict with the authorities on the island and had little to no political representation. Eventually, Every aspect of Rastafari culture, 
from symbols to style to speech, came to represent the support of African heritage and the resistance to cultural norms forced upon them by their colonial oppressors. Six, both the British government and the JLP did everything in their power to keep the Rastafarian community a silent and powerless entity. The Chinese riots of 1965, the general elections of 1967, and radical movements on the University of West Indies campus throughout the 1960s indicated that social unrest was growing in Jamaica prior to the Rodney riots in 1968. To make matters worse, the PNP and JLP had been feeding an urban war in the slums of Kingston, Trench Town, battling over territory and political hegemony. TH's decade-long battle was an extreme microcosm of the conflict enveloping the whole island. It was clear the JLP was defending its claim to hegemony and privilege, while the PNP was trying desperately to unify the poor, despondent black majority to confront the JLP. However, as poor, unemployed youth battled over the political territories, Rastafarians struggled to gain any just political and social representation. THU disregarded by the JLP as a cult, the visit of Hale Selassie 7 in the summer of 1966 to Jamaica demonstrated fully the potential Rastafarians had as a political entity over the misrepresented government, while also signifying the emergence of a black consciousness and a re-examination of Jamaica's African heritage. Eight in October 1968, with political tensions running high. The JLP tried desperately to identify the roots of the burgeoning black power movement in Jamaica. Immediately, they blamed Dr. Rodney. When he FRST arrived in Jamaica he noted, The quality of justice dispensed by the legal system still depends on the color of your skin. 9. Dr. Rodney combined arguments of race and class in a way that attacked the very structure of the Jamaican political system, arguments that had hitherto been prevented from reaching the public forum, arguments that the government was most vulnerable. One zero, Dr. Rodney targeted the root of the JLP's political justification, the multiracial myth of Jamaica, and spoke directly to those who lived through the dilemmas he discussed. Poor students, the unemployed, and the Rastafarians. Obika Gray comments that, this contact with the urban poor broke new ground, because it was the FRST time that a member of the radical intelligentsia became directly involved with that sector of the population which was most opposed to the regime. 11 During the latter parts of the summer, the government had pressured the Chancellor of the University to fury Dr. Rodney, however, he was unsuccessful. But when Dr. Rodney left for Canada in October, the government took full advantage of the opportunity. He was denied re-entry into Jamaica, and cited for instigating violence and treason. Th at night, hundreds of thousands of students, youths, and Rastafarians took to the streets in protest. The New York Times reported that the Rodney riots were becoming the most debilitating issue for the Jamaican government. The article states, Brother Wally and the burning of Babylon, 145 Afi Chiles and leading citizens had long been annoyed with the concentration here of what they considered radical students and professors, and the exclusion of one set off last October 16th the most destructive rioting in memory. The exclusion order was issued against Dr. Walter Rodney, 
a young Guyanese lecturer in African history. He advocated a combination of black power and Castroism and he was a subversive danger to the country. One two the Rodney riots demonstrated that there was a significant threat to the power of the JLP. Most politicians feared this riot would lead to a revolution, much like what had occurred in Cuba. However, the riots took on a very different character. The Rodney riots were frightening, writes Terry Lacey, because they manifested a reservoir of antagonism against the Jamaican government and the national bourgeoisie, and because they pointed to a source of political strength, political violence. 13 The authorities noted that the riots were aimed primarily at property, causing more than a million pounds of Damage. One four thug. Some would assume that the riots failed to achieve the revolution Dr. Rodney desired. There were two significant consequences of note. First, the riots demonstrated an emergent political alliance among students, intellectuals, the unemployed, the working class, and the rest is that had been previously non-existent. Secondly. The actions of the JLP and the reaction to Dr. Rodney's exile showed the vulnerability of the JLP and its reliance on force to uphold its rule. five. Much of the motivation for the resistance to the JLP can be credited to the civil rights movement in the United States, especially the Black Power Movement. The Black Power Movement inspired Dr. Rodney. He sought ways to transpose the ideas of activism and change to Jamaica and the West Indies. He states in his book, Groundings, The present black power movement in the United States is a rejection of hopelessness and the policy of doing nothing to halt the oppression of blacks by whites. It recognizes the absence of black power, but is confident of the potential of black power on this globe. 1-6 Dr. Rodney further states, The Black Brothers in Kingston, Jamaica moved against the government of Jamaica. What has happened in Jamaica is that the black people of the city of Kingston have seized upon this opportunity to begin their indictment against the government of Jamaica. 17 THS, the Rodney riots came to symbolize the FRST mass movement of the Jamaican people in resistance to the JLP and, more importantly, the residue of white colonial society. In Groundings, Dr. Rodney also talks a great deal about his visits to the slums of Kingston, where he spoke with local youths, students, and rastas about black power, imperialism, and race. His discussions did not focus on just explaining the current social and political situation. More importantly, he offered solutions. His belief in black power served as a vital tool in creating a new sense of hope and activism. He states, Th rough out the country, black youths are 146, fresh battles in old struggles becoming aware of their possibilities of unleashing armed struggle in their own interests. For those who have eyes to see, there is already evidence of the beginnings of resistance to the violence of our oppressors. 18 Th hug most youths and rasters understood the grievances stated by Dr. Rodney. Militancy was a step that invoked violent retribution from the government and in many ways limited the extent to which many Jamaicans were to express their objections. Despite Dr. Rodney's call for armed resistance, his ideas on Jamaican heritage and the expression of black unity garnered the most attention. He outlined the three main tenets of the black power movement and the escape from oppression. 1. The break with imperialism, which is historically white racist. 
2. The assumption of power by the black masses in the islands, and 3. The cultural reconstruction of society in the image of the blacks. 19th's three points would be the staple of his black power ideology, and would be reiterated by reggae artists in the future. He also made a call for action to change the interpretation and presentation of Jamaican history that resonated deeply within the black population, who were forlorn with the government's misrepresentation of the past, demanding that the effort must be directed solely toward freeing and mobilizing black minds from knowledge of African history seen as relevant but secondary to the concrete tactics and strategy necessary for black liberation.20 ultimately. Dr. Rodney presented an argument against the JLP government and the need for black unified cation. He showed the Rastas, youths, and students that, these men, government, serve the interests of a foreign white capitalist system and at home they uphold a social structure which ensures that the black man resides at the bottom of the social ladder. 2. When Dr. Rodney presented the black community with a coherent ideology of resistance that both represented the racial problems afflicting Jamaica and the world, but also the social and political contexts that justify and protect the current political system. Dr. Rodney's greatest achievement could well have been that he combined the political and social problems with racial oppression, and in doing so, awakened the sleeping giant that was the black majority. 22 Dr. Rodney and the Rastafarians The Rodney riots are important in showing that Dr. Rodney had a special connection to the people of Jamaica. Thug born a Guyanese, he was, like the black population in Jamaica, an African at heart. He had spent his entire life up to this point studying the history of Africa and the cultural FECTs of colonialism and slavery upon the black populations in the Americas. When he moved to Kingston to teach at the University of the West Indies at Mona, he made a concerted effort to take his teachings outside university walls. In Groundings, he laid the groundwork for black academics to become activists. 1. The black intellectual the academic, within his own discipline, has to attack those distortions Brother Wally and to burning of Babylon, 147 that white cultural imperialism has produced in all branches of scholarship, 2. The black intellectual has to move beyond his own discipline to challenge the social myth, the myth about a multiracial Jamaica, and 3. The black intellectual must attach himself to the activity of the black masses. 23. His meetings with local youths and Rastas, called groundings by the Rastas, demonstrated his unique connection to the poor population in Jamaica. He used his intelligence to help educate others about the social and political situation of blacks in modern Jamaica, and what they could do to change their scenario. Rupert Lewis notes that Dr. Rodney used his academic background to clarify the past and challenge the interpretations of colonial and bourgeois historians and many people commented on Rodney's genuineness. To them he became Brother Wally. 24 Unlike other academics, Dr. Rodney felt the need to immerse himself in the ghetto culture of Kingston. His wife, Pat, remarked upon the profound impact he had on her when he took her to the slums and ghettos of Kingston, because Walter took me down to Trench Town and I met a lot of his friends. I saw the poverty. I saw the other side of Jamaica.
It upset me a lot because I saw people rummaging through dustbins. But Walter said he never wanted me to get a false image at any time of wherever we lived, or what life was really like for the majority of the people. 25 By looking at this close connection to the black community, and how his teaching fused previously separate ideologies, we can see his impact on Jamaican history. The people's response to Dr. Rodney's expulsion scene in this context reveals their deep connection to the ideas of black power, African liberation, and cultural recreation presented by Dr. Rodney, and the FRST signs of a burgeoning mass movement of the oppressed majority. But Dr. Rodney also affected the Jamaican community in a way that is less obvious than the riots indicate, for he helped bring in the emergence of a new political and social force, the Rastafarians. Unlike other social movements of the time, Jamaica had an existing population that represented the black pride and African heritage that Dr. Rodney advocated so eloquently. The Rastafarians had a significant presence on the island since the days of Marcus Garvey. 26 Even after Jamaican independence, Rastafarians remained at the bottom of the social and political ladder. THR lifestyle was grounded in the realities of poverty and their dreadlocks and their love of marijuana led to a constantly volatile relationship with the Jamaican government. But as a spiritual force, the Rastas represented the African roots of the majority of the Jamaican population. For Dr. Rodney, the Rastas symbolized the distinctly African heritage of the entire West Indies population and as a result, largely explains why he placed Groundings in the title of his book.27 During his Groundings, Dr. Rodney discovered the amazing similarities between his teachings and that of the Rastas. Rastafarian teachers like Rosnigas and Rosplano found common ground with Dr. Rodney on the idea of political liberation in Africa.28 In many ways Plano and Nigas represented the black youths in Jamaica the same way Malcolm X did to the youth of the Black Power 148. Fresh battles in old struggles movement in America.29 During Dr. Rodney's time in Jamaica, he had forged a relationship with the Rastas and it resonated in their involvement in the riots and their growing urge for black liberation. Dr. Rodney viewed the Rastas as the key to the freeing of black minds.30 Yet, despite there being a large population of Rastas on the island, they lacked political representation, and more importantly, had no sympathizers, particularly the politically empowered black middle class. Dr. Rodney, however, would change that. One major impact of his teachings was that he did not alienate, but rather, he captured the attention of the middle-class black population by connecting them to their African heritage found in the Rastafarian community. When students and workers saw Dr. Rodney immerse himself in the culture of Trench Town, they started to acknowledge their own cultural connection with the Rastas and Africa.31 The rise of reggae The Rodney riots showed that the black community in Jamaica was starting to unite. However, their political representation was still long off. With most Jamaicans reluctant to take on the authorities, who were more than willing to feed GHT, Rastas, students, workers, and the middle class embraced alternative mediums to direct action in order to better understand their situation and rediscover their African heritage.
Soon elements of Rastafarianism were being adopted by wealthier middle-class blacks. People began wearing African headdresses, growing dreads, smoking ganja, using Rasta phrases such as, I and I, and listening to Rasta music. Three two of all of the cultural characteristics associated with the Rastafarian faith, it was its music that would inspire Jamaica. In Jamaica, the social culture, especially for the middle-class black population, was found in the sound systems. Restaurant and club owners purchased enormous amplifiers and blasted tunes into the open air, resulting in massive dance parties. It was a part of everyday life for most black Jamaicans. The sound systems were also an important factor in substantiating the growth of a purely Jamaican music industry. Three three in the mid 1960s, Jamaican music consisted of rocksteady and ska, rooted in jazz and Motown. Ska and Rocksteady gave a mild portrayal of life in Jamaica. THA both found happy homes in the sound systems of Jamaica. But the government was also paying close attention to lyrics of the music, strictly censoring any song that commented on the harsh political environment. Rastafarian music, reggae, was very political in nature because it reflected the oppression and poverty that Rastas face every day. The government did everything in its power to prevent reggae from getting radio play and ruthlessly attacked DJs who played reggae at the sound systems. As Annika Waters writes, one Rasta respondent told me that whenever he was at a dance and heard the Whalers' song, Fire, Fire, he ran. The police would be certain to raid, because they heard only the words, Babylon burning and knew well that Brother Wally and to burning of Babylon. 149 Babylon was a Rasta term for police. 34 As reggae surged into the public eye, the government worked more aggressively to combat its message and the prophecy of the lyrics was in many ways full-fi-l-l-e-d.35 As the political and social climate become more explosive, Jamaicans searched for music with critical political and social messages. Soon reggae was playing at every sound system. Reggae took a giant leap where other music styles would not. Horace Campbell states, The transition from rocksteady to reggae was, like the transition from ska to rocksteady, an imperceptible process which was both a response to and a reflection of the changing social condition of the society. Where Rocksteady had the legacy of singing the sex and romance songs, reggae laid emphasis on Africa, black deliverance and redemption. 36 Reggae became the voice of political and social distress, and a vehicle for the Rastafarian community to preach African liberation. Soon Rastafarian ideology, which existed in the dredges of Jamaican society for so long, would fee-nd itself speaking for an entire population of people through reggae. Following the Rodney riots, politics took center stage in the minds of many artists throughout the island. Musicians like Desmond Decker, the Ethiopians, and Bob Marley and the Wailing Wailers changed not only their musical style from the upbeat rock steady to the slower, more deliberate reggae sound, but also attached lyrics with a more poignant political and spiritual message. The term reggae was coined by Toots Hibbert of the Toots and the Maytals, who claims that it meant regular people are suffering and don't have what they want. Three seven many artists responded directly to the Rodney riots. The Ethiopians wrote the song, Everything Crash, 
which talked specifically about the social situation at the time, and became an instant sound system hit. Looked at now, everything crash, firemen strike, watermen strike, telephone pole men, too, down to the policemen, too. What bad by the morning, can't come a good evening. Every day I carry a bucket to the well, one day the bucket bottom must drop out, everything, crash. The popularity of the song was found in the widespread use of its opening line, looked at now, which became an oft-repeated phrase during the next election, usually preceding an antagonistic observation about the JLP government. Thirty-nine other songs spoke about the violent aftermath of the Rodney riots. As the sound systems throughout Jamaica blasted the reggae anthems, the political, social, and Rastafarian elements of the lyrics started to speak to a broader audience. Jamaicans found solace in the political and social criticisms found in the lyrics, but more importantly were drawn to the African liberation and black conscious elements of the Rastafarian community. As demonstrated earlier, Rastafarians were virtually powerless until they found an effective medium, reggae, to help spread their culture. The Rastafarian movement, in FECT, as Ian Paddle 150, Fresh Battles in Old Struggles points out, co-opted reggae music as its chief medium of communication. 40 The best example of Rastafarian ideals embraced by reggae artists, and in turn, Embraced by Jamaica as a whole, is the Abyssinians, Satamazagna. With lyrics written in Amharic, the Ethiopian dialect, the song spoke of a utopian resting place for the black, faithful. For one, David Katz notes that it has since become one of the most version songs ever recorded in Jamaica and an all-time Rasta anthem. 42 The song portrayed the growing Rastafarian sentiments in the country and its popularity is a prime example of how Rastafarian ideology found the perfect medium in reggae. By the late 1960s and early 1970s, reggae artists were using music and the sound systems to comment and riff ECT on the highly charged political and social environment. Arguably two of the most influential and recognizable reggae artists, Bob Marley and Peter Tosh expanded on the ideas that emerged from the chaos of 1968 and the teachings of Dr. Rodney. THA began to attack the JLP and its Justify Catine for hegemony, in particular the myth of peaceful multiracialism. In Peter Tosh's 400 years he confronts the tarnished past of Jamaica and the terrible misinterpretation by the JLP government. 400 years. And it's the same. The same philosophy. I've said it 400 years. Look how long. And the people they still can't see. Why do they feed GHT against the poor youth of today? And without these youths they would be gone. All gone, astray. 43 The domination of reggae music on the sound systems of Jamaica demonstrated the significance reggae played in freeing the minds of youths and openly defying the laws of the government. Reggae and the Rastafarian culture were helping reconstruct Jamaican culture in the eyes of the black majority, just as Walter Rodney had stated. Reggae artists also expanded upon the ideas of black pride and the resiliency of the black people in the New World. Dr. Rodney spoke about the amazing cultural impact the black population had in the Americas. He states, 
Now we have all gone through a historical experience through by all accounts we should have been wiped out. Not only have we survived as a people but the black people in the West Indies have produced all the culture that we have. Black bourgeoisie and white people in the West Indies have produced nothing. Black people who have suffered all these years create. Th it is amazing. Four four. Bob Marley reiterated the ideas on his last two albums, Survival and Uprising. Survival was a direct response to the statements made by Dr. Rodney about the resiliency and strength of the black people in Jamaica. Four five. The's concepts were not just pertinent to Jamaicans though, as they were widely shared by oppressed blacks and minorities all over the world. In many Brother Wally and to Burning of Babylon, 151 reggae songs, the combination of various social, political, and spiritual elements led to a unique cohesion that broke down nationalist identities and racial boundaries, and contributed to the growing popularity of reggae music around the world. An example of how reggae combined spiritual, political, and social observations can be found in Bob Marley's great song, War, until that philosophy which hold one race superior, and another, inferior, is finale, and permanently, discredited, and abandoned. Everywhere's war, me say war. Th at until they're no longer, frst class and second class citizens of any nation, until the color of a man's skin, is of no more significance than the color of his eyes. Me say war. Th at until the basic human rights, are equally guaranteed to all, without regard to race. Dis a war. Th at until the day, the dream of lasting peace, World citizenship, rule of international morality, will remain in but affiliating illusion to be pursued, but never attained, now everywhere's war. War bang 46 The lyrics for war were taken from a speech by Hale Selassie during a visit to the United States in 1964. The song addresses the obvious political and social discontent and a sharp criticism to the world order, that until they're no longer FRST class and second class citizens of any nation. The song also contains Rastafarian influences, since the lyrics are from Hale Selassie himself. But it is the combination of all three elements that make war such an important tune, for it not only speaks to the obvious hardships of the people of Jamaica, but also makes connections to oppressed peoples all over the world who identify with the plight of the Jamaican people. As the 70s wore on, and the political and social dilemmas across the globe came to a climax, Reggae emerged as an important cultural and political voice of not only Jamaica, but for the much of the TH Bird world as well. Reggae and politics following the Rodney riots and reggae's rise in popularity, the country of Jamaica was bound for change. Reggae artists began to recognize the profound impact they were having on the political and social processes of the island. In producing music critical of the social and political structures on the island and the world, combined with the link to African heritage through the Rastafarian community, reggae artists began to recreate the culture of Jamaica, as Dr. Rodney perceived. And with their alliance to the PNP and its leader Michael Manley, the oppressed black majority was finally garnering political clout. 
leading up to 152 fresh battles in old struggles the 1972 general elections the JLP and PNP fought for the support of Rastafarians and the endorsements of popular reggae artists. Horace Campbell states, THE's artists, who were spearheading the development of a popular culture, were uncompromising in their identification with Africa, such that in 1969 both the ruling party and the opposition leader made pilgrimages to Africa and Ethiopia in an effort to keep abreast of this new pace. 47 Naturally the PNP found a great deal of support in their promises to change the country. Songs became focal points of the presidential campaign. For Michael Manley and the PNP, Delroy Wilson's Better Must Come became the most famous campaign song. According to P.J. Patterson, one of the leaders of the PNP, the song drove the Michael Manley government from the very fiorest day of its election to do everything possible to improve the social conditions and economic welfare of the people of Jamaica. 48 Michael Manley overwhelmingly won the election of 1972 mainly because his campaign focused on the issues of poverty, racial discrimination, and unemployment, the inspiration for reggae music. But this is nothing new. Politicians in every country around the world use music to garner support. So why is reggae any different? Reggae influenced politics and social structures so profoundly that it cannot simply reflecite the Jamaican culture. P.J. Patterson explains, It's fair to say that while the political situation influences music, it also works the other way around and the music influences the political situation. Both the music and the culture interact upon each other and with each other. 49 If reggae acted solely as a reflection of society, the desire for change would never be achievable, it would remain affiliating illusion to be pursued, but never attained. 50 As much as reggae was a response to the political and social situation of Jamaica in the late 60s, it was also the major force in changing the social and political consciousness of the country and the world in the 70s. Reggae used Rastafarian elements to reconstruct the social and political landscape to acknowledge the African heritage of displaced blacks around the world and demand equal political rights for the oppressed. In doing so, Reggae became not just a cultural construct, but also a mass movement embodying the struggles of the politically and socially oppressed peoples of the world, and those in solidarity. Reggae is an excellent example of the symbiotic relationship between music and politics, together forging the mass movement of cultural transformation through music. Timothy S. Brown has argued that music does not simply reflecite society, but actively works to reconstruct it. Brown notes that the ties between popular music and radical politics become visible. The creation of an alternative sphere of cultural production by the bands themselves. 51 In other words, political music can create a new culture through a mass movement, rather than mirror a pre-existing form. One way to understand how reggae creates a mass movement is to look at how the expression of Rastafarian ideals helped combat the myth of peaceful multiracialism put forth by the JLP. Another is to look at how reggae exposed the social and political injustices, not just of Jamaica, Brother Wally and to burning of Babylon, 153, but of the entire world system in which blacks are overtly disenfranchised and oppressed.
The Rastafarians used race as way to define themselves, but also as a way to resist cultural norms that put them in direct opposition to the myth of a multiracial Jamaican culture. It was here, quite literally on the skin of the social formation, that the Rastafarian movement made its most startling innovations, refracting the system of black and white polarities, turning negritude into a positive sign, a loaded essence, a weapon at once deadly and divinely licensed. Fifty-two T.H.E. Rastas were the incarnation of resistance to the Jamaican and global economic system. T.H.A. stood as the direct link to Jamaica's African heritage and history, something that the Jamaican government had sought so long to prevent. As Walter Rodney said, the government of Jamaica recognizes black power, it is afraid of the potential wrath of Jamaica's black and largely African population. 5-3 to Dr. Rodney, the Rastafarians were the vital force in supporting the emergence of black consciousness and African liberation on the island. The music, the speech, and the lifestyle were all ways of confronting the cultural myth while simultaneously, with the help of reggae, creating a new Jamaican culture born from this resistance. The Rastafarian ideology proved malleable enough to translate to a variety of peoples all around the world. The oppressed minorities and disenchanted youths all over the world looked to reggae as a source of inspiration to resist political and social inequality. In Britain, oppressed blacks immediately identified with the message and aim of reggae music. Dick Hubdide writes, it was during this period of growing disaffection and joblessness, at a time when conflict between black youths and the police was being openly acknowledged in the press, that imported reggae music began to deal directly with problems of race and class, and to resurrect the African heritage. 54 However, reggae does not only represent Rastafarian music, as much as its languages and customs permeate the culture of the music. In a broader base, Reggae speaks to social and political injustices that billions of people around the world can identify with. Five Five Burning Spear, one of the great reggae artists, believes that reggae has become an international phenomenon because people identify with the struggles of oppression and poverty. He states, The international market people will be listening for music with quality, music with understanding, music wherein they could gain something from music that could become a help in their life or lifestyle of living. 56 The Rastafarian mythos of the war on Babylon can be easily applied to all peoples who feel as though they are part of the unfortunate oppressed majority. Habdij explains, Th's war had the double nature, it was fought around ambiguous terms of reference which designated both an actual and an imaginary set of relations, race-class nexus, Babylon, economic exploitation, biblical suffering, a struggle both real and metaphorical, which described a world of forms and meshed an ideology where appearance and illusion were synonymous. 57-154, Fresh Battles in Old Struggles Bob Marley, the most popular reggae artist ever and considered by many a prophet of Rastafarianism exploded onto the scene in the 1970s. Bob Marley's message of love and hope in the face of oppression and hatred, while loaded with Rastafarian mythos, 
made him one of the most universally recognized musical artists in the world. 58 Where Walter Rodney desired a force to recreate Jamaican culture, Bob Marley went further, becoming the voice of the oppressed in the TH Heard world. TH Heard world had never produced a global superstar. In his dress code, hairstyle, drug habits, speech patterns, Bob Marley's impact on his audience was in far more ways than merely musical. 59 When the South African government exploded a nuclear device in 1979 to intimidate the Freedom Feeders, Marley responded. In his last album ever recorded, Uprising, he sang, Have no fear for atomic energy for none dem can stop to time. 60. Redemption Song was one of his many attempts to not only chastise the actions of oppressive governments, but to offer hope and encouragement to those still battling for equal rights and justice. In Marley's song, Zimbabwe, from survival, he calls for his brothers and sisters in Zimbabwe to unite and feed GHT for their rights. His career and the body of his work stand in defiance of a global system that could not contain him. Marley, and all other reggae artists who emerged from 1968, brought forth political and social grievances in such a way that people could finally comprehend the causes of their struggles, and more importantly, could themselves be the solution in their act of rebelliousness and resistance. Just by listening to reggae, dancing to reggae, speaking Rasta speech, and smoking ganja people stood in direct defiance of a system that sought to subjugate them and force them into a cultural, political, and social structure substantiated by racial and class segregation. Yet, all of the elements of reggae culture, which Jamaica and the world held so dear, were a product of Walter Rodney's teachings and work in Trench Town. In so many ways, Bob Marley represents the amazing depth and authenticity of reggae music and reggae culture. For despite selling millions of albums and playing for millions of fans, Bob rarely changed. As Lloyd Bradley says, why the world listened to Bob Marley was because he remained unadulterated by the business he chose to operate in, what he delivered was pure trench town. Right up until he died. 61 The same can be said of most reggae artists. They represent the struggles of race and class, they live the struggles of oppression and poverty. And by listening to reggae, and confounding in its political and social message, many unite and defy ends of a system rooted in privilege and segregation. For many oppressed peoples of the TH Heard world, Reggae embodies a mass movement inspired by the struggles of THR world peoples trying to break themselves from the restraints of an imperialist system rooted in white hegemony. Yet, reggae is not only the embodiment of struggle, poverty, and oppression, it is also the culture of resistance, self-awareness, and hope. And this culture would never have come to pass had Walter Rodney not set foot in the slums of Trench Town. Brother Wally into Burning of Babylon, 155 Notes 1. Rex Nettleford, ed. Jamaica and Independence, Essays on the Early Years, Kingston, Heinemann Caribbean, 1989, 3. 2. IBID, 4. 3. Michael Manley, THE Politics of Change, A Jamaican Testament, Washington, D.C. Howard University Press, 1975, 158. 
4. Nettleford, 1989, 5. 5. Horace Campbell, Rasta and Resistance, From Marcus Garvey to Walter Rodney, Ewing Township, N.J., Africa World Press, Incorporated, 1987, 19. 6. IBID, 89. 7. Hale Selassie is the king of Ethiopia and prophet to the Rastafarians. He believed that all blacks should return to Africa and is referred to as Ja and Rastafari. 8. Walter Rodney, THE Groundings with My Brothers, London, THE Bogle L. Uvertor Publications, 1969-13. 9. IBID, 13. 10. Anthony Payne, Politics in Jamaica, New York, St. Martin's Press, 1994, 22. 11. Obika Gray, Radicalism and Social Change in Jamaica, 1960-1972, Knoxville, University of Tennessee Press, 1991, 153. 12. New York Times, the 26th of November 1968. 13. Terry Lacey, Violence in Politics in Jamaica, 1960-1970, Manchester, Manchester University Press, 1977-98. 14. IBID, 97. 15. Gray, 1991, 160. 16. Rodney, 1969, 20. 17. IBID, 66. 18. IBID, 15. 19. IBID, 28. 20. IBID, 51. 21. IBID, 60. 22. Gray, 1991. 157. 23. Rodney, 1969, 63. 24. Rupert C. Lewis, Walter Rodney's Intellectual and Political THR, Detroit, MA, Wayne State University Press, 1998, 86. 25. IBID, 87. 26. Garvey was a Jamaican who moved to America to unite the black population and move back to Africa. He is considered one of the fathers and prophets of Rastafarianism. 27. Rodney, 1969-68 28. Lewis, 1998-99 29. IBID, 101 30. Noel Erskine from Garvey to Marley, Gainesville, University Press of Florida, 2005. 154. 31. IBID, 156. 32. IBID, 157. 33. David Katz, Solid Foundation, An Oral History of Reggae, London, Bloomsbury. 2003, 3, 156, Fresh Battles in Old Struggles. 34, Annika Waters, Race, Class, 
and political symbols, Rastafari and reggae and Jamaican politics, Piss Gataway, N.J., Transaction Publishers, 1985, 102. 35. A great example of this can be found in the legendary cult movie Rockers, 1978. In the opening of the movie, a sound system is broken up by police, and the various characters disperse. The movie cuts to Leroy Wallace and Winston Rodney feeding refuge in an old decrepit sugar mill, not a coincidence. It leads to a poetic, vocal version of John No Dead, sung by Rodney, a.k.a. Burning Spear. The scene is loaded with political and cultural imagery, as it connects the defiance against the state with the re-emergence of Rasta and African culture in Jamaica. 36, Campbell, 1987, 134. 37, Waters, 1985, 99. 38, The Ethiopians, Everything Crash, 1968. 39, Waters, 1985, 100. 40, Ian Petty, ed. The Resisting Muse. Popular Music and Social Protest, Surrey, Ashgate, 2006, 111. 41, Katz, 2003, 149. 42, IBID, 150. 43, Peter Tosh, 400 Years. Bob Marley and the Wailing Wailers, Catch a Fire, Island Records, 1973. 44, Rodney, 1969, 68. 45, Campbell, 1987, 144. 46, Bob Marley and the Whalers, War, Rastamon Vibration, Island Records, 1976. 47, Campbell, 1987, 135. 48, Lloyd Bradley, Reggae, The Story of Jamaican Music, London, BBC Worldwide Limited, 2002, 71. 49, Ibid. 50, Bob Marley and the Whalers, 1976. 51, Tim Brown, Popular Music, Popular Politics, Some TH Ots on the Role of Rock in West Germany, 1968, paper presented at the Forum, Designing a New Life, Aesthetics and Lifestyles of Political and Social Protest, University of Zurich, March 2007. 52, Dick Hebdige, Subculture, The Meaning of Style, York, Methune and Company, Limited, 1979. 37, 53, Rodney, 1969, 28. 54, Hebdige, 1979, 36-37. 55, one must only look at the lists of all-time record sales to see that Bob Marley is the only TH Heard World Artist represented. 56, Bradley, 2002, 64. 57, Hebdige, 1979, 38. 58, Marley's album Exodus was voted Album of the Century by Time Magazine. 59, 
Bradley, 2002, 75. 60. Bob Marley and the Whalers, Redemption Song, Uprising, Island Records, 1979. 61. Bradley, 2002, 76. Part 3 Unfinished Business. Challenging the State's Revolution. Chapter 90HE Destruction of the University Violence, Political Imagination, and the Student Movement in Congo Zaire, 1969-1971 Pedro Monaville Violence. The emotional power of the word can then be very confusing. Raymond Williams, 19,761 on the 4th of June 1969 soldiers opened fiery on a student demonstration in Kinshasa killing tens of marchers. The exact number of casualties, estimations vary between less than 10 and more than 100 victims, is impossible to establish. After the killing, the army seized the corpses of the dead students and buried them anonymously in a mass grave. The's bodies could testify to the scale of the massacre, and identify at graves would have constituted material reminders of the event. Too, however, the efforts to make the dead bodies disappear failed to put a closure to the massacre. June 4th remained an unfinished business. Three the struggle to complete the story of the massacre during the following couple of years, opposing the state to the student movement, ultimately radically transformed the face of Congolese universities. Violence and legitimacy personally, the moment I became revolted against Mobutu was June 4th, 1969. On June 4, 1969, all Congolese students were asked to participate in a pacifice demonstration. And we did go and demonstrate. I was here on Ron Point Victoire. And they fired. I was in the FRST rows of the demonstration. I did not realize that they were. We had seen the soldiers who were there, but we thought, they are just here to intimidate us. And then suddenly, they started to fire. And everybody yelled, lie down. And I lied down. And then at the moment when, I noticed that one of my friends did not stand up. And I had blood on me. And then I saw 160, unfinished business that one of my friends was dead. And this. It was the FRST time I was seeing a dead body. And it changed me completely. And today, this image. It is as if it had happened yesterday. For a local group of activists, the Kinshasa Student Circle, CEK, planned the demonstration of June 4th. CEK's leaders tried to keep their project secret. At Lovenium, the country's most prestigious university, located in the outskirts of Kinshasa, they informed the vast majority of students only on the eve of the march, during an assembly on the so-called Red Square the center of student politics on the campus. A few hours later, still in the middle of the night, students started to leave their dormitories en masse to get prepared for departure. The turnout was impressive. Nearly all of Lovanium's 3,000 students participated in the march. Nevertheless, nearly none among them reached the city center and the Ministry of Education, where CEK had planned to end the demonstration. Informed of CEK's project, the authorities intended to stop the demonstration by any means possible before it reached the city center.
Soldiers unsuccessfully tried to use tear gas to disperse the marchers. Students seized the grenades and threw them back at the soldiers, as they had been instructed to do by the CEK's activists. No one, among the students, imagined that the government would allow more violent means of repression to contain the march. However, soldiers started to open fury and targeted marchers a few hundred meters farther away, around what is today called Ulo Medical, and then around Rond Point Victoire, in the very populous Matong district. Hearing the shots, Many students thought that soldiers were using white bullets. Once it became obvious that this was not the case, the demonstration broke down. In the memories of many marchers, R.O.N.D. Point Victoire marks the end point of the demonstration. Nevertheless, a few did continue to progress in the direction of the Ministry of Education and went as far as Kinshasa's central station, where they met students from other schools. Soldiers assaulted female students, and finally opened Firi one more time on the marchers. Scores of protesters were arrested and brutally handled in a military camp. Five The Congolese government had already used unrestrained violence against its citizens many times during the 1960s. Nevertheless, the events of June 4 marked a rupture with previous massacres. The spirit, if not the techniques, of counterinsurgency, engineered through the help of the Belgian and American governments and tested between 1963 and 1965 in rural areas conquered by the Simba and Mulao rebellions, was for the FRST time deployed in the space of the capital city.6 Quite unsurprisingly, Congolese and foreign observers directly associated the events of 1969 with the colonial police operation of January 1959 that had overcame an insurrectional movement in Kinshasa at the expense of more than 100 deaths. 7th rough the repression of the student movement in 1969, the Congolese government adopted a form of violence inescapably reminiscent of this brand of colonial management of trouble. The destruction of the university, 161 using violence against unarmed students dangerously jeopardized the post-colonial state's legitimacy. Th rough out the 1960s, student politics remained isolated from society. Students rarely received support outside of campuses. As one former student from the 1960s remembers it, every time Lovanium students denounced the regime through demonstrations, the public understood it as a manifestation of youth's unbridled unruliness. People did not dare mixing with protesters. On the contrary, they would run away in their houses, yelling, Students are starting to make trouble again. Eight regardless of their lack of success in attracting a following among Kinshasa's non-educated urban masses, a failure that was repeated on the 4th of June 1969, students were not legitimate targets of state violence in the public's mind. Students were seen as children in need of protection, as well as the emerging social fraction through which the promises of development would be accomplished. Ordinary Congolese interpreted the 1969 massacre, the unrestrained use of violence against a vulnerable part of the national body, as totally illegitimate. Nine for the students themselves, the event marked a turning point. Pius Ngandu Kashima's autobiographical novel La Morte Fate Hom takes place on the 4th of June 1969, 
and poetically articulates how the massacre came to define his own student, Generation.10 th their dead comrades, deprived of a proper burial, remain haunting presences in the consciousness of the martyrs of June. Concurrently, Joseph Mobutu, the Congo's president since 1966, and the man unanimously held as responsible for the massacre, came to embody the figure of death after 1969 in the eyes of many students. Mobutu remained in power for nearly 30 more years after the massacre, and the memories attached to him are very complex. 11 Nevertheless, the 4th of June 1969 is often remembered as a turning point in the history of his regime. The antagonism between the state and the students at the end of the 1960s, dramatically manifested in the 1969 killings, remains centered on issues directly related to the organization of the higher education system. In spite of this, the conflict about the future of universities produced FECTs that were felt outside of campuses. Indeed, in the process, certain forms of political imagination disappeared and were replaced by a new political vocabulary. Lovinium was both the source of student contestation and at the same time provided the regime with a legitimizing rhetoric. Decolonizing the University Beware International imperialism is making plans for the future. Its method, leading insidious surveys on tomorrow's elites, scrutinize their private lives, get to know their secret motives. THs is the case of the current survey led by a German team. For in 162, unfinished businessers are still seeing us as their guinea pigs. THA take advantage of our weaknesses and divisions. You are young, refuse to be colonialism's guinea. Pigs.12 Global 1968 offered an interpretative context against which the Kinshasa demonstration was read and understood by the different actors, and many in the Congo had paid a lot of attention to the French case in particular. The influence of Benoit Verheiden, a Belgian professor of political science and the director of the Institute of Social and Economic Research based at Lovanium, Ayers, can be traced even more easily. 13 A self proclaimed Marxist, Verheiden offered students an entry to revolutionary ideas that lacked a relay in Kinshasa in the mid 1960s. Even though the Congolese Student Association of Fidjali opted for socialism in the early 1960s and some semi-clandestine Marxist reading groups existed on Congolese campuses, 14 Marxism retained an exotic FL of ore, especially at the very Catholic Lovanium. Verhegen certainly played a role in the articulation of the student rhetoric at the university. As one former student remembering Lovanium's intellectual environment in the 1960s told me, researchers were ordering books for the library from the Parisian leftist editor Maspero, such as those of France Fanon. When we were reading these books in 1968, we did not even know that these people were dead. We thought they were still alive. And then, May 68 happened, of course. All those ideas, and Verhegen's conferences, and we were receiving a lot of guest speakers on campus. THR was a real circulation of ideas that made certain things impossible for us to accept. 15 Verhegen strongly opposed Lovanium's alienation from Congolese society. To a great extent, the university, created by Belgian Catholics in the mid 1950s, 
remain a foreign body in the independent Congo. The great majority of professors were foreigners. Academic life and programs totally mirrored the Belgian system. Academic authorities adopted elitism as their official religion, and a great number of students failed every year. Once six in 1964, at the occasion of Lovellium's 10th anniversary, Verheijen gave a talk, during which he attacked the institution and condemned its inability to remake itself in the post-colonial context. TH's intervention influenced the General Assembly of Students at Lovanium, AGEL, that led an impressive successful strike on the campus a few weeks later. Student leaders were in agreement with the Belgian professor that while the country needed a form of authoritarian socialism, universities had to be democratized. The strike succeeded in creating awareness and fostering unity across the campus. A great number of students took an oath and swore fidelity to the revolution and to the student movement. Nevertheless, the strike ended after one week, when AGEL believed it could obtain destruction of the university, 163 tain satisfaction through negotiations. TH's strategy ultimately failed, as professors and academic authorities allied to block most of the students. Claims.17 AGEL's unsatisfied demands reappeared regularly in the following years and the strike's memory continued to ferry student leaders' imagination. TH has greatly contributed to the antagonistic atmosphere at Lovanium, while more activists on other campuses started to mobilize their peers on a similar basis. In 1967, Lovanium's authorities expelled a few students after yet another strike on the pretext of violent acts committed against security agents. THE government ordered the Belgian Monsignor Gillen, Lovanium's rector, to reintegrate the students. He was then forced to resign and THR Kishchabannu, a Congolese, became the new rector. Students interpreted the event as a clear victory in their FGHT for the university's Africanization.18 Other signs let students think that they could VND an ally in Mobutu's regime. Mobutu's sudden rediscovery of Lumumba particularly helped galvanize the student left. Mobutu had seized power with the support of Western governments. However, influenced by some former leaders of the Congolese Student Union, UGEC, he progressively oriented his political discourse toward nationalism in 1966-1967. The regime's new rhetoric legitimized protests against the enduring colonial nature of universities. By 1968, the student movement's political platform more clearly than ever centered on the issue of decolonization. Most students were very familiar with the main issues. Code guest ion, Africanization, Democratization, and Deconcentration. The movement's main grievances only targeted power structures inside universities. Students were not opposing the state. On the contrary, they tried to mobilize the government as an ally in their attempt to promote a reform of universities. As polarizing as Patrice Lumumba remained in Congolese society, students held him as a tutelary figure. The tacit alliance between Mobutu's regime and the students was made possible by Lumumba's rehabilitation as national hero. THR quarrel resulted from an incident that also related to Lumumba. On the 4th of January 1968, 
the government organized a ceremony to celebrate the memory of the FRST Prime Minister and Martyr of Independence. The government made the serious political mistake of inviting United States Vice President Hubert Humphrey to attend the ceremony. Student activists considered Humphrey's presence as an overt provocation. The anti-imperialist students not only opposed the United States' involvement in Vietnam, but even more so, they could not stand that an American official attended this ceremony while his country was believed to be one of the main organizers of Lumumba's assassination in 1961. UGEC leaders organized a protest on the day of the ceremony to denounce this hypocrisy, and the trust between student organizations and the government disappeared. Between January and March, several leaders were arrested, detained in prison for a short time, and, for some of them, expelled from the university. One nine the crisis ended with the dissolution of UGEC by the government and the forced promo 164, unfinished business shing of JMPR, the youth branch of the state party, on campuses. TH's rupture between the student movement and Mobutu was the FRST step that made June 4th conceivable. In July 1968, Lovingham's board of directors decided to create a working group in charge of reforming the university's status for good, and putting an end to the continuous tensions on the campus. AGEL and PSCOL, the Association of Congolese Professors and Assistants, refused to integrate the working group unless it received voting rights and included a majority of Congolese participants. The crisis intensified over the fall, and in January 1969, anonymous pamphlets invited students to refuse all dialogue with Lovingham's authorities. A demonstration was planned for the end of the month, which provoked a reaction from Mobutu. He called a national conference in Goma to discuss the reform of universities. The delegates at the conference, presided over by the Minister of Education, agreed on co-responsibility as the principle that should transform the governance of all institutions of higher education. THs did not meet the demands of the most radical student groups, and especially of Lovingham's delegation. But it was at least a FRST step in the sense of the university's democratization. However, Lovanium authorities could not accept the principle of voting rights for students in all academic institutions and councils, which was the core of the co-responsibility model. Once the conference was over, they sent a memorandum to the government, making explicit that democratizing universities would ultimately threaten the authority of the government. The natural form of the nation's organs risks then to be affected by the spirit of this reform, and one should be conscious of this risk. Twenty following the reception of the memorandum, Mobutu dismissed the Minister of Education and adjourned Goma's decisions. THs alienated the students from Kinshasa and pushed them to opt for a direct confrontation with the regime through the organization of a mass demonstration in the city. Food, generational conflicts, and violence could I imagine, even one moment, being the peacemaker I have always been and the family dad that I am, could I imagine, was I saying, that those I always loved without limits would go so far as, through means unknown to the Congolese people and borrowed from abroad, to force me to announce to the Congolese nation news so sad and so tragic for some households, for some families, and for the whole nation?
21 Beyond the increasing tensions between Mobutu's government and the student movement, other reasons explain the success of the March of June 1969. Micro-political stakes also contributed greatly to convince so many students to defy a the destruction of the university, 165 regime that was not reputed for its tolerance of dissent and opposition. Clearly, many of the students who marched on June 4 cared more about the improvement of their daily life than about the more ideological slogans of student groups. Nevertheless, students' displeasure at the amount of state scholarships was highly political. The amount of scholarships in 1969 only represented a fee FTH of what students received in 1960. And, far from being abstract, slogans such as democratization directly evoked the recent clash with academic authorities over the forced assignation of disciplinary orientation to second-year students. It was a certain idea of the student and a social status that was defended on June 4 when marchers asked for a re-evaluation of their living conditions. University students were a small elite. Most of them had studied in Catholic institutions, spending many years in boarding schools, separated from their families. Many of Lovanium's students were coming from rural regions, particularly from the Jesuit high schools in Quilu, Bas Congo, and Katanga, and once in Kinshasa, they were convinced that all their efforts and sacrifices had paid off and granted them an access to the higher strata of society. Food particularly embodied the work of social differentiation that students expected from their access to higher education. The post-colonial promises of development and of social mobility could be assessed through the quality of food offered on campuses. Complaints about food expressed students' anger at the discrepancy they perceived between their real social status and the hopes they had invested in education. In 1964, the call for the strike issued by AGEL already asked both for a democratization of the university and for better conditions of living, which was expressed through a complaint about food, we cannot accept any longer a diet that is nearly unworthy of dogs 22 mundanely. Many students at Lovanian rode the university buses for their weekly visits to the sites, and used their food tickets, and negotiated their access to university dinners, to seduce the women they were meeting there. The participation of students in the demonstration of June also happened in a context of particularly tense relations between generations and of generalized indiscipline against authority figures. Yokuma Dabalai's fictional narrative on June 4, about a grave digger who happens to bury in the mass grave his own son among the other victims of the demonstration, encapsulates one dimension of the generational dynamics at play in the event, and the deceived hopes of social mobility invested in education.23 Remembering his Catholic education with Belgian missionaries and his access to colonial knowledge in the late 1950s, Philosopher V.Y. Mutimbi wrote that he then became his father's father. 24 in 1969, the generational inversion was pushed even further. In Yoka's story, not only is the son much more educated and politically conscious than his father, but it is up to the father to bury the son. Memories of the generation that came of age in the 1960s abound with stories in which authority is contested, challenged, and inverted. Anecdotes about conflicts with and rebellions against figures of authority. 
fathers and uncles, 166, unfinished business priests, teachers, are often linked to memories of the troubled political context of the Congo in the aftermath of its violent decolonization. Violence remained a prominent dimension of political life during the 1960s. It permeated social relations and figures prominently in stories about generational conflicts. The student movement throughout the 1960s also used violence to be taken seriously. The threat of violence became a way to assert the students' commitment and force their claims. Already in 1964, AGEL's call for a strike ended with the following capitalized sentences. To wait any longer. No. Resistance and violence. Yes. 25 on the 21st of May 1969, the CEK sent an ultimatum to the government in which they expressed their right and duty to defend their interests by all means necessary, including revolutionary violence with the same determination as our comrades from Africa, Latin America, Europe, and Asia. The 26th of June 4th is remembered as a pacifici demonstration, a central point for the accession of the victims of the march to the status of martyrs. Nevertheless, as early as 1971, students reinscribed violence in the narrative of June 4th. Students were forced to use violence to express their anger legitimate anger, anger created by the government. Th rough its silence in face of students' fair demands. The government invited students to leave their classrooms and to invade the streets. 27 The student movement's rhetoric of violence ultimately served the narrative of the events of June 4 authored by Mobutu's regime. Thefi child discourse on the demonstration did not deny acts of violence. It worked instead through a series of moves, to displace the responsibility of violence from the center of power, Mobutu, the government, the army, real Congolese, to its outside, the students, the politicians, fake Congolese and fake students, communists, foreigners. The regime denounced an anti-Congolese coalition, composed of student leaders, politicians, and malevolent foreigners and cemented through the circulation of money. Students were accused of mimicking the Parisian month of May and of being manipulated by foreign Maoist militants. On the 7th of June, when Congolese students at the University of Brussels decided to bring a letter protesting the recent killing to the Congolese ambassador and were received by embassy employees armed with metal rods, it was foreigners, once again, mostly students from Northern Africa, Latin America, and Europe, who were accused of having caused the trouble. Two eight from the campus to the military camp, destroying the university. The African university must understand that what is true in Europe or America may not be so in Africa and that it bears great responsibilities towards the nation which did so much for its sake. So, while the student from the old world exhausts himself the destruction of the university, 167 in paralyzing contest without causing much harm, the African student is faced after finishing his studies by the grave tasks of reconstruction and development, and any tiny loss of the little we have acquired can cause regression in the way towards progress. nine. Our education system must aim at modeling an authentically Congolese youth, that think as Congolese, reason as Congolese, act as Congolese and see the future as Congolese. 
We are now starting back from scratch, because we intend to dispose of disciplined youth and not any more of profaners and uncivil students. Th thanks to the army, to the medical inspection we have done, we can see that our youth in Lovanium was rotten, not only morally but also physically. 30 Mobutu needed to remake June 4th into an insurrectionary and foreign movement in order to restore the legitimacy of his regime. Likewise, by capturing the generational dimension of the movement and replacing himself as the nation's father, Mobutu rewrote, appropriated, and inverted the students' political rhetoric. 31 Two years after June 4th, the regime indeed totally transformed the national higher education system and offered a pyrrhic victory to the student movement. The dead students' symbolic capital allowed clandestine activists at Lovanium to maintain strong feelings against the regime on the campus after June 4th. 32 students continued to fuel Mobutu's anger. In 1970, at the occasion of the presidential elections, the only ballots against Mobutu's candidacy in Kinshasa were cast at precincts around the university. More crucially, in May 1971, pamphlets and inscriptions on the university's buildings insulted Mobutu's recently defunct mother, publicly calling her a horror who did not deserve the national burial she had just received while the bodies of their comrades had never been given a proper sepulture. So, when a commemoration of the killing was planned on the 4th of June 1971 at Lovanium, the tension between students and the regime was at its highest. After a mass and the spontaneous building of a memorial to the dead students, the army invaded the campus and arrested the Belgian priest who had led the celebration. A group of students took Lovanium's rector hostage for a few hours, asking for the release of the priest. The army intervened again. Mobutu decided to close the university, and to draft all the 3,000 students from Lovanium into the army. Most students were allowed to return to school after a few months of military service, even if they still had to wear their uniform and participate in military exercises. Fifteen student activists were condemned to lifelong sentences in prison. The higher education system was totally transformed. A national university was created, incorporating Lovanium and Kisangani, the two private universities, as well as Lubumbashi, previously the only public institution. The creation 168, unfinished business of this new entity, Universite Nacional du Zaire, UNAZA, entailed many changes for academics, administrative employees, and students. Departments and faculties were spread and redistributed throughout the country, pedagogy and psychology in Kisangani, humanities and social sciences in Lubumbashi, medicine, engineering, sciences, and law in Kinshasa. Material, moral, and political conditions of university life were strongly affected. By 1971, Mobutu had fully adopted the student movement's vocabulary and appropriated the themes of nationalism, Africanization, and decolonization. When he claimed that military service would reform syphilis-ridden students, he did not diverge from the accusation published by the radical student activists against the moral corruption of prostitution, dime novels, and pornographic movies that they saw plaguing their 
Pierce.33 When he reformed the universities, he seemed to apply the slogans that students proclaimed on June 4th before the army started to open theory against them. Mobutu's tour de force consisted of neutralizing most of the political vocabulary that the student movement had used against him. Mobutu's nationalization and reform in several ways brought concrete answers to claims long defended by student activists. To some observers, the reform constituted a decisive step in decolonizing and democratizing universities. Nevertheless, the democratization supposedly brought by the reform, i.e., democratization as massification, was irreconcilable with the democratization asked for by the student movement, democratization as code gestion. For a French anthropologist who praised the reform, universities had to be authentically Congolese which meant breaking their isolation from society. The particular status of students, their privileged access to state resources, therefore appeared as a legacy of colonialism. In this sense, the post-1971 decline of students' living standards and, more generally, the deterioration of the material conditions of teaching was not only inevitable, but welcomed. In a poor country, there is a nothing shameful for the university to be poor. On the contrary, it must be poor, and it is an act of realism to maintain it in a state of poverty. 34 The 1971 reform marked a real turmoil for universities. It was a violent disruption of the institution's daily lives. It deplaced entire departments, libraries, and laboratories from one part of the country to the other. It politicized campuses and bracketed academic freedom. It undermined the student movement for years. More students were accepted every year, while less money was spent in education. The reform provoked a physical and intellectual decay in universities that has put their survival into question many times and to this day. By an ironical twist, Mobutu nearly came to apply the program defined by a radical advocate of the student movement in 1971, for whom Congolese universities and the research conducted inside them did not serve the knowledge of real persons, real things, or real needs, but it serves the abstract speculation that creates a useful smoking screen for imperialism. The remedy was therefore radical and resembled the slogans uttered against bourgeois universities by many The destruction of the university. 169 other students around the globe, The university should be neither reformed, neither rethought, nor adapted. The university should simply be destroyed. 35 Notes DH's chapter is based on research led in the Congo and Belgium and made possible by fee, Nansel support from the Center for African and African American Studies and the International Institute at the University of Michigan. Nancy Hunt and Blalankang offer decisive advice at the different stages of the research. I am indebted to the former student activists who have shared their stories of the 4th of June 1969 with me since 2007, especially, A. Yoko Mutabali, J.B. Sanji, Sikabayalamuna, M.K. Emba, F. Candelo, V. Milimbo, T.K. Yogolelo, M. Kiko, G. Mutbala, K. Muchilmapiku, P. Malangupashi, G. Kalaba, S. Kaivalu, J. Kailamoko, P. Ngandu, J. J. Mukandi, D. Nkanza, Dr. Kalamba, M. M. Wi-Fi, 
Anobatela, and B. Chungu. 1. Raymond Williams, Keywords. A Vocabulary of Culture and Society, New York, Oxford University Press, 1976, 278. 2. On the Symbolic Capital of Dead Bodies in a Different Geographical Context, see Catherine Verdery, The Political Lives of Dead Bodies, Reburial and Post-Socialist Change, New York, Columbia University Press, 2000. 3. On Events as Unfinished Business and Stories in Need of Completion, see Vina Dawes, Life and Words, Violence and the Descent in the Ordinary, Berkeley, University of California, 2007. 4. Interview with J.B. Sanji, Kinshasa, the 7th of October 2007. 5. For a published autobiographical narrative mentioning the events in the city center, C.D. Gabembo Fumuaudadi, Delovanium A. Gravel Universite Kinshasa, in Inde Wauli Gravenzim, ed. L. Universite Don Le Divenir de l'Afrique, Paris, 2007, 6776. In the same volume, see also Nando Yerubango, Delovanium A. Graf Lacasapo via Casern, Memoir Dion Peller and Metis, 97124. 6. On the mid 1960s rebellions in the Congo, C. C. Kokeri Vidrovich, A. Forrest, and H. Weiss, E.D.S. Rebellions Revolutions of Zaire, 1963-1965, Paris, 1987. 7. C. M. Klein, Congo, K. Simmers, In Africa Report Vol. 15, No. 1, 1970, 10-12. 8. Ngubuzim M. N. L. Elite Dihams et Agent de Transformation on RDC, in Esquivalu, ed. Elites at Democratie en République Démocratique du Congo, Kinshasa, 2023. 9. On the relationship between the students and the masses in Kinshasa, and more generally on the class dimension of the student movement, C.J. Vansina, Mwasis Trials, in Daedalus Vol. 111, No. 2, 1982, 4970. 10. P. Gendun Kashama, La Mort Fate Hom, Paris. 1986, 256. 11. Quite ironically, Mobutu's death body, buried in Morocco, has also become an haunting presence in today's Congo. See Bob White, The Political Undead. Is it possible to mourn for Mobutu Zaire? African Studies Review, Volume 48, Number 2, 2005, 6586. 12. Anonymous pamphlet reproduced in P. V. Tias et al. eds. Les Etudiens Universitaires Congo Lace. Un enquête sur les attitudes socio politiques, Freiburg, 1971, 1920. 13. See notably Jade Vansina, Living with Africa, Madison, 1995, 162. 170. Unfinished Business. 14. CVY Mudem Bay, Les Corps Glorieux des Mots et des Etres, Esquis d'un Jardin et Grave la Benedictine, Paris, 
1994, p.89ff. 15. Interview with M. Kayamba, Lubumbashi, the 1st of October 2007. 16. C.B. Verhegen, LN Segment Universitario Zaire, to Lovanium A. Grave Paris, 1978. 17. C.A.R. Island Lukabongo, Cries A. Grave Lovanium, in Etude Congo Lace 6, N.4, 1964. 9. 18. C.L. Gillen, Serve Your On Acts at On Very Right, Brussels. 1988, 218. 19. Savudi Katambuk Imalanda wa Colombo, la participation des etudians zero a grave la politique, memoire presente en vue de l'obtention du grade de licence en sciences politiques et administratives, Lumbumbashi, 1974, 2425. 20. Cited in Bernadette Le Pouvars at Structures de l'Université Lovanium, Brussels, 1972. 21. Mobutu's radio allocution on the 4th of June 1969, reproduced in Le President, l'Université at Les Paris, Zaire, l'Hebdomadaire de l'Afrique Centrale en.046, June 1969, 12. 22. H. Makanda. Pawarkois at Grieve du 9 Mars 1964? Etude Congo Laces Volume 6, No. 3, 1964, 104. 23. Yokolai Mudaba, Les Fossoyer, at September au Trace Nouvelle Primes dans le cadre du Concours Radiophonique de la Maire Nouvelle de Langue Française, Paris, 1986. 24. Mudem Bay, 1974, 28. 25. Sea 1964, 105. 26. Le Croix, 1972, 77. 27. Le Forward, Journal des Cancers au Marquis, 4 June 1969, Letter d'un Tamoin, Leuven, 1969-23. 29. Message from H.E.T.H.E. President of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, read by H.E.M. Cardoso, Minister of National Education, in report of the Second General Conference of the Association of African Universities held at Lovanium University, Kinshasa. Kinshasa, 19821 ST November 1969, Khartoum, 1970, 26. 30. Mobutu's interview, reproduced in Les War, the 11th of June 1971, 3. 31. On the political significance of family metaphors under Mobutu's regime, see Michael Schatzberg, Political Legitimacy in Middle Africa, Father, Family, Food, Bloomington, Indiana University Press, 2001. 32. For a chronology of the deterioration of the relations between the student movement and the regime, and the progressive radicalization of the student demands, C.P. De Munter, Les Relations Enter les Mouvements Etudian Dette Le Régime Politique Congo Lace, Les Colic de Goma, 
A2 Africa and S2 Crisp number 126, NP Dun Munter, Analyzed de la Contestation Estudiantino Congo Kinshasa, June 1969, at Say's sequel S, A2 Africa and S2 Crisp number 132. 33, Lay Forward, the 4th of June 1971, 9. 34, P. Ernie, Sur les Centiers de l'Universite. Autobiographies d'Etudiens Zero Paris, 1977. 104. 35. E.W. Lamey, J.C. Willem, Mord de Lovenium, Les Tons Moderns Volumes, 301 302, 1971. 374. Chapter 10 Revolution on the National Stage Mexico, the PRI and the student movement in 1968 Julius Lone scholars of the 1960s generally view 1968 as the culmination of the global revolution that was that decade. In 1968 the dynamics of the post-World War II era, the realities of the Cold War, and the exigencies of governance and citizenship in a period of globalization coalesced into a groundswell of popular, oftentimes youthful protest in dozens of countries around the world. The target of these protests generally was authority, most commonly governmental, but also sometimes racial, gendered, and socioeconomic. The impact of these protests was felt socially, politically, culturally and even diplomatically as countries from the developed to developing worlds weathered the unrest and navigated a new post-1968 normalcy. The character of the 1968 revolt, however, was reflective of changes occurring globally since 1945. Populations and economies boomed. Popular access to education expanded. Bipolarity altered national, regional, and global politics and the nuclear arms race raised the stakes on each. Media, communications, and transportation eased and quickened the movement of people, products, ideas, and information from country to country. Corporate capitalism created global consumers of everything from soft drinks to music. THS, the protester in the streets in 1968 was typically a relatively affluent, educated, or in the process of being educated, young person who consumed the same news, entertainment, and commodities as his or her counterparts abroad. The result was a global ideology of protest. One the manifestations of this ideology of protest in Mexico, however, were almost wholly national. The student movement that emerged in Mexico in 1968 reflected all of the global influences mentioned above, but had a profoundly homegrown character as well. As educated, middle-class nationalists who read Herbert Marcuse, cheered Che Guevara, and wore blue jeans and miniskirts, the Mexican student protesters were products of post-World War II globalization. Two THR most forceful and ultimately effective attacks on the legitimacy of the Mexican state, however, came not from foreign ideology, but rather from a 172, unfinished business critique of the core tenets of the dominant Mexican political narrative of revolutionary nationalism. In the midst of and unquestionably influenced by the global tumult of the 1960s, the student movement and the government of President Gustavo Díaz Ordaz engaged in a battle for control of the contemporary meaning and future of the Mexican Revolution.
THE protesting students and the ruling Partido Revolucionario Institucional, PRI, had conflicting visions of what that future should be, but drew on the same history of revolutionary nationalism to justify their positions. THA waged their battle in the public spaces, the parks, the plazas, and the streets of Mexico City as well as in the hearts and minds of its residents. An institutionalized revolution it might sound strange to say that in their struggle the students and the government of President Diaz Ordaz were feeding over the future of the Mexican Revolution since the Mexican Revolution lasted a five from 1910 to 1917 and had, thus, been over four V decades. However, the Mexican Revolution was very much alive and part of the political life of 1960s Mexico because of a concept called the Institutionalized Revolution. The issues that had motivated the Fiding in 1910, effective suffrage, land redistribution, workers' rights, and economic nationalism, were more than seven years of Fiding could resolve. At the end of that feeding, and with a new constitution granting important concessions to the major stakeholders, the Mexican Revolution ended and the country started down the path toward institutionalized revolution. The institutionalized revolution is a political ideology rooted in the idea that Mexico can complete the unachieved goals of the revolution through politics and government action rather than through violence. The redistribution of land to the peasant revolutionaries for example, was a massive undertaking that, once agreed to politically, required significant government bureaucracy to accomplish. Similarly, the task of hiring and training the army of teachers needed to make good on the 1917 Constitutional Pledge of Universal Education took a generation to come to fruition. Similarly, Mexico waited until 1938 to assert its economic nationalism and expropriate its vast oil reserves from the foreign companies that had been exploiting them for decades. THS, the institutionalized revolution was a process fueled by a commitment to revolutionary ideals and tempered by the realities of size, scope, and resources. THE institutionalized revolution, however, also became a political ideology in and of itself. The revolution ushered in a new political elite whose power rested on its ongoing commitment to revolutionary ideals. The's elite deeply embedded the institutionalized revolution into the nation's political discourses and culture. Meanwhile, La Revolución itself was becoming the mythic part of the nation's political life. Undertaken by Voce Rasta La Revolución, or Insurgent Revolution on the national stage, 173 literati, La Revolución represented an effort in the 1920s and 1930s to create a revolution with a capital R and involved the writing of a fichal histories, the use of popular culture, and the manipulation of public space. It meant focusing public attention on a shared past and a collective or a fichal memory that celebrated Mexico's cultural heritage and national achievements while deflecting attention away from the problems still apparent in Mexican society. The words of President Plutarco Elias Calles in 1934 in his proclamation of Guadalajara perhaps sum up this effort best. Calles said, we have to enter a new phase, 
one that I would call the period of psychological revolution, we must enter and conquer the minds of the children, the minds of the young, because they do and they must belong to la revolution. Three the youth of 1968 were among those whose minds had been enter, ed, and conquer, ed, under the auspices of President Callas's psychological revolution. The symbols of the revolution, as promulgated by the government, created a set of social and moral values and a normative worldview of social life that had widespread acceptance throughout Mexican society and has served to legitimate the actions of the state. The belief that Mexico did indeed have an ongoing social revolution was the most important national myth. For The events of 1968 laid bare that myth and the sizable distance between it and Mexican reality. From schoolyard brawl to social protest movement The causes and trajectory of the Mexican student movement of 1968 lie in one basic circumstance, the absence of true and meaningful democracy in Mexico. Mexico under PRI leadership was a bureaucratic authoritarian regime in which the party was critical to the maintenance of hegemony. The student movement began as a result of an act of police aggression and escalated in response to mounting governmental repression throughout the summer and fall of 1968. On the 22nd of July, when riot police, the Granadras entered the Mexico City campus to break up a VGHT between youths from rival schools, the events that would culminate in Mexico's most serious social protest movement in decades and most egregious act of state-sponsored violence in a generation were set in motion. The Granadras' presence on the campus was a violation of university autonomy, a closely held protection akin to academic freedom but extending to the physical space of the campus as well as the intellectual activities taking place therein. In addition to the violation, the Granadras' typically aggressive deportments during the altercation raise claims of police brutality. TH's seemingly inconsequential event marked the beginning of the movement that would take a still undetermined number of lives, shake the nation's political establishment to its core, and haunt a generation for decades. Five protests over the Granadras violation fell on deaf governmental ears and tensions escalated. The security forces actions prompted a student DEMONSTRA 174, unfinished business shin in response to protest the brutality. The demonstration elicited a police presence and once again their efforts to control the scene proved heavy-handed. Once again, the youth protested and once again the grenade Ross showed up. The students and the riot police became locked in a cycle where violence begot protest begot violence begot protest and so on. The's student agitation became an organized movement in the wake of a July 26 confrontation with police. Two separate student marches both with a official authorization, converged and turned rowdy in downtown Mexico City. The students broke windows, overturned cars, and clashed with the riot police called in to quell the unrest. Injuries and arrests resulted and eight people were left dead. The day's events served to intensify the scale, scope, and public attention paid to the youthful dissidents. Once again protests met with no governmental concessions or admissions of wrongdoing. After July 26, 
The students organized themselves into a National Strike Council, CNH, and their agenda coalesced around the issue of police repression. 60 CNH developed a list of demands called the Pliego Petito Rio. THR demands were repeal of the law of social dissolution, removal of Generals Cueto and Mendiolia from their positions as leaders of the Grenade Ross, disbanding of the Corps of Grenade Ross, Financial compensation for the victims of police violence and for the families of those killed by the police, governmental admission of guilt, and release of all political prisoners. THE's six demands remained the centerpiece of the student agenda for the remainder of their movement. While each of these six points related directly to the repression, the youth had been suffering at the hands of government forces. Each point individually and taken together amounted to a critique of the political status quo in Mexico. 70H Pliego Petito Rio was, in FECT, a commentary on the absence of democracy in Mexico and the authoritarian nature of the Diaz Ordaz administration. As such, it opened the door to a far more sweeping indictment of the president and the PRI, an indictment in keeping with much of the rhetoric of the 1960s circulating elsewhere in the world, but also with Mexico's own revolutionary nationalism. Global Strategies Local residents while the youthful participants in the Mexican student movement protested against their government, they also contextualized the global unrest of 1968 according to Mexican political narratives. For example, signs and banners at student rallies often carried slogans in support of Ho Chi Minh and against what the Mexican youth characterized as United States imperial aggression in Southeast Asia. Many Mexicans felt their own country had too been victimized by the United States and thus felt an affinity for the plight of the people of Vietnam. While the rank and file members of the student movement integrated such in revolution on the national stage, 175 turn national issues into their demonstrations and rhetoric, they never made them their focus. The focus remained on the failings of the Mexican government. While the government attempted to delegitimize the student cause by alleging its association with foreign entities and its vulnerability to outside agitators, the students focused on Mexican issues and situated their movement in its demands within the narrative of revolutionary nationalism. If the students hoped to have any role in reforming their political system, however, they could not do it alone. THS, the students took their message to the people, made their demands public, and pressured the government for dialogue by occupying several of the most literally and symbolically significant sites in Mexico City. Nine, no site was more significant than the Zocalo. In the heart of the central Historico in downtown Mexico City, the Zocalo is perhaps the site with the strongest literal and symbolic importance in the governance of the nation. 10 The students VRST occupied the Zocalo in July and occupied it several more times during August and September. The Zocalo or Gran Tortilla as it is also known, has served since the colonial period as the locus of some of Mexico's most significant events. As poet Alfonso Chase wrote, plazas are the palaces of the people. Further, Seth Lowe argues that the plaza also provides a physical, social, and metaphorical space for public debate about governance, cultural identity and citizenship. The hotels, cafes, 
and high-end retail stores at front of Zocal locator to an affluent, oftentimes foreign clientele and, as such, further reinforce the hierarchical structure of Mexican society spatially displayed on the plaza. Framed on two sides by the National Palace and the Cathedral, the Zocalo also houses the physical manifestations of governmental and ecclesiastical authority in Mexico. As such, the Zocalo has long been the place where those seeking to combat that authority have gathered. TH's central plaza has also, however, been a place where those seeking to reinforce their authority have come. One one, for example, every year during the Independence Day celebrations, the president performs the Grito de Dolores from a balcony overlooking the plaza and the tens of thousands of revelers gathered there. One two, in addition to this traditional event, in 1968 the Zocalo also played host to the opening of the Olympic Games. THS the Zocalo occupies a prominent place not just in Mexico's history, but also in its ongoing political discourse. On certain occasions, however, the students purposely stayed out of the Zocalo. The most notable example was on Independence Day in 1968. As mentioned above, the president gave the Grito to Dolores from the Zocalo to symbolize Mexico's continued adherence to and celebration of the ideals of the liberator. Padre Miguel Hidalgo. By staying out of the Zocalo that night, the students were implicitly rejecting the authority of President Diaz Ordaz. THECNH instead held its own festivities at the University City replete with the Grotto and attended by thousands of people. One three THS, the student movement in 1968 was not rejecting the message, just the messenger. 176. Unfinished business Diaz Ordaz however refused to respond to the nation's youth with anything other than repression. THA repeated requests and outright demands for a public dialogue with the president went unanswered. Diaz Ordaz was a conservative, paternalistic politician who believed the people should look up to him, respect him, and trust him. In his view, the students' repeated criticisms and insults signaled not only disrespect and disloyalty to him, but to Mexico as well. The president and his advisors dismissed the idea of a public dialogue with the students as ridiculous. One four The students, however, believed it to be in keeping with the highest ideals of the institutionalized revolution. Meanwhile, the student movement became more organized and more sophisticated in its manipulation of public space and its own public image. No student spectacle roughly sees this maturation of the movement more clearly than the silent march. Held on the 13th of September, this demonstration included some 200,000 students and was, save the sound of thousands of pairs of marching feet, completely quiet. TH's impressive display of solidarity, discipline, and restraint marked the high point of the student movement. One five. Nonetheless, the prospect of thousands of youth pouring into the Zocalo alarmed those living and working in the Central Historico. As a result, cafes emptied, stores closed, hotels locked their doors and the crowds in the streets thinned in advance of the student marchers and their ubiquitous busloads of granadras that were sure to follow. THS, by virtue of their sheer numbers, the students controlled the public space and influenced the political discourse the moment they assembled en masse. THE positive, 
Virtually shock media coverage of the silent march signaled a shift in public perceptions of the student movement. The restraint of the individuals and the control of the leadership to successfully conduct such an event brought newfound respect to the student cause. Once six, while clearly of central importance, the silent march was but one of many student demonstrations and the Zocalo was but one of several sites the students utilized in their assault on the Diaz Ordaz government. Chapultepec Park and the Museo de Antropologia e Historia were also favored staging grounds for student marches. Oftentimes these marches proceeded down the Paseo de la Reforma, one of Mexico City's central thoroughfares and a key north-south artery. THS Student marches along the Paseo created severe traffic congestion in the downtown area. Equally if not more troubling for the government than the traffic, however, were the buildings the students passed as they marched. Reforma was home to foreign-owned commercial outlets, banks, hotels, and the United States and Soviet embassies. Several other embassies were located in the immediate vicinity and Mexico City's central tourist area, the Zona Rosa adjoin the far side of the boulevard. THS, student protests down this bustling street brought the government much unwanted attention and laid bare Mexico's political turmoil for international visitors and the nation's commercial and fee. Nancil elite. As these marches proceeded onward, they typically moved in the direction of the Alameda Park. Moving through this congested section of the city revolution on the national stage, 177 also guaranteed the students an audience, but in this case, one predominantly Mexican and less affluent. The Alameda, for example, fee led up in the afternoon with middle and working class Mexicans socializing and enjoying the respite from urban life that the park could. Provide. One seven THE's landmarks were historically and culturally relevant points of reference on the Mexico City landscape. THE Museum, for example, was a crowning achievement in the celebration of native Mexico in the post-revolutionary period and artistic chronicler of the institutionalized revolution. Diego Rivera immortalized the Alameda in his work. THE's locations, however, also were of contemporary importance due to their popularity with residents and the resultant levels of pedestrian and vehicular traffic. THS, by occupying these areas, the students guaranteed themselves not only a sizable impact, but also a symbolically significant one as well. THE most infamous of the site's student leaders frequently chose for manifestations. The Plaza de los Tres Culturas, sat adjacent to a sprawling middle-class housing complex known as Tlaloco, three miles north of downtown Mexico City. The Plaza took its name from Mexico's past and functioned as a tangible reminder of the nation's mestizo nature and heritage. The buildings surrounding the 100-square-yard plaza, high-rise apartments, government offices, a school, a church built during the colonial period, and Aztec ruins signified the nation's indigenous, Spanish, and Mexican cultures. The housing complex retained the zone's pre-conquest name. The's large plaza, which colonial Spanish chroniclers had said dwarfed the plaza at Salamanca, had been the site of Hernan Cortes's fee, now victory over the Aztec Empire. Despite the area's auspicious place in national history however, 
For modern Mexicans the name Tlatelolco is synonymous with tragedy.18 The roots of that tragedy lie in the confrontation between the students and the government over who would legitimately lay claim to the discourse of revolutionary nationalism and who would exert greater influence on its future course. While the student movement was actively engaged in critiquing Mexico's authoritarian governmental structure and thus implicitly trying to reform it, President Diaz Ordaz was not simply trying to maintain the status quo or prevent the reversal of President Callas's psychological revolution. Rather, the Diaz Ordaz administration was itself aggressively manipulating revolutionary nationalism as well. Diaz Ordaz's concern, however, was less a domestic audience than an international one. Diaz Ordaz and the PRI over which he presided sought to move Mexico increasingly toward corporate capitalism as practiced in the FRST world. THEPRI, since the 1940s had been increasingly repositioning itself to measure the ongoing success of its institutionalized revolution, not in higher pay for workers or land for peasants, but in infrastructure development, international trade, and technical innovation. The skyscraper, not the Ejido was, became the new symbol of revolutionary nationalism. One nine, most visibly in 1968, the Diaz Ordaz administration was engaging in this effort through hosting the Olympic Games. Diaz Ordaz initially opposed Mexi 178, unfinished business co's bid to host the Games, but upon being elected president became a principal architect of the Mexican Olympic agenda. The centerpiece of that agenda was to improve Mexico's international image by presenting a modern, progressive, stable nation to the world a nation that was the product of the revolution and institutionalized revolution.20 as such Diaz Ordaz and Mexican Olympic organizers used symbolic spaces images and rhetoric in much the same way the students did obviously the student movement and resultant police repression called the desired image of a modern progressive stable Mexico into question THS in the days and weeks prior to the massacre at Tlatelolco, the Olympics and the student movement collided literally and figuratively in the public spaces of Mexico City and the minds of student leaders, government officials, and would-be Olympic visitors. The students declared publicly and repeatedly, we want a revolution, not Olympic Games. Less enthusiastically, but also publicly, however, the student leadership pledged to do nothing to disrupt the games once they began.21 Nonetheless, the Mexican government, the International Olympic Committee, and foreign countries sending athletes and spectators to Mexico expressed increasing concern throughout the fall of 1968 over the security of the games. Some such concerns were no doubt earnest given the proximity of Olympic venues to campuses most prominently the location of the Olympic Stadium adjacent to the campus of the National Autonomous University of Mexico.22 The Olympic preparations exacerbated the already hostile relationship between the youth and their government because the games were emblematic of the grievances the students had with the ruling party. The athletes in the Olympic Village enjoyed a standard of living at government expense for the brief period of the games that was far better than millions of Mexicans would know in a lifetime. THEPRI, not the people, would reap any potential benefit. Similarly, 
the Mexican Olympic Committee's efforts to portray Mexico as a progressive, modern nation were in sharp contrast to the Diaz-Ordaz administration's response to the youth protests. To do as posable on La Paz, the Olympic slogan seemed more than a bit disingenuous coming from a government that was shooting students in the streets of the capital city and holding hundreds of political prisoners in its jails. Two three the student movement represented a public relations and security liability that threatened Mexico's significant political and economic investment in the games. Whether as a result of that liability or not, the student movement ended suddenly and tragically just 10 days before the start of the Olympic Games on the 2nd of October at Leitaloco when the government ordered the slaying of the people gathered there. The horror of this event forced student leaders not dead or jailed into exile and signaled the beginning of the end of the movement. It forced the student activists out of the public spaces and the dialogue they had attempted to start with the government out of the national discourse. Meanwhile, the Olympics opened with fanfare, celebrations, the release of doves, and revolution on the national stage. 179 hearty congratulations to Mexico on a job well done. The Olympics, it seemed, signaled Mexico's arrival on the world stage and the success of the Games became an enduring source of pride for the nation. The massacre, however, signaled the end of the president's legitimacy and that of his party and his political style. The student movement, though brutally defeated, in fact, because of that brutal defeat, succeeded in ushering in an era of gradual political reform and democratic opening. It changed the way Mexicans thought about their government and in so doing changed the government itself. Gustavo Díaz Ordaz's successor, Luis H. Avaria, moved back toward the PRI's populist roots and future presidents actively sought to incorporate intellectuals and members of the generation of 1968 into the state bureaucracy. The collective popular voice raised in 1968, and temporarily silenced at Leitaloco, returned stronger and louder to help set the course for the nation's future. The chronologically separated by just 10 days, the gulf between the Tlatelolco massacre and the Olympic Games spanned a great distance. Th at distance was the difference between the promise and the reality of the Mexican Revolution institutionalized as it was in 1968. The use of revolutionary rhetoric, ideology, and symbolism by both the students and the government reflects the broad-based acceptance of revolutionary nationalism. Consensus as to what revolutionary nationalism should look like in 1968, however, was harder to come by. What was clear in 1968 is that while domestic politics were inexorably linked to international circumstances, ideologies, and agendas, the power of Mexican revolutionary nationalism was undeniable. THEFGHT for control of the institutionalized revolution in 1968 was made more intense by the international climate, but was a product of uniquely Mexican realities. Notes 1. See Paul Berman, A Tale of Two Utopias. The Political Journey of the Generation of 1968, New York, W. W. Norton and Company, 1996, David Cowd, The Year of the Barricades, A Journey to H. Rough 1968, New York, Harper and Row Publishers, 1988.
Dominic Cavallo, A Fiction of the Past, THE 60s in American History, New York, St. Martin's Press, 1999, Robert V. Daniels, Year of the Heroic Guerrilla, World Revolution and Counter-Revolution in 1968, Cambridge, M.A., Harvard University Press, 1989, Karen Dubinsky, et al., E.D.S., New World Coming, THE 60s and the Shaping of Global Consciousness, Toronto, Between the Lines, 2009, Carol Fink, Philip Gassert, and Detlef Junker, 1968 THE World Transformed, Washington, D.C., and Cambridge, THE German Historical Institute and Cambridge University Press, 1998, Greg Grandin, THE Last Colonial Massacre, Latin America in the Cold War, Chicago, University of Chicago Press, 2004, Gilbert Joseph and Danielle Spencer, eds. In From the Cold, Latin America's New Encounters with the Cold War, Durham, Duke University Press, 2008, George Katsiafi Cass, the Imagination of the New Left, A Global Analysis of 1968, Boston, South End Press, 1987, Martin Klimke and Joachim Charloth, eds. 1968 in Europe, A History of Protest and Activism, 180, Unfinished Business 1956-1977, New York, Palgrave Macmillan, 2008, Arthur Marwick, THE 60s, Cultural Revolution in Britain, France, Italy, and the United States, c. 1958-1974, Oxford, Oxford University Press, 1998, Eric Zolov, Refried Alvis, THE Rise of the Mexican Counterculture, Berkeley, University of California Press, 1999. 2. Herbert Marcuse, One-Dimensional Man, Studies in the Ideology of Advanced Industrial Society, Boston, Beacon Press, 1964. 3. T. H. Olmos Benjamin, La Revolución, Mexico's Great Revolution as Memory, Myth, and History, Austin, University of Texas Press, 2000, 13, 14, 20, 32, 37, 95, 96, 99, 110, 148. 4. Ruth Burns Collier, Popular Sector Incorporation and Political Supremacy, Regime Evolution in Brazil and Mexico, in Sylvia Ann Hewlett and Richard S. Weinert, eds. Brazil and Mexico, Patterns in Late Development, Philadelphia, Institute for the Study of Human Issues, 1982, 58, 76. 5. The 22nd of July altercation is generally regarded as the start of the movement because a direct line of action can be drawn from it to the rapid and steady intensify cation of the crisis. It is worth noting however, that the 22nd of July was not the FRST confrontation between students and the Grenade Ross and that police on student violence had occurred at least as early as the 6th of July. For a chronological summary of the movement and its antecedent events, see Gilberto Guevara Nibla, La Democracia en la Calle, Cronica del Movimiento Estudiantil Mexicano, Mexico City, Siglo the 21st, 
1988. 6. Ibid. 7. Elaine Carey, Plausitive Sacrifices, Gender, Power, and Terror in 1968 Mexico, Albuquerque, University of New Mexico Press, 2005, 54. 8. Virtually any source that depicts the student marches reveals this Mexican contextualization of international events. For example, see Elena Poniatowska, Massacre in Mexico, Colombia, University of Missouri, 1992. 9. Jonathan Kandel, Mexico's Megalopolis, in Gilbert Joseph and Mark Suchman, eds. I saw a city invincible. Urban Portraits of Latin America, Wilmington. Scholarly Resources, 1995, 183-187. 10. Seth M. Lowe, On the Plaza, THE Politics of Public Space and Culture, Austin, University of Texas Press, 2000, 113-114. 11. IBIDZ. 3133-119-120-200. 12. For a discussion of the Independence Day celebrations, see William H. Beasley and David E. Laurie, eds. Viva Mexico! Viva la Independencia! Celebrations of September 16, Wilmington, D.E. Scholarly Resources, Incorporated, 2001. 13. IBID, low, 2000, 3133, 113, 120, Pony 1992, 331. 14. On Diaz Ordaz, see Herbert Braun, Protests of Engagement, Dignity, False Love, and Self-Love in Mexico during 1968, Comparative Study of Society and History, July 1997 v. 19 number 1, 511-549, Enrique Kraus, Mexico Biography of Power, A History of Modern Mexico, 1810-1996, New York, Harper Collins Publishers, 1997, 678-737, Salvador Novo, La Vida on Mexico on El Periodo Presidential de Gustavo Díaz Ordaz, two volumes, Mexico City, Conoculta, 1998. 15. Ricardo Garibay, El Movimiento Estudiantil, Crisis de Perdicipación, Oino, 1479, 28 September 1968, 1363. 16. Ibid. 17. El Problema Agoniza. Oi number 1477, the 14th of September 1968, 5154, Donald C. Hodges, Mexican Anarchism After the Revolution, Austin, University of Texas Press, Revolution on the National Stage, 181-111-146, Ricardo Garibay, El Movimiento Estudiantil, Crisis de Perdicipación. Oi number 1479, the 28th of September 1968, 13, 63. 18, low, 2000, 113-114, Mexico 68, Tlaloco October 2nd, 
Kaja 3, Exp. 6, 15, P110, Ludlow, AGN. 19. C. Jonathan Schliffer, Palace Politics, How the Ruling Party Brought Crisis to Mexico, Austin, University of Texas Press, 2008. 20. For Mexico's Olympic Ambitions and Accomplishments, see the Avery Brundage Collection. Published sources that provide analysis of Mexico's Olympic agenda and details about the Games themselves include Kevin B. Witherspoon, Before the Eyes of the World, Mexico and the 1968 Olympic Games, DeKalb, Northern Illinois University Press, 2008, Joseph L. Arbena, Hosting the Summer Olympic Games, Mexico City, 1968, in Joseph L. Arbena and David G. LaFrance, eds. Sport in Latin America and the Caribbean, Wilmington, D.E. Scholarly Resources, Incorporated, 2002, 133-143. 21. Upsurge and Massacre in Mexico, 1968. Part 1. The Youth Revolt, Revolutionary Worker No. 975, the 27th of September 1998, 16. 22. Brundage Collection. R.S. 26,020,000, Ring 137. 23. C. Ibid. N. Witherspoon, 2008, R. Benna, 2002. 24. For information on the Tlatelolco Massacre, C. Sergio Aguayo Quazada, 1968, Los Archivos de la Violencia, Mexico City, Editorial Grigelbo. 1998, Raul Alvarez Garin, La Ella de Tlatelolco, Una Reconstrucción Histórica del Movimiento Estudiantil de 68, Mexico City, Editorial Grigelbo, 1998, René Avilas Fabula, El Gran Solidario de Palacio, Mexico City, Distribuciones Fontamara, S.A., 1998, Julio Scherer Garcia and Carlos Monsive, Parte Guerra Tlatelolco 1968, Documentos del General Marcelino Garcia Berrigan, Los Hechos y la Historia, Mexico City, Nuevo Siglo, Aguilar, 1999, Upsurge and Massacre in Mexico, 1968, Part 1, The Youth Revolt. Revolutionary Worker Number 975, the 27th of September 1998, Mexico Connect. HTTP colon slash slash max underscore history slash tlatlolco slash tlatlolco one html Upsurge and Massacre in Mexico 1968, Part 2, Blood at Tlatelolco. Revolutionary Worker No. 976, the 4th of October 1998, Mexico Connect, http colon slash max underscore slash history slash tlatelolco slash tlatelolco 2 ehtml 25. Schlafler, 2008. Jorge G. Castaneda. Perpetuating Power, How Mexican Presidents Were Chosen, New York, New Press, 
2001. Chapter 11 Student Activism and Strategic Identity The Anti-Communist Student Action Front Kami in West Java, Indonesia. 1965-1966 Stephanie Sapuuitiage's chapter examines the collective identity processes of the anti-communist student action front, KAMI, formed in the aftermath of the, the 1st of October 1965 coup in Jakarta. After a discussion of events just prior to and following the coup, I describe and analyze the collective identity processes at work in the formation of this organization. I regard collective identity as a movement's conceptualization of self, or itself defination, as a movement, which is in turn particularly dependent on cognitive frameworks of action, or action frames utilized by movement participants. One A movement self defination also includes assumptions about boundaries delineated between allies of the movement and its adversaries. Kami protests relied on repertoires that replicated themes in nationalist history, particularly a narrative of young patriotism from the Indonesian Revolution in 1945. Kami activities and marches were deliberately nationalistic and emphasized students' patriotism and identity as opponents of political corruption and tyranny. THs would not seem particularly remarkable except for the immense bloodshed and violence that formed the backdrop to Kami actions. It is estimated that approximately 500,000 Indonesians lost their lives in the killings that took place throughout Central and East Java and Bali in violence carried out by vigilantes and the Army's special forces from November 1965 to June 1966, as the countryside ran awash in bodies that clogged rivers and rice paddies. The urban streets of Jakarta were the scenes of student demonstrations orchestrated by army generals to provide legitimacy for a ruthless seizure of power. Kami's emergence was supported by the Indonesian Armed Forces, ADRA, who had recruited among Catholic and Muslim students at the prominent University of Indonesia among students opposed to Sukarno's initiatives in the guided democracy period, 1959-1963. Kami helped accomplish ADRI's objectives of wrestling power from Sukarno during a period when Sukarno had dominated national politics through his own action fronts and his well-known ability to move an audience through speech and rhetoric. Kami AC Student Activism and Strategic Identity, 183 TVDs, Marches and Demonstrations helped establish new symbols designed to supplant the period of guided democracy. Student protests relied on symbolic campaigns to demonstrate the ineptitude of Sukarno and his cabinet. Student protests pointedly cast blame at the presumptive culpability of the Indonesian Communist Party PKI, in the alleged assassination of nine army generals and accused the PKI of sabotage and treachery. Kami's development as an action front demonstrated how its identity shifted from networks of oppositional speech to actual organizations capable of public actions, symbolic protests and recruiting and socializing new members. Kami's collective identity consisted of particular narratives and repertoires that emphasized students' duty and patriotic spirit. At times, Actions resonated with themes from nationalist history, such as the duplication of the 1927 Oath of Youth that Kami students used as a template to declare their intent to protect the country from the PKI. Other actions were designed to demonstrate a unified presence of youth in the streets. During an era when students routinely served as an audience for Sukarno's addresses, 
marches and public demonstrations around the capital city, Kami rallies demonstrated a counter-narrative to Sukarno's power. The spectacle of military-directed student opposition followed years of army mistrust in civilian leaders. Student graffiti against stupid government ministers were not just immature slogans. They reflected the sentiment shared by both students and the army's young anti-communist FICER Corps in civilian leaders' incompetence. Analysis of Kami demonstrations shows the symbiotic role between Kami and ADRI. Students marched on the streets in brigade-style formation. THR marches often followed routes past the private homes of various ministers in Sukarno's cabinet en route to symbolic demonstrations at gas stations and the oil ministry, where students could protest rising gas prices. Student graffiti scrawled public insults against parliamentary ministers closely linked with Sukarno's policies of importing rice. Kami's identity, however, was one that was not entirely under the army's control. It was also rooted in close identification with academics, many of whom were similarly opposed to Sukarno and his cabinet's economic and cultural policies. The Kami sponsored seminar on the economy at the University of Indonesia. The leader, the man in the gun, was a forum which served to legitimize the new regime as well as to signal a shift in political opportunities for formerly dissident economists exiled in the guided democracy period. Despite early support for the new order, academic support for the new order was short-lived, especially as the regime postponed long-awaited elections and electoral reforms. The Kutiechi events of 1 October 1965 marked the end of a year of rising tensions on college campuses throughout West Java. Politicized under Sukarno's guided to 184, unfinished business democracy program, University students were opposed to the curriculum changes and indoctrination implied by new requirements imposed in 1963 under new directives known as the Political Manifesto, or Manipal USTEK. The growing number of student groups active with the PKI known as Communist Concentrations or CGMI on campus alarmed both traditionally Muslim and Christian students who clashed openly on campus with leftist students over screenings of foreign movies and imported science and economic textbooks. In the post-coup period, the army's role was further institutionalized in universities where the army had formed cooperative bodies with students ostensibly to train them through marching drills for military campaigns in West Syria and Malaysia. The September 30th coup itself was triggered by the discovery of the bodies of six dead generals were discovered in a dry well at the Halim Air Force Base outside of Jakarta. A group of left-wing generals who called themselves the Revolutionary Council, all of whom were identified as top-ranking generals who led luxurious lives, contrary to the national ideology, claimed responsibility for the coup, which was designed at eliminating counter-revolutionary elements in the armed forces. THEABRI's response to the coup was initiated by Saharto, who was one of two senior commanders still alive and who commanded the Army's strategic reserve, Kostrat, units who would assume the task of establishing control over Jakarta under martial law. Two classes were disrupted in Jakarta by martial law. At ITB students continued to go to campus but stopped attending classes. Three during this time, 
university student leaders met informally in private homes and in various organizational headquarters. For mobilization of students in these early days came from those groups that had grievances during the pre-coup period. Confrontations between the leftist student communist concentrations, CGMIA, and the Muslim Student Association, HMIA, had become worse. In 1964, HMI had been deposed from the Presidium of the Indonesian Student Federation, PPMI, by CGMI, whose membership had grown in the 1963-1964 period to upward of 32,000,005 and whose growth had come at the expense of HMI. Among their immediate actions following the coup, the army attempted to mobilize anti-communist youth into an organized federation. TH's effort depended on demobilizing PKI groups, particularly its leaders and literary, LEKRA and women's groups, Germany. Kami's ability to act was a function of its collective identity developed under close army supervision. Kami was closely allied to the army officers, who became the dominant forces in Indonesian politics over the next decade including Suharto, who was heralded as bringing order to Jakarta in the wake of the coup, the former army chief of staff, General Nasushin and Sarwa Edhai, paratrooper commander and inactive Kami promoter. Kostrad commanders Idris and Saro as well as Intel members Ali Topo and Yogazu Gamma acted as intermediaries with student groups at the University of Indonesia. ADRI also provided students with protection and supplies. Six Kami was central to the Army's efforts to promote a student opposition to the student activism and strategic identity, 185 Indonesian Communist Party and against Sukarno. Contact between students at the University of Indonesia, such as with Sohok Guy and Kodam Colonel Widono, established the Army's preference for what Guy recognized as students' disciplined nature. Reacting to the coup, youth mobilization against PKI and PKI youth collective identity in the immediate post-coup period was constructed around a narrative of an anti-PKI sentiment and revenge seeking in the days immediately after 1 October. Seven student groups reportedly used this as an opportunity not only to suppress leftist communist opponents more effectively but also as a chance to recast the overlapping structures of the student youth world in forms more suited to their minority interests. Success, of course, depended upon the coincidence of their limited objective with those of major national forces such as the Sahardo group and other sympathetic elements. Eight vigilante acts were openly encouraged and students played prominent roles in the efforts to destroy the private home of PKI chairman DNA'd and ransack the PKI youth headquarters. Nine in the days that followed the army sanctioned purges of communist youth groups, closing their organizations on campus and rounding up members of the PKI's women's group, GERWANI, and members of its literary organizations, LEKRA. Anti-PKI youth groups were mobilized outside Jakarta in the provincial capital of Central Java, YOGYAKARTA.10. Anti-PKI youth also congregated in groups on street corners outside PKI headquarters in 
Solo.11 in Yogia, brawls between PKI youth and venue-sponsored youth groups took place, while in Bandung students held rallies at CGMI's headquarters the day after the big HMI rallies in Jakarta. 12-THE rector of ITB reportedly issued orders forbidding students affiliated with any of the leftist organizations, CGMI, the PKI youth group Pemudarakyat, and communist groups such as Lekra and Jorwani, from attending classes, seminars, borrowing books, or being physically present on campus.13 at the Institute of Technology in Bandung, students formed night watch contingents on campus to enforce these orders, and a battalion of students was ordered to assemble. Campus communication was interrupted by the closing down of the student radio station and the daily newspaper. ITB News.14 Initial opposition in Jakarta came from HMI and PMKRI, the Christian Student Organization.15 HMI urged its members to work closely to crush Gestapo and the September 30th movement organizationally, all communists and anyone however faintly sympathetic to either to its roots. 16 THEPMKRI's parent 186, unfinished business party also had significant grievances with the guided democracy system. The Indonesian Christian Party, PRKINDO, had been banned by General Nasution for not conforming to retooling of the political party system in 1960.17 PMKRI, like HMI had also been Presidium members with significant grievances against CGMI. Compared to HMI it was much smaller, with a membership estimated at several thousand compared to HMI's nearly 100,000 members.18 Abdul Gafur was a medical student and HMI member in 1965. He recalled HMI's grievances had begun as early as July 5th. 1960, when the rector of University of Jember Professor Hutrek declared HMI was forbidden to meet. Only at state universities after 1960 was HMI active. HMI was up against other student groups like CGMI, GMNI and Germindo. Hutrek's commands to destroy HMI let the spark. 19 after the coup. HMI was the most vocal advocate for a quick response.20 A media frenzy accompanied the desire to purge and HMI members recalled pictures of the mutilated bodies of the slain generals were disseminated through newspapers and televisions accompanied by anti-communist propaganda from the army. For the FRST time in years open criticism of the PKI was legitimized and HMI was one of the FRST groups to exploit this opportunity. 21 leaders of HMI and the Catholic student group, PMKRI, called for a united student front against these actions.22 A number of other student groups joined in these events. Students recalled that HMI was the FRST to act. It was, as Roger Paget, 1970, argues, best to act. HMI's Advantage in the fall of 1965 was clear innocence of any September 30th movement involvement and freedom from political party strings. TH's freedom which had served the group well in the aftermath of PRRI Permesta once again proved to be a special advantage in the post-October 1 period. HMI was not a federation or a front and therefore had no incriminating friends. It had great prominence nationally both as the enemy of PKI and a strong, 
relatively independent-minded organization in its own right. Twenty-three others soon followed HMI, THE Muslim Party, Nadlatul Ulama, and its student youth groups issued a joint statement condemning the coup and the, the 30th of September movement. In the FRST days after the coup, protests against the PKI were allowed, as were students' actions directed at ransacking and burning down the PKI party's offices in Jakarta. PKI chairman DNA'd its house, the headquarters of the PKI sponsored women's group Jorwani, 25 and SOBSI. The Federation of Labor. 26 HMI organized the FRST public protest on the 5th of October, demanding that the PKI be banned. 27 by the end of the FRST week of October, HMI and other students demolished the headquarters of the PKI and the home of its FRST secretary, DNA'd while armed detachments of the Indonesian army looked student activism and strategic identity, 187 on. 28 Paget's descriptions of this period suggest certain actions. Tracking down communist leaders, sacking their houses, attacking the headquarters of various leftist organizations, including the PPMI building in Jakarta, were carried out by masses of youth in partially spontaneous outbursts. 29 Paget, 1970, described these events as evidence of intensifying contacts and a mutually beneficial relationship developing between certain military leaders and young people. 30 THE military did not immediately restrict all youth groups because, as Vince Boudreau, 2005, argued, the army required local youth groups to help their efforts to organize social support against President Sukarno. ADRI agents worked closely with students and rural Islamic institutions to build anti-communist groups. 31 youth, in particular, were described as useful to the military because they could take part in actions that would not identify perpetrators with ABRI agents. Youth provided a core of vigilantes for the performance of some tasks such as nighttime interrogations and seizures of property, deemed by officers to be inappropriate activities for their own troops. The Army, in part, gave the students much needed protection. TH's political symbiosis came to be called the Partnership. It was at the core of the movement which crushed the PKI and eventually displaced Sukarno and his guided democracy system. Counter-mobilization, like the kind undertaken by pro-Sukarno group GMNI, were heavily symbolic, stressing their group's patriotism and calls for civic cleanup campaigns, national and regional conferences and mass initiations. 32 To emphasize their patriotism, the youth group F.I. Leotet with Sukarno's party, the PMI, pledged their loughty and allegiance to the president. The emphasis on GMNI's rallies was likely to demonstrate that Sukarno could also quickly mobilize youth in his support. 33 Kami's collective identity Kami activities and marches were deliberately nationalistic and played on sentiments and actions that were associated with themes from the Indonesian Revolution. Its oppositional consciousness, at FRST explicitly anti-communist, also changed through episodes of contention. Kami marches and demonstrations helped legitimize the army's consolidation of power by establishing a narrative that the military was capable of restoring order and economic health.
Kami marches were designed to undermine civilian power in the parliament and to question the legitimacy of Sukarno, who called for calm in the days following the coup. Kami marches, seminars, and demonstrations helped the military 188 unfinished business demonstrate that it was capable of tackling problems that civilian leaders had long neglected. While there was an identifiable element of Kami that was evident through its street marches and protests, Kami became a movement that demanded more than simply a ban on the PKI. By late January 1966, the organization was committed to the articulation of ideas of sweeping reform, to removing ministers from Sukarno's cabinet, and to stabilizing in-flight ion and reorienting the Indonesian economy toward integration in the global economy. Three four to coincide with the commemorations of the, the 29th of October, Oath of Youth Day, Kami was a fight really founded as a federation with territorial level of command and organization. 35 students asserted that they were essentially committed to stronger action against the PKI and its mass organizations, newspapers, and ideology. 36 THA also stated that they were completely and unreservedly behind HP, the president supreme commander of the armed forces great leader of the revolution Bunkarno, who was still president although in name only. THE's actions provide important clues to how Kami would act. First, they stood behind all ABRI objectives. Second, Kami did not outwardly articulate any of the grievances against Sukarno until late January 1966. THE reflected the fact that Sukarno was nominally in charge during this period. However, it also demonstrated that Kami was controlled by the army. The particular way that Kami framed its actions as pledges or pleas to the army to carry out their demands while stating their sincerity demonstrated the subordination of Kami to the army's directives. By January 1966, Kami's street protests and demonstrations were evidence of an expansion of themes to Kami's earlier anti-PKI identity to include concern for economic matters 37 as well as criticism of Sukarno.38 Student marches were composed almost entirely of students and professors, with protests targeted at a variety of strategic sites, the homes of government ministers in the elite neighborhoods of Jakarta like Menteng, or at government ministries. When students did assemble outside the private homes of cabinet ministers, they were greeted without hostility. 39 student marches began at the University of Indonesia with students and faculty leaving the university in the morning 40 in long columns or lines, emulating military discipline often in silence. While professors and students marched together, 41 students deferred to their professors who led the way.42 students shouted slogans, such as, destroy the PKI, hang indecisive ministers, bring down the price of gas. 43 THE Kami marches were regimented walks through Jakarta streets to specify C locations.44 ABRI soldiers helped stop traffic when it was necessary and who provided students with water, snacks, and trips back to campus when people became too tired. 45 Occasionally, students blocked Rafaisi by sitting down and singing songs or chanting slogans. One such chant went as follows Student activism and strategic identity, 
189 who has never been on a bus? Who wants to raise the price of gas? Who likes making empty promises? Who thinks everyone should eat only corn? Who are the ones who like to throw money around? Who saves our national wealth in overseas accounts? Ministers do you want to be ruled by people like this? 46 from 10 to the 15th of January, students march daily from the campus in central Jakarta to various locations, including Parliament. The 13th of January 1966, the Hotel Indonesia. The 12th of January 1966, the old Jakarta neighborhood of Kota near the docks. The 14th of January 1966, the Presidential Palace, the 10th of January 1966, and the Oil Ministry Pertamina, the 11th of January 1966. According to one account, students marched down Jakarta's main thoroughfares to outside the Presidential Palace. We sat down on the ground facing the Kukrabarawa Regiment guarding the palace and shouted, ABR I live. 47 One of the FRST Street protests Kami sponsored took place on the 10th of January 1966 following the increase in gas fares from 4 to 250 RP per litre. 4.8 THE demonstration took two days to coordinate and began at the University of Indonesia's medical school at the campus located in the Salem area of Jakarta. THE march started early with students congregating by 8 o'clock in the morning. 49 One observer estimated that more than 200 students took part in these marches. 50 Participating in the Kami marches heightened students' awareness of their own unique identity as both provocateurs and moral opponents to a regime entrenched in corruption and scandal. 51 Students wanted to be seen by the people. 52 THE people will see and they will know that students don't just live in an ivory tower. I was the architect of this long march, although in fact I didn't do that much. I wanted students to come and join us, to boycott class and forget about their lectures for a day. It's important to show the people that the university is patriotic. 53 with the exception of protests outside the presidential palace, the oil ministry, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Students' actions were largely against the main ministers within Sukarno's administration, Chairul Saleh, the coordinating minister for economic affairs, and Sabendrio, the minister of foreign affairs. During these protests, students chanted, near or far, 200, referring to the new bus fares. Lower the price of gas DPR Benchy. Parliament is powerless. 190. Unfinished business. Government ministers are stupid. J. Rule is a stupid minister. 54. The Kami repertoire often involve the written word either through chance like the one above or expressed through hit and run tactics such as graffiti written in ink or with colored felt tip. Pens.55 As an indication of the lawlessness of the early days of Kami protests in January 1966, the walls of government buildings, the parliament, and fence posts along the gates outside parliament were filled with angry scribbles. We put up our posters, wildly yelling in the streets, stop importing wives. One minister, one wife, C-H-A-E-R-U-L Salah is stupid, all of this before 10.00 clock. 56 Chairul Saleh was coordinating minister for the economy and his decision to raise bus fares was one that particularly angered students. As Harz Jabakshar noted, 
The relationship between the students and the central government was aggravated by Sally's actions, who attempted to bring some order to the wide discrepancy between a fichal and black market prices by increasing the price of gasoline from 4 to 250 rp a liter. Most of the students, who were already feeding a frantic struggle against the high cost of living in the urban centers, suffered severely from the increase in the price of gasoline. 57 Anger over gas prices was no doubt behind the sequence of protests in which students seized gas stations in the old Jakarta neighborhood of Kaona. 58 Th's event, unlike the Kami marches and graffiti, did not spread throughout the city, suggesting it was an isolated incident rather than the development of a new form of protest. 59 Its meaning was to protest the coordinating minister for economic affairs Chayrul Salas' clumsy decision to increase fares from 4 RP to 250 RP.60 THR students began to block the entrances to the gas stations. I started to think that students could be perceived negatively by the public. THE army could also come down on us if we blocked the gas stations. It was a moot point it turned out. The plan to block the gas stations didn't happen that day. 61 THE blocking of gas stations was not repeated. Whether this was because students were ordered not to repeat this action is unclear. Student marches did not return, at any rate, to the Kota neighborhood of Jakarta. Instead, the following day student marches were directed toward the Bank of Indonesia where students were on top of cars and borrowed bikes to form barricades. THA were told not to. Eventually the army threw tear gas, apologizing FRST to the students. From the looks of it, the military supports the students. 62 THA protests remain good-humored throughout. We continued along, blocking traffic when we could. One car was refusing to stop, there was almost an accident. THE driver student activism and strategic identity, 191 of the car, an important person, got out and started to yell, let us pass. THR was no commando in sight, just about 15 students. We let him through. 63 Despite student protests against stupid ministers, there was not much animosity between students and ministers. From Geese Journal we know that students were often greeted warmly, with smiles or waves from ministers or were offered rides by them. 64. In front of Ruslan Dalgany's house we yelled, Long live Mr. Ruslan. He had a good name among students, he had once joined Sharia in the PSI, but then joined the PNI. Outside the buildings of Parliament, we sat down on its steps in our dirty clothes, students started scribbling on the walls, ministers th row money around, destroy the PKI, ministers, don't only fee nd out the hard way. Indeed a lot of slogans were dirty, but this was the voice of the people. THS is what people saw all the time. Opportunistic politicians and empty slogans.65 Recruitment to Kami By the end of January, the student movement had expanded beyond its initial organization and participants. Not only had students developed a series of repertoires that became affiliated with the Kami identity, these were also used by new groups eager to exploit or continue Kami's popularity.
even groups opposed to Kami utilized the public poster campaigns in graffiti that Kami FRST utilized. Kami's activities and reputation created new incentives for new members who were eager to join the action front in January 1966. As pro-Sakarno youth converged on Jakarta streets in late January, Kami began to expand beyond its original size and composition of college students. By the end of January 1966 it changed from a protest movement involving only college students to one increasingly joined by high school age youths. The entry into activism by a much larger and less disciplined contingent of youth shows the scripted nature of the FRST protests organized by Kami. At the end of January 1966, Kami protests were attended by more than simply Kami organized groups. About 3,000 high school students formed new action fronts such as KAPPI, Kisachorn Aksi Pamuda Pelajar Indonesia. 79 instructors from universities in Bandung 66 formed the action front KASI, Kisachul Naxi Sarhana Indonesia.67 KASI soon expanded beyond its Bandung contingent to include KASI groups at universities across Jakarta including of about 100 University of Indonesia instructors and their graduates.68 from the end of January through March 1966, a period when Kami was in fact banned and classes resumed, new battle lines were drawn between groups 192, unfinished business who had begun with the FRST organized actions of Kami protests in January and those who became involved as the movement developed in late January. THE's groups included KAPPI and KASI. When Kami students returned to classes for a week in February, KAPPI students staged an impressive demonstration in support of Kami at the University of Indonesia. 69 While initial protests in January 1966 had focused on early demands of Kami called the Tritura or TH3 people's demands, 70 Kami actions after February focused more specifically on Sakarno and his cabinet ministers. Student groups began to also feed GHT each other and battle the palace, guards.71 Kami students increasingly sought to defend their movement in the context of actions that had occurred in the past. The counter-revolutionary actions of the coup leaders and the PKI that were supposedly benefiting from the unrest.72 By March 1966, Kami had helped create and legitimize a new role for the student movement. Kami AFFI Leotat newspapers, journals, art exhibitions, and student-initiated radio stations also created a new sense of energy on campus that appealed to a wide range of students eager to be part of the new movement. In this way, Kami generated a new interest in the student activism that appealed to students' personal identities and creative inclinations.73 THS while students' antagonism to communist concentration CGMI had created in the pre-coup period an initial interest in joining Kami, many students remained involved in the Kami movement long after Kami had ceased to function for its participatory culture and student-driven activities, newspapers and journals. Having been a member of Kami was also to acquire, for a short while, a new sense of status that conferred upon students in the new order positions of some political prominence. THR4, Kami created both a series of short-term opportunities to act, 
initially based on its anti-communist credentials, as well as longer-term commitments among activists who took part in Kami marches and meetings. While initially Kami was formed to demand a ban on the PKI, in the long term, Kami mobilization created new opportunities for the student movement as a whole and led to the creation of a student movement that attached prestige and status to membership and participation in student demonstrations and mobilization. Notes 1. I understand social movements as built out of shared social solidarities, strategies and grievances. My conceptualization of social movements is shaped by Bert Klanderman's 1992 For collective action to be accomplished, a group must frst define itself as a group, and its members must develop shared views of the social environment, share goals and shared opinions about the possibilities and limits of collective action. See Bert Klanderman's THE Social Construction of Protest and Multi-Organizational Fields, in Alan D. Morris and Carol McClurg, Frontiers of Social Movement THE Erie, New Haven, Yale University Press, 1992-77-103 Inverta Student Activism and Strategic Identity, 193 Taylor and Nella Van Dyke. Get Up, Stand Up, Tactical Repertoires of Social Movements, Blackwell Companion to Social Movements. EDS. David A. Snow, Sarah A. Sewell and Hans-Peter Creasy. Oxford, UK. Wiley Blackwell, 2004, 262-293. Understanding social movements as narratives is part of my conceptualization and I draw on the insights of Francesca Polides. It was like a fever. Storytelling. Protest in Politics, Chicago, University of Chicago Press, 2006. 2. THE coup has been the subject of much academic analysis. Among the FRST to present analysis of the events were two American academics, Benedict Anderson and Ruth McVie, a preliminary analysis of the October 1, 1965 coup in Indonesia, Modern Indonesia Project, Ithaca, NY, Cornell University Press, 1971, in a view which would become known as the Cornell THSS. Anderson in McVeigh's 1971 study was a frank assessment of the data available in the days and months immediately following the coup and their analysis includes radio transmissions, interviews with key actors, and summaries of newspaper articles around the event. Analysis of ABRI's role in the counter-coup that followed the September 30th killings is discussed in ample detail in Harold Crouch's 1978 classic THE Army and Politics in Indonesia, Jakarta, Equinox Publishing 2007. 3. Noted Abu Rizal Bakri, after the 30th of September we stopped coming to classes, we went only for attendance and then left. Our parents were a little concerned, when would we have time for classes if we were always demonstrating? See Hasarul Mokhtar, Marekadari Bandung, Burjarakin Mahasiswa Bandung, 1960-1967, London, Alumni, 1998, 484. 4. Roger Paget, Youth and the Wayne of Sukarno's Government, PhD Dissertation, Cornell University, 1970-219. 5. Harja W. Bachtiar, 
1967, Indonesian Students and Their Political Activities, paper presented at the Conference on Students and Politics, sponsored by the Center for International Affairs, Harvard University and the University of Puerto Rico, Condado Beach Hotel, San Juan, Puerto Rico, 27 the 31st of March 1967, 33. 6. Bashtiar, 1967. 7. Th's Fiti with the General, Design of the Army Response, to suppress reporting of Army and Aircraft Units involvement in the coup and to place all blame on the PKI. Anderson and McVeigh note that this position had the full support of the major religious political parties, and by implication, their youth groups. Anderson and McVeigh, 1971. 56. 8. Paget, 1970, 222. 9. Aid had been picked up in the early morning hours of the coup, along with Sakarno and Air Force Colonel Omar Dani, to establish, in varying ways, the culpability of the PKI in the killings of the generals. In the hours after Saharo declared a counter coup, Adit and Dani traveled by plane to central Java and they were executed in November. 10. Anderson and McVeigh, 1971, 57. 11. Anderson and McVeigh, 1971, 57. 12. Moaktar, 1998, 82. 13. Fred Hahuat interviewed in IBID, 409. 14. Mo Akhtar, 1998, 83. 15. The early student reaction to the crisis evolved from the FRST anti-PKI incidents, which in themselves merely amounted to an extension of the pre-coup rivalry B-194, unfinished business between the HMIA and the principal communist student organization CGMIA, C. Stephen A. Douglas, Political Socialization and Student Activism in Indonesia, Urbana, University of Illinois Press, 1970, 155. 16. Paget, 1970, 204. 17. Under the guidelines of the Commission in Charge of Retooling the Political Parties, four requirements were put into place. THEs were one, an ideological requirement that all political parties must accept and defend the official state ideology, Pancasila. Two, that parties must have an all Indonesia character and have no foreign members or foreign chairman. Three, that parties must have branches in at least six provinces, and in every province they must have branches in at least 25% of regencies. And, four, that every party must have a total of 150,000 card-carrying members, while every branch must have at least 50 members sanctioned by the police. See Ruslan Abdul Ghani, Nationalism, Revolution and Guided Democracy in Indonesia. Four lectures, Clayton, Victoria, Center of Southeast Asian Studies, Monash University, 1973, 49. Christian parties in Indonesia had neither the strength nor numbers to meet these requirements, despite the fact that there had been both many Catholic parties and Protestant parties since the 1945 period. THE's parties would merge as PARKINDO in 1945. Noted Webb, 1978, forming a political party was hard work. 
Protestants did not have the numbers, nor enough people of ability to sit in cabinets. Other parties had already cadres of their own. See Reverend Father R.A.F. Paul Webb, Indonesian Christians and the Political Parties, Southeast Asian Monograph Series, Number 2, North Queensland, Townsville, James Cook University, 1978, 48. 18, Bashtiar, 1967 and Paget, 1970. 19, HMA, 50 years serving the Republic, 1997, 62. 20. THEFRST spark of explosion occurred on October 5, 1965 when the Islamic Students Association, HMA, organized and successfully staged a fairly sizable student rally at which President Sukarno was urged to ban the PKI, C. Douglas, 1970. 154. 21, Douglas, 1970, 155. 22, Subchan Zee, Vice Chairman of the NU, and Harry Tian, Secretary of the Catholic Party. 23, Paget, 1970, 203. 24, Paget, 1970, 197. 25, Gerani and the PKI Youth Regiment Bermudarakyat were responsible for, or at least held responsible for, the killings at Hullam Air Force Base. Anderson and McVeigh report that their participation was predicated on orders from Army of Fichels who told the youth, some as young as 13 and 15, that the arrests were of enemies of the President. The youth were not told the identity of those they killed. See Anderson and McVeigh, 1971. 2122, where they write, it is evident that these youths and girls were brought in the act entirely without their previous knowledge of what was to follow. The motive for drawing in the Jorwani and the Bermudarakyat was to incriminate and compromise the PKI. 26. C. Bakshar, 1967, 191. 27. Douglas, 1970, 154. 28. IBID, 155. 29. Paget, 1970, 180. 30. Douglas, 1970, 161. Student Activism and Strategic Identity, 195. 31. Vincent Boudreau, Resisting Dictatorship, Repression and Protest in Southeast Asia, New York. Cambridge University Press, 2005, 104. 32, Paget, 1970, 197. 33, IBID, 197-198. 34, in October, Kami gave no indication that it supported economic reforms, only that it supported aggressive action against the PKI and counter-revolutionary elements. And yet, writes Paget, there were clues that suggested an emerging partnership. Students also gave important recognition to the army leaders and a commitment to work with them, not only in the task of crushing the September 30th movement but in other spheres as well. See Paget, 1970, 52. 
35. In each branch formation the power structure more or less duplicated the national level. See Paget, 1970, 242. As Paget acknowledges, neither the cohesiveness nor the territorial levels ever really materialized, and Kami nationally remained loosely federative. 36. Paget, 1970, 44. Kami called to ban and dissolve all political parties and mass organizations that were in any way affiliated with the PKI or the left, the permanent cessation of all implicated newspapers and magazines, such as Hari and Rakyat, Warda Bhakti, Bintang Timur, Kabuta Janbaru, Economi Nasional, Jelar Indonesia, etc., and confiscation by the state of all the possessions of these organizations and elements, to purge counter-revolutionary types from all of the top governmental institutions of the state and from the student youth federations, Front Pamudla, PPMI and MMI. 37. Noted guy in his diary, Carl. Widonos told he thinks that the opponents of the PKI should stick to identifying with economic issues. If people get involved in a prolonged struggle, it will be chaos. It is better to have students involved in the protests, he told me. Students are organized and disciplined. We can take instruction. And more to the point, if ABRI sides with suffering people in the street carrying bayonets, it could get out of control. Sigis Diary Entry, the 7th of January 1966, Cat and Demonstran, also quoted in John Maxwell's 2001 biography of So Hawkeye, Pergulatan Intellectual Muda Melawan Tirani, a biography of a young Indonesian intellectual opposed to tyranny, Jakarta, Indonesia, PTU Tomograph IT, 2001, 124. 38. Kami's VRST task was to issue THE demands of the Indonesian people, or Tritura. THE's demands included 1. to dissolve the PKI, 2. to replace the existing cabinet, and 3. to lower the price of goods. Kami also called on students to boycott classes and to protest the higher transportation fares. Douglas, 1970. 39. Jai noted. We stood outside of Education Minister Prijono's house and yelled, Hang indecisive ministers. He smiled when he saw us and waved his hand. Jai, 1983, 136. 40. We know from Geese writings that marches left between 9.00 and 10.00 in the morning and that they left on time, as Guy arrived late one morning and worried he would not be accommodated, he was. 41. The literature and psychology students marched together, Jai, 1983, 136. 42. From Ibid. Entry for the 11th of January 1966. On Tuesday, the long march on Salemba Road began. About 50 people attended. Professor Sutyakto led us. I was about five minutes late getting there, but I managed to still be accommodated. 43, Jai, 1983, 136, 196, Unfinished Business. 44, among locations students marched toward the Parliament, the Oil Ministry, Senayan Sports Stadium, 
and the private houses of prominent politicians and cabinet ministers, J. 1983. 45. Ibid. 46. IBID. Entry for the 15th of January 1966. 47. Ibid. Entry for the 10th of January 1966. See also his version of events and notes of a demonstrator. 152. 48. News and Views Number 80, the 30th of November 1965. 49, Jai, 1983. 50, TH's figure represented a very small number. THE entire population of the University of Indonesia was over 10,000 students. 51, Geese observations suggest how students who were part of these marches saw themselves. While Gaia was aware that he was privileged, he did not see himself as rich. As Guy noted, Near the Jakarta Bypass I met rich students in cars of their own. THA drove by us. I was mad at them. I yelled at them, I must have sounded hysterical. THE marches also, in his opinion, would demonstrate to the Indonesian people student sincerity and desire to help. 52. THS was not a concern articulated by students in the Nationalist Republican era, who wanted to lead the people. 53, Jai, 1983. 54, IBID, 131. 55, Hank Johnston, Talking the Walk, Speech Acts in Resistance in Authoritarian Regimes, Repression and Mobilization, EDS. Christian Davenport, Hank Johnston and Carol Mueller. Social Movements, Protest and Contention Series, Volume 21. Minneapolis, University of Minnesota Press, 2005, 77103. 56, Jai, 1983, 136-137. 57, 35. 60. Ibid. 61. Jai, 1983, 145-146. 62. In fact, some got a ride from a minister's car. What did the army do? Nothing. It stayed under control. IBID 132-133. 65. IBID 136. 66. Mo Akhtar, 1998. 160. 67. KASI members were instructors from ITB, UNPAD. IKIP, the Teachers Training College and the Catholic University Parahyanglin, IBID, 160. 68, Bashtiar, 1967. 50. 69, IBID, 51, says that this event became known as the Kami KAPPI Rendezvous. 70, 
THE demands were 1. Banning the PKI, 2. Lowering prices, and 3. Changing Sukarno's cabinet. C. Douglas, 1970 and Bachtiar, 1967. THE inclusion of groups like KASI in late February brought into the Kami protests an older group of activists who, unlike KAPPI, the high school student contingent of Kami, preferred a less direct and spontaneous role for action. Student Activism and Strategic Identity 197 71 TH Hugs and gangsters were used to infiltrate the Sukarno regiments and they were not interested in peaceful protest sky, 1983, 162. 72. THS was a complaint made by both army leaders and Sukarno, both groups who clearly had different interests in the student movement's presence on Jakarta streets. 73 which Douglas, 1970, has argued found little outlet in the pre-1965 campuses, so lacking were they in extracurricular activities. Chapter 12 Putting up a united front MAN in the rebellious 60s Erwin S. Fernandez while in Rome, Claro M. Recto, the vanguard of the Filipino nationalist movement, died on the 2nd of October 1960. His untimely passing signaled the end of the 1950s during which he figured prominently for challenging the pro-Americanism of Presidents Elpidio Quirino and Ramon Magsaysay by advocating an independent foreign policy, a self-reliant economy geared toward industrialization, and a sovereign nation free from iniquitous provisions of Philippine-U.S. military bases treaty. Four days after his death, Philippine ambassador to London Leon Maria Guerrero spoke before the Manila Rotary Club to pay his last respect to his mentor and friend. In a splendid delivery with his baritone voice, he correctly pointed out Recto's pivotal role in the development of what seemed to him the drama called Filipino nationalism. Wanting to anticipate the next act, now that Recto was dead, he asked, what turn of the plot is to be expected? What new protagonist is to appear upon the stage? One if Recto's death marked the closing of a scene in Philippine nationalism, it was also the beginning of another by new protagonists claiming to fee LL the vacuum and all proclaiming to be heirs to his legacy. The movement for the advancement of nationalism, MAN, arose out of a desire to resurrect Rectonian nationalism from its momentary slumber and unify all progressive forces in the Philippines at a time of crisis in the 1960s. Indeed, the 1960s represents a turbulent era when the confluence of various forces of dissent, often with students leading the way, surfaced worldwide. The era has been characterized often as the culmination of resistance directed against the conservatism of the preceding decade. Despite the widespread resistance, each society responded uniquely to the circumstances they found themselves in. To understand the 1960s in the Philippines, it is necessary to look into the internal processes as well as the external developments that the main actors reacted to against the backdrop of Philippine society. 2th's chapter examines the history of the Philippine left, 
particularly the dynamics in the organization and dissolution of MAN from 1966 to 1971. THE section deals with the factors leading to the organization of MAN. THE next putting up a united front. 199 section discusses contending claims about its creation and the basic principles the group professed. After the split in the communist movement, MAN had to contend with two opposing forces, each wanting to get the upper hand. The next two sections look at the vicissitudes of MAN amid these confrontations and contradictions, and its failures and successes until its dissolution. The conclusion assesses the significance of MAN in the context of the history of the Philippine left. Magsayase to Marcos a nation in search of an alternative The history of post-war Philippines is a history of a nation in search of an alternative to a corrupt and manipulated society. In the 1950s it was Recto who articulated nationalism as the way out of this neo-colonial condition that Magsaysay misunderstood, thus becoming its defender. Carlos P. Garcia who assumed the presidency after Magsaysay's death and was also elected to the same position, recognized the validity of Recto's ideas. He launched the Filipino First policy to promote national industrialization, earning him enemies from local and foreign quarters. Three, but the CIA-funded election of Diosdado Macapagal reversed the gains of the policy. He lifted exchange controls, ended import controls, and devaluated the Philippine peso. The net FECT was immediate and complete. Decontrol allowed the free entry of U.S.-made goods, crippling the Philippine manufacturing sector. Unrestricted FLL of imports coupled with the remittance of Profites siphon off the foreign exchange reserves, plunging the Philippines into a debt trap. For closely monitoring the decontrol measures as they aggravated the plight of laborers, local business, and peasants, the Partido Comunista ang Pilipinas, PKP, Communist Party of the Philippines, which had directed the Hawk insurgency in central Luzon, stepped up its mass actions. It initiated the formation of Lapiang Manglagawa LM, Labor Party in early 1963, and the Malayang Samohang Magsasaka MASAKA, Free Union of Peasants and Kabatang Makabayan, KM. Nationalist Youth in 1964. THE's front organization spearheaded demonstrations in protest of the Laurel Langley Agreement and the parody awakening with nationalism and anti-Americanism in the country. THE criminal jurisdiction issue in the U.S. military bases stimulated the resurgence of anti-American feelings when American soldiers shot to death two Filipinos in two separate incidents at the bases. Five. Although Macapagal agreed to send an engineering battalion to Vietnam to appease the U.S., the latter supported Ferdinand E. Marcos who won the election. While in opposition, Marcos was against Philippine participation in the 200, unfinished business Vietnam War. Now in power, Marcos endorsed it and got his wish to send a Philippine contingent to Vietnam. Philippine participation in Vietnam added fuel to the strident nationalist, anti-American, and anti-war sentiment of the more militant sectors of the Philippine left. A huge student rally led by the KM and workers was held in front of the U.S. Embassy and at the Manila Hotel where U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson and other heads of states were billeted for the October 1966 summit meeting. Accused of being communist-inspired, 
The student demonstrators were severely beaten by the police, which led to a congressional investigation. THEKM gathered an assembly to condemn police brutality in November, the same month that an idea was conceived to unify all progressive forces in one movement. Six birth of unity as to who initiated MAN, there were three claims. THEPKP, one source said, instigated its creation. Jose Maria Sison claimed that he initiated its formation as the chief liaison of mass organizations like the KM and LM. It seems that the two versions could be reconciled since Sison was a member of the PKP's executive committee. It becomes problematic when Sison tries to repudiate his PKP connection more in the spirit of revisionism than historical accuracy. Renato Constantino mentioned a small informal group that included himself and Senator Lorenzo Tanada, Recto's vice presidential candidate in the 1957 election and head of the Citizens' Party, which discussed the need to revive the Nationalist Crusade. He was said to have been instrumental in the idea behind MAN, which was to be a united front of all nationalists from the various sectors of Philippine society. MAN based on three accounts, was not the initiative of one but a meeting of minds of a select group of people, mainly the leading lights of the nationalist movement at that time. Seven the informal group took more than three months from November 1966 to February 1967 to gather adherents for its cause from the progressive forces not only around Manila but also nationwide. Th rough invitations, frequent meetings, and discussions, the group was able to enlist the membership of 12 sectoral representatives, business, labor, peasant, youth and students, women, educators, professionals, scientists and technologists, writers and artists, mass media, political leaders, and civic leaders. THS, at the outset, MAN was able to rise above ethnic, class, or gender differences. An organizing committee was tasked with hammering out its program for the upcoming founding Congress set on 7-8 February and coming up with men's principles and declarations to be released to the public. Eight at the National Library Auditorium, where the Congress was held, baron-clad youthful-looking ushers and granny-dressed usherettes attended to the needs of the delegates. Recto was alive in the atmosphere, the second-day com memo putting up a united front, 201 rated the approval of the 1935 Philippine Constitution whose convention Recto had presided over. KM delegates, most of whom were youth and students, were there, including MASAKA, whose members came mostly from central Luzon Barrios. One member got everyone's attention when he stood up and insisted on using Tagalog in all speeches and deliberations. Tanada then mesmerized the audience with impeccable Tagalog while others tried hard to speak the language, eliciting some frowns and grins. Ignacio Loxina led the LM contingent, some in starched white shirts. THEFRST Day was devoted to listening to speeches containing references to current national issues. Teodoro Iagoncillo, University of the Philippines, UP, Professor and Chair of the History Department, 
discussed the development of Filipino nationalism, its causes and transformations from the late 19th century to the situation in which MAN had emerged by tackling the retail trade nationalization law. Suspended to take FECT by Makapagal, the law was affirmed by a lower court decision on 16 December 1966 and validated the next day by a Supreme Court decision, jolting American businessmen who were opposing the law because it violated parity. Hilarion M. Henares Jr., former chair of the National Economic Council, after clearly pointing out that economic peonage was the Philippine manifest destiny under American design, demolished the myth that foreign capital was needed to jumpstart Philippine industrialization, alluding to the Philippine Investment Incentives Act being debated in Congress, Henares argued that although foreign vested interests now acknowledged the Philippine need to industrialize, they wanted to control the type of industrialization. As a colonial strategy this meant tying the light industries they invested in as captive markets with their heavy industrial plants abroad. Dr. Horatio Lava, School of Commerce Dean of Manuel L. Quezon University, seconded this thesis on his lecture on the economics of underdevelopment, underscoring that genuine industrialization was the key to national development and that the presence of foreign capital, instead of accelerating development, actually did the reverse. Loxina talked about the nexus between Filipino nationalism and labor in the struggle for national development. Dr. Sundaro H. Laurel, son of the late nationalist Senator Jose P. Laurel and university president of the Lyceum of the Philippines, emphasized the need to infuse nationalism in Philippine education. Taking pot shots at Marcos' Vietnam policy, Congressman Ramon V. Mitra Jr., the last speaker, echoed what had been said before by Recto that Philippine foreign policy should anchor on what could best serve the national interest.10 on the second day, after the keynote address by Constantino, who spoke on the type of leadership Filipinos deserve at a time of crisis, Tanada was chosen executive board chairman. Tanada presided over the deliberations recalling FRST his participation in the nationalist movement since 1957, reasserting how nationalism was imperative to Philippine survival and finally defining the tasks of MAN, which was to carry out an education campaign. Deliberation on the Rotify Cation of the Constitution continued past lunch. In the afternoon sessions, 202, unfinished business Sison, elected general secretary, rendered a general report on MAN and oversaw the passing of a general declaration describing MAN as a national crusade for national liberation and economic emancipation, and four resolutions calling for the abrogation of the military bases treaty and all unequal agreements with the U.S., nationalist industrialization, the opening of relations with the People's Republic of China, and the Filipinization of education and mass media. At one point in the sessions, some MAN National Council members intimated participation in national and local politics, though in a limited scale by fielding candidates in 1969. Getting elected could be facilitated because its constitution recognized municipal chapters as the basic unit followed by district and provincial chapters envisioned to be organized in the whole country within two years before its second national, Congress.11 with more than 300 charter members from 12 sectors of Philippine society scattered throughout the country, 
Man's task of undertaking an anti-imperialist parliamentary struggle seemed possible. Yet, internal discord within the PKP dimmed whatever promise MAN may have had before and after the founding Congress. Unity doomed. Confronting issues amid dissensions The arrest of Jesus Lava, PKP General Secretary, in 1964 marked PKP's transition from armed to legal struggle. The creation of mass organizations like the LM, KM, MASAKA, and the Bertrand Russell Peace Foundation, BRPF, founded in 1965 reflected this tactical shift. THEKM, instigated by Sison as head of PKP's youth section, although he would deny that it was a party assignment later on, began a nationalist resurgence campaign among students and leading universities in the city that heightened youth militancy all over the country. Under Sison, KM, however, would pose a serious challenge to lava leadership resulting in factionalism inside MAN and the Filipino left as a whole. One two recruited in 1962, Sison developed his own faction inside PKP consisting of loyal adherents from the KM at a time when the Sino-Soviet split escalated and deepened the division between pro-Soviet and pro-Chinese parties in the Comintern. Having been to Indonesia on a study grant, Sison associated with the pro-Peking Partai Communis Indonesia, PKI, three years before the bloody military coup d'etat. Aspiring for greater leadership in the PKP, he tried to project in a number of speeches and articles his commitment to Maoism. THEPKP underwent reorganization in 1965 when the ties with the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, CPSU, was re-established. THS made Sison's posturing for Maoism an obvious deviation from the party, line.13 taking stock of the situation in which new recruits had arrived on the scene and veteran leaders were released from prison, the PKP leadership decided to hold a plenum to elect a central committee two months after Man's inaugural putting up a united front, 203 convention. THEPKP had now known Sison's critical yet valid review of the leadership, which the old guard, the pro-lava, could not ignore. To them, however, it reeked of revisionism and manifested an attempt to delegitimize their authority. A rectify Catayan campaign began, and the party gradually isolated Sison. Knowing that his clique was outnumbered, Sison refused to attend the plenum and began attacking the PKP publicly. Suspended by the PKP, Man's general secretary was expelled from the party in April 1967, complicating the fragile alignments inside MAN.14. The expulsion did not prevent PKP ally trade unionists from associating with Sison, perhaps either out of sympathy to his ideas or simply ignorance of the decision. On the 1st of May, the Socialist Party of the Philippines, SPP, was founded, absorbing Loxena's as LM, one of the founding organizations of MAN. Loxena was elected chairman, while Sison became its VRST deputy chairman and Addy. Felix Berto Olilias Sr., MASAKA's VRST president, its general secretary. Loxena and Olalia held national positions in MAN as member at large and labor representative of the National Council, respectively. One, five, one could imagine the difficulties arising from mutual suspicions between pro lava and pro Sison camps in the annual meeting of the National Council.
It would intensify when the PKP removed their people from the KM to form a rival youth organization in November called the Malayang Padkakaizang Kabatong Pilipino, MPKP, Free Union of Filipino Youth, presumably maneuvered by Francisco Lava Jr., nephew of Jesus Lava, and a member of Men's National Council, MPKP was born at a congress held in Cabiao, Nueva Ecija. Its 600 delegates were led by a MAN charter member Ernesto Armacaria, the core of which came from the former KM Central Luzon Regional Center. 1-6 Unity among youth and students in MAN was placed in jeopardy. The founding of the MPKP was followed by the creation of other youth organizations. THEBRPF, Philippine Chapter, suffered a temporary split when its chairman, Francisco Nemenzo Jr., a MAN National Council member, had a misunderstanding with Professor Hernando Abaya, a MAN Education Sector member, who formed another faction. It was resolved when Nemenzo received recognition from London for his BRPF group. More serious though was another split in the KM in January 1968. Decrying Sison's authoritarian bent, 26 members of KM's National Council led by Vivencio Jose, Perfecto Terra Jr., and Nanash Grasqua, all writers and artists in MAN, left to form the Samahan and Democratic Concabaton, SDK, Union of Democratic Youth.17 under Tanada and with cooperation of conscientious members, MAN continued to confront issues amid the factionalism and sectarian intrigues. THE Laurel Langley Agreement, which would end in 1974, was up for revision and a negotiation between the Philippine and American panels took place in November. 1967, Adi Alejandro Lechauco, MAN National Council member, alerted Tanada that a draft agreement was reached between the two panels seeking the extension of parity. At the Senate, Tanada sounded the alarm and found Para 204, Unfinished Business Graph 26 of the Philippine-U.S. Joint Preparatory Committee report as nothing else but parody termed as national treatment. He hinted at the special privileges to American FRMS that would continue under the draft agreement. MAN found an ally in the Civil Liberties Union, CLU, when its head, retired Justice Jesus Pereira, raised another serious charge, that the Philippine panel, in extending parity, agreed to take out the reciprocity provision and thus give more rights to Americans than Filipinos in a future agreement. Irritated by these insinuations, Marcos brushed off the allegations, squarely issuing a denial that parity will not be extended beyond 1974. 18 THE rift widened within the left when a split occurred in the peasant organization, MASAKA, threatening again the unity inside MAN. Sison wielded influence on one group while the much bigger faction was believed to be lava partisans. Although affiliated organizations like MASAKA had semi-autonomous existences, the split had the potential to seriously impair the coalition since it was one of the founding organizations and sent one of the largest delegations from the peasant sector.19 while having to contend with this internal problem MAN continued to engage with national issues. One of these was the study made by a committee on the Americanization of the University of the Philippines, UP. 
prompted by a desire to know the primary reason behind UP's continuing alienation from Philippine realities. The study cited Americanization, with a steady influx of aid coming from U.S. agencies one of the major factors. It was submitted to the then-UP President Carlos P. Romulo, who ordered his officials to prepare a reply. As a rejoinder to the Romulo Memorandum, the committee again reconvened to substantiate its allegation, which was said to be a bogey, a fejment of imagination, and a patent absurdity. It took them four months to finish and soon a new UP president was appointed. Two zero Since July 1968, the National Council, composed of several committees, met in preparation for the Second National Convention. Constantino, chair of the Policy and Planning Committee, coordinated with the various committees including the Program Committee to come up with a vision consistent with men's overall objectives and the Filipino people's true aspirations for a just and better society. Aside from responding to the points raised in the Romulo Memorandum, MAN had to deal with the conflicting positions by various sectors of society on issues such as the role of foreign aid and capital and the two factions in the communist movement trying to outmaneuver each other, not only in the formulation of the program but also in the entire movement. Obviously, the Maoist faction lost its bid for influence. All the preparatory committees were chaired by moderate nationalists and crypto-communists. Sison's role was reduced to contributing to the draft on foreign policy. By late December, Sison completely broke away from the PKP to establish the Communist Party of the Philippines, CPP.21 in early 1969, while MAN was in full swing preparing for its second Congress, Tanata, Constantino, and Lechaoco met Salvador P. Lopez, the new up putting up a united front, 205 president, and handed him man's rejoinder in support of its contention on UP's Americanization during Romulo's time. The rejoinder not only zeroed in on UP's Americanization because of uncritical acceptance of American aid through grants and scholarships, but also pointed to the more menacing consequences of using American social science models that were irrelevant to Philippine reality, the harassment toward activist faculty members and the discrimination against Filipino faculty and students in contrast with favoritism accorded to foreigners. UP's Americanization happened via indirect American control when Filipino administrators become instruments of American educational policies. Having mentioned particular names of faculty and departments like the School of Economics involved in UP's Americanization, it revealed that Americanization not only permeated the university's financial operations but even more so its policies. MAN was concerned with the crucial role UP would play in the nationalist struggle. THA believed that UP as the leading university, is in a position to influence and shape the minds of young men and women who will later be the articulate spokesmen of their people, or of their enemies. Lopez promised to hold the university-wide discussion on the issue besides suspending contracts with the U.S.-based Asia Foundation.22 co-optation and dissolution prior to the planning for its second convention, several MAN representatives were invited to Malikinung to hold a dialogue with Marcos. As early as April 1967, Marcos had met several MASAKA members. 
M.A.N. was reeling from the intrigue sown by the two factions in the party when they agreed to save the movement because of the possibility of a nationalist agenda under Marcos. T.H.E.P.K.P.'s old guard and moderate elements in the movement were still hoping that a change could be effected in the system, a position contrary to the belief of radical elements represented by Sison's K.M. and Olalia's M.A.S.A.K.A. Marcos had every reason to deal with MAN since the movement was the largest coalition of nationalists and to pitch his nationalist posture in anticipation of the next elections. In addition, MAN did not pose a direct military threat to the regime and its objectives feet well with his nationalism.23 from December 1968 to February 1969 MAN exerted efforts to present a 40-page program entitled Man's Goal. The Democratic Filipino Society, a product of many revisions, reflecting the different minds that tried to come up with a consensus, the program again underwent the familiar process of deliberation after a pre-convention meeting. At the SSS Social Hall in Quezon City, the two-day gathering on 15-16 of March was attended by 800 delegates from all over the country. M.A.N. Tanada said in his keynote address, had, in its roles, the gamut of Philippine society and within two years, has carried out its mission quite forcefully and not without some success because it has helped, if not to swing 206, unfinished business official opinion fully to nationalist postures, at least to put public officials on guard against the cynical betrayals of the past. 24 outlining the challenges that MAN should take up in the next two years. He mentioned three, the revision of the Laurel Langley Agreement, which he believes should not be extended, economic development through industrialization and the use of Filipino capital instead of relying on foreign capital, and the Constitutional Convention, proposing that a parliamentary or a semi-parliamentary government should replace the current model. The rest of the agenda was devoted to the discussion and ratify Katayana the program in the election of a new national council, starting with a historical setting of Philippine society from pre-Spanish to the American period. The program singled out U.S. new imperialism as the culprit of Philippine underdevelopment in science culture and education, language, and foreign policy since independence in 1946, revealing that colonial industrialization was the new imperialist tactic in the guise of foreign investments, only nationalist industrialization coupled with a genuine agrarian reform and cultural reorientation would give way to a new Philippine society toward a democratic Filipino state, a state governed by Filipinos without foreign dictation and control, which belongs to the people, containing specificy recommendations on how to democratize a semi-feudal capitalist economic system and its attendant socio-political structure, it called for among other things the expropriation of all big landed estates and their redistribution to their cultivators, and suggested constitutional and legal reforms. It passed the scrutiny of the majority, although the labor, science, and technology students and professionals all engaged in spirited discussions. In the elections, Tanata remained the national chairman along with others like Lichayauco, Loxina, and Dr. Lava as members at large. On the other hand, Bartolome Pajan replaced Olalia as peasantry representative and Makari took the place of Nilo Tiag of the KM as youth representative.
Regional representatives were increased to 12 while the post of the general secretary held previously by Sison was abolished. Abayaya who was elected member at large reported on the event, man's basic aim is to change Philippine society, not by violent means, but by the politicization of the masses, educating them properly and developing a national language. 25 if MAN believed that it could contribute toward that end through legal means, the turn of events during and after the national elections proved it to be hopeless. It encouraged participation in the elections not by fielding candidates but by disseminating nationalist ideas and causes with a sanction that it will not be identified with any political party. Since it did not offer any real alternative to the choices in the November elections, MAN, as a Marxist critique of its program put it, simply yields its right under a nominal democracy to participate in the determination of its fate, surrendering that right to the repressive system. 26 Marcos got re-elected by robbing the national treasury and, thus, placing the national economy in shambles. Putting up a united front, 207 MAN continued to hope for the success of its strategy while a new alignment was formed among students between the SDK and the Kilometers. Having established the New People's Army, NPA, to pursue an armed struggle, Sison held an ideological hegemony over the youth and students fed up with the system. Radicalized into action in what is now known as the First Quarter Storm, in January 1970 students demonstrated in front of Congress where Marcos delivered his inaugural address. THs sparked a series of protests and rallies that culminated a year later in the Dilimon Commune when students barricaded UP.27 THEPKP, which had won control over MAN alienated many among its ranks as it dissuaded its youth and student section from fully participating in the activities in what it believed to be an imperialist plot. MAN, on the other hand, supported its candidates to the Constitutional Convention, CONCON, getting Lechauco, Enrique Voltaire Garcia II, and Antonio S. Araneta Jr. elected. At the CONCON, Convened in June 1971, Likaoko, who represented the FRST district of Rizal, presented a resolution advocating the promotion of real industrialization. MAN knew at the start that it would not succeed and it did not. Political Review, a MAN organ released in March, editorialized. The ridiculousness of a selfish lie partisan foreign-oriented and oligarchy-dominated convention drafting a constitution for the people is at once too obvious to engender reasonable expectations of success. 2080 prospect for a change through the CONCOM was very dim. Martial law, which everyone feared, was eventually declared. Under this stifling environment, man's objectives did not prosper. Conclusion writing about man's failure, Constantino blamed it on the doctrinaire and sectarian tendencies among some people on the left who, according to his observation, were predisposed to treat bourgeois groups as inconsequential except to give a semblance of a united front to the movement. But more crucial than this was the power struggle between the two factions, the Lava and Sison cliques, that, in fact, as he himself acknowledged, dissipated the anti-imperialist resistance. No doubt, 
The split squandered the opportunity to advance into a nationwide mass movement as the creation of provincial chapters was abandoned after the Second Congress. Unity from its inception was fragile because the seed for disunity grew and personal interest of individuals triumphed over the collective endeavor. It was a fatal consequence of the inability of the traditional left to constructively engage with a new generation of leftist activists branded as Maoist and build a compromise for the sake of the national democratic struggle. On the other hand, the new left was fueled more by arrogance and opportunism than the exigencies of building Alliance.29 in the context of Southeast Asia and Asia in general. MAN was not unique among the social movements that responded to the challenges of Nation Bill 208, unfinished business in decolonization, and neocolonialism. For instance, in neighboring Malaya, Singapore, and Borneo, there was a resurgence of left-wing organizations in the 60s as shown in their participation in parliamentary elections while in South Korea an upsurge of social movements was evident. MAN was the most ambitious and most organized nationalist movement in the country since the Democratic Alliance in the 1940s and Recto's Nationalist Crusade in the 1950s. Although weakened by internal feuds, it managed to create a network of like-minded people from various sectors and from different parts of the country. It was able to put pressure on the policy decisions of the Marcos administration in a number of ways. Because of the nationalist resurgence that it personified, Marcos and the Philippine Congress could not ignore its recommendation on the opening of trade relations with any nation including China, and on economic development. The latter was realized when Congress approved Joint Resolution No. 2 or the Magna Carta of Social Justice and Economic Freedom, signed by Marcos in August 1969. A repudiation of IMFWB prescriptions, it contained man's basic doctrines on the nationalization of the economy through the imposition of import and export controls, restrictions on multinational corporate activities, the end of parity, and non-alignment in foreign policy. It proved to be short-lived and illusory. In January 1970 Marcos devaluated the peso, bowing to multilateral lending agencies. MAN also initiated the decolonization of the UP and inspired the indigenization movements in the Academe.30 Whatever pretensions MAN had of being a progressive organization, wedged between the left of center and the extreme left was quickly shattered by its helplessness to grasp and adapt to stark realities of the Times.31 MAN was contented with its conservatism and accommodation to the status quo, not knowing that as strategies they were in themselves an endorsement of the regime. So as the tide of history ebbed and FLO'd, MAN remained true to its bourgeois reformist character. Th years after man's dissolution the PKP arrived with an agreement with Marcos. Ultimately, MAN suffered from the schism within the PKP making unity impossible. In any case, MAN lost the opportunity in 1968 to solidify its ranks against the common enemy because the bankruptcy of the old failed to take hold of the new situation and also because the young, though able to comprehend the realities of the present, were in a hurry to rush into the future. Notes 1. Leon Ma. Guerrero, Recto in Filipino Nationalism, Manila Times, 7 October. 1960. 2. Eric Hobsbawm, 
The Age of Extremes, A History of the World, 1914-1991, New York, Vintage Books, 1994, 296. 3. Renato Constantino, The Making of a Filipino, A Story of Colonial Politics, Quezon City, Malaya Books, 1969, 140-141. 153, 155, 156. Putting up a united front, 209. 4. Alejandro Lechauco, The Lechauco Paper, Imperialism in the Philippines, New York, Monthly Review Press, 1973, 3537. William J. Pomeroy, The Philippines, Colonialism, Collaboration and Resistance. New York, International Publishers, 1992, 224-225, 238. 5. Pomeroy, 1992, 284-286. Ray M. Hyzon, T.H.E. Left in the 60s, Graphic, the 25th of February 1970, 12. T.H.E. Laurel Langley Agreement extended to 20 years the Free Trade between the Philippines and the U.S. due to expire in 1954. THE parody gave equal rights to Americans vis a gravis Filipinos in exploiting Philippine natural resources. 6. Louis E. Gleek Jr., THE THRD Philippine Republic 1946-1972, Quezon City, New Day, 1993, 331-334, Pomeroy, 1992, 258-260, on the 25th of February 1970, 12. 7. Kathleen Weekly, The Communist Party of the Philippines 1968-1993, A Story of Its The in Practice, Quezon City, Up Press, 2001, 30. Jose Ma. Sison with Reiner Werning, The Philippine Revolution, The Leader's View, New York and London. Crane Rusak, 1989, 32. Rosalinda Pineda of Reno, Renato Constantino. A Life Revisited, Quezon City, Foundation for Nationalist Studies, 2001, 170. 8. Jose Ma. Sison, General Report, In Movement for the Advancement of Nationalism, Basic Documents and Speeches of the Founding Congress, Quezon City. M.A.N. 1967, V.A. 167. 9. Manane Mercado, Movement for the Advancement of Nationalism, Graphic, the 22nd of February 1967, 24. 10. I.B.I.D. Agoncillo, T.H.E. Development of Filipino Nationalism, 9899. Hilarion M. Henner Jr., The Philippine Manifest Destiny Under American Design, 110-111, Horatio Lava, The Economics of Underdevelopment, 123-125, Ignacio Loxina, Nationalism and Labor, 132-137, Sotero H. Laurel, Nationalism and Education, 138-142, Ramon V. Mitra Jr., 
nationalism and foreign policy, 143-148, all in movement for the advancement of nationalism. 11. Mercado, 1967, 24, 26, Sison, 1967, 19, Renato Constantino, a leadership for Filipinos, 4354, General Declaration, 2025, Constitution, 27, 3233, Resolutions, 3542, all in movement for the advancement of nationalism. 12. Alfredo B. Solo, A Second Look at Philippine Communism, 1964, A Turning Point, Weekly Nation, the 9th of August 1971, 16, 28p, 39. 13. Pomeroy, 1992, 287-288. On the Sino-Soviet Rift, see Lawrence M. Luthi, T.H.E. Sino-Soviet Split. Cold War in the Communist World, Princeton, N.J., Princeton University Press, 2008, 273-301. 14, Weekly, 2001, 2425, Pomeroy, 1992, 289. 15, Solo, A Second Look at Philippine Communism, 1967-1968, Years of Hope and Crises, Weekly Nation, the 23rd of August 1971, 38-39. Weekly, 2001, 3031. 17, Solo, the 23rd of August 1971, 3940. 18, Jean Marshall, Disparity on Parody, Graphic, the 12th of June 1968, 3033. Gleek Jr., 1993-351. Solo, the 23rd of August 1971, 3940. 20. Nanash Whatever Happened to the Up-Americanization Charge? Graphic, the 26th of March 1969, 1415. 21. Nanash Making Democracy Meaningful and Palpable. Graphic, the 7th of May 1969, 16. 54, Solo, A Second Look at Philippine Communism, Maoist CPP, Power from Guns Barrel, Weekly Nation, the 30th of August 1971, 12b. 210, Unfinished Business. 22, Rosca, the 7th of May 1969, 1416, 1860. 23, Pinita Avrinio, 2001, 172. Gleek Jr., 1993, 344-46-52. Rosca, the 7th of May 1969, 54, 56. 25. Rosca, the 7th of May 1969, 56. Movement for the Advancement of Nationalism, 1969, 160.
Hernando Abaya, change is coming but justice grinds slow, graphic, 9 April 1969, 14.26, Movement for the Advancement of Nationalism, 1969, 27, Pomeroy, 1992, 261, Crescento Evangelista Jr., Sued. A Critique of MAN's Goal Toward the People's Republic, Solidarity Volume 5, Number 8, 1970, 69, 27, Weekly, 2001, 32-34, 28, Editorial, Farce or Fraud, Political Review Volume 1, Number 5, July 1971, 2, THE Constitutional Convention, Anatomy of Failure in IBID, 6, 29, Pinita Avrinio, 2001, 175-176, about the 60s in Asia, please see the special issue of Interasia Cultural Studies Volume 7, Number 4, December 2006, where articles about social movements in the 60s in the cited countries are found. 30, Pomeroy, 1992, 260-261. M. A. Isma. Guerrero, The Establishment and the Left, Graphic, the 25th of February 1970, 44. Selected Bibliography Ali, Tariq and Susan Watkins. 1968. Marching in The Streets. New York, The Free Press, 1998. Alves, Maria Helena Moreira. State and Opposition and Military Brazil. Austin, University of Texas Press, 1985. Anderson, Benedict and Ruth T. McVeigh, A Preliminary Analysis of the October 1, 1965 Coup in Indonesia. Modern Indonesia Project. Ithaca, NY, Cornell University Press, 1971. Barber, David, A Hard Rain Fell, SDS and Why It Failed. Jackson, MS. University of Mississippi Press, 2008. Barnuyan, Barbara and Yu Changjin. Chinese Foreign Policy During the Cultural Revolution. New York, Keegan Paul International, 1998. Berger, Mark T. The End of the THRD World. THRD World Quarterly. Volume 15, Number 2, June, 1994. 257-275. Berman, Paul, A Tale of Two Utopias, The Political Journey of the Generation of 1968. New York, W. W. Norton and Company, 1996. Brownstein, Peter and Michael William, eds. Imagination, The American Counterculture in the 1960s and 70s. New York, Routledge, 2002. Bonnet, Alastair, The Idea of the West, Culture, Politics and History. New York, Palgrave Macmillan, 2004. Boon Cheng, Chi, The Left-Wing Movement in Malaya, Singapore and Borneo in the 1960s, An Era of Hope or Devil's Decade? Interasia Cultural Studies 7, No. 4, December 2006, 634-649. Boudreau, Vincent, 
resisting dictatorship, repression and protest in Southeast Asia. Cambridge, UK, Cambridge University Press, 2005. Bresnan, John, Managing Indonesia, New York, Columbia University Press. 1993, Brewster, Keith, Reflections on Mexico 68, Malden, M.A., Wiley Blackwell, 2010. Brown, Timothy S. 1968 East and West, Divided Germany as a Case Study in Transnational History American Historical Review. Volume 114, Number 1, February 2009, 69-96. Brown, Timothy S. and Lorena Aton, E.D.S. Between the Avant-Garde and the Everyday, Subversive Politics in Europe, 1958-2008. New York, Bergon Books, 2011. Borstelman, T.H. Olmus, T.H.E. Cold War and the Color Line. Cambridge, M.A., Harvard University Press, 2003. Campbell, Horace. Rest and Resistance, from Marcus Garvey to Walter Rodney, New Jersey, Africa World Press, 1987, 212, Selected Bibliography Caught, David, T.H. Year of the Barricades, A Journey T.H. Ruff 1968, New York, Harper and Row Publishers, 1988, Cavallo, Dominic, A Fiction of the Past, T.H.E. Sixties in American History, New York, St. Martin's Press, 1999. Carey, Elaine, Plaza of Sacrifices, Gender, Power, and Terror in 1968 Mexico, Albuquerque, University of New Mexico Press, 2005. Chakrabarti, Srimini, China and the Naxalites. New Delhi, Radiance Books, 1990, Chatterjee, Partha. Empire and Nation Revisited, 50 Years After Bandung, Interasia Cultural Studies Volume 6 Number 4, 2005, 477-496. Cherky, Alice, Fanon, A Portrait, Ithaca, N.Y., Cornell University Press, 2006, Cooper, Frederick, Colonialism in Question. T.H. Erie, Knowledge, History, Berkeley, University of California Press, 2005, Craig Harris, Lillian and Robert L. Warden, E.D.S., China and the T.H. Heard World, Champion or Challenger, Dover, M.A., Auburn House Publishing Company, 1986, Ducks, A.J. and W.F. T.H.E. Catholic Church in Zimbabwe, Guilo, Mambo Press, 1979, Daniels, Robert V. Year of the Heroic Guerrilla, World Revolution and Counter-Revolution in 1968, Cambridge, Harvard University Press, 1989, Daly, J.A. and A.G. Seville, T.H.E. History of Joint Church Aid, Three Volumes, Copenhagen, 1971, Dawes, Vena, Life and Words, Violence and the Descent in the Ordinary, Berkeley, University of California Press, 2007. Digby, Ann and Howard Phillips, At the Heart of Healing, Grutcher Hospital, 1938-2008.
Auckland Park, Jakarta, 2008. Derlik, Arif, Paul Healy, and Nick Knight, EDS. Critical Perspectives on Mao Zedong's THR. Atlantic Highlands, NJ. Humanities Press, 1997. Diara, Berzinjit, ed. Decolonization. Perspective from Now and TH on. New York, Routledge, 2004. Dunn, Christopher, Brutality Garden, Tropicalia and the Emergence of a Brazilian Counterculture. Chapel Hill, NC, University of North Carolina Press, 2001. Dussel, Enrique, Beyond Philosophy, Ethics, History, Marxism and Liberation Philosophy. Lenham, M.D., Roman and Little F.I.L. Publishers, 2003. Dubinsky, Karen et al., eds. New World Coming, The 60s and the Shaping of Global Consciousness, Toronto, Between the Lines, 2009. Akwai Akwai, Bio for War, Nigeria and the Aftermath, Lewiston, N.Y., E. Mellon Press, 1990. Elbaum, Max. Revolution in the Air, 60s Radicals Turn to Lenin, Mao and Che. New York, Versal, 2002. Selected Bibliography, 213 Orban, Robert, Conservative Revolutionaries, Anti-Apartheid Activism at the University of Cape Town, 1963-1973. History Honors Thesis, Oxford University, 2005. Ernie. Pierre, Sur les Sentiers de l'Universite, Autobiographies d'Etudiens Zyroy, Paris, La Pensée Universelle, 1977. Erskine, Noel, From Garvey to Marley, Rastafari Theology, Gainesville, FL, University Press of Florida, 2005. Escobar, Arturo, Encountering Development. The Making and Unmaking of the TH Heard World, Princeton. Princeton University Press, 1995. Fink, Carol, Philip Gassert, and Detlef Junker, eds. 1968. The World Transformed. Cambridge. Cambridge University Press, 1998. Feenberg. Andrew and Jim Friedman EDS. When Poetry Ruled the Streets. The French May Events of 1968. Albany, NY. State University of New York Press. 2001. Forsyth, Frederick. The Biafran Story. The Making of an African Legend. London. Barnsley House. 2001. Fredrickson, George. Racism. A Short History. Princeton, Princeton University Press, 2002. Gassert, Philip and Martin Klimke, 1968. Memories and Legacies of a Global Revolt. Bulletin of the German Historical Institute No. 6, 2009. Geertz, Clifford. What was the THR World Revolution? Descent Volume 52, No. 1, Winter, 2005. 3545. Gerhardt, Gale, Black Power in South Africa, The Evolution of an Ideology, Berkeley, University of California Press, 1978. Gibbs, 
David Nthe Political Economy of DH Third World Intervention, Mines, Money and U.S. Policy in the Congo Crisis. Chicago, DHE University of Chicago Press, 1991. Gitlin, Todd, THE 60s, Years of Hope, Days of Rage. New York, Bantam Books, 1993, Gleek. Louis E. Jr. THEDHR Philippine Republic 1946-1972 Quezon City, New Day, 1993 Grandin, Greg, THE Last Colonial Massacre, Latin America in the Cold War Chicago, University of Chicago Press, 2004 Gray, Abika Radicalism and Social Change in Jamaica, 1960-1972. Knoxville, University of Tennessee Press, 1991. Gurgil, Antonio de Padua. dos Estudantes, Brasilia, 1968. Brasilia, Editor Reven, 2004. Hall, Stewart, T.H.E. West and the Rest, Discourse and Power. Formations of Modernity. Ed. Stuart Hall and Brom Gibbon. Cambridge. Cambridge University Press, 1992, 118 130. Arne Sievers, J. A Social History of the Nigerian Civil War. Perspectives from Below. Hamburg, Lett, 1997. 214. Selected Bibliography Horn. Jerd Renner. The Spirit of 68. Rebellion in Western Europe and North America, 1956-1976. Oxford. Oxford University Press, 2007. Horn, Jerd Renner and Padre Kenny, eds. Transnational Moments of Change. Europe 1945, 1968, 1989. Lenham, M.D. Roman and Little F.I. 2004. Hunt, Lynn and Victoria Bonnell, eds. Beyond the Cultural Turn, New Directions in the Study of Society and Culture. Berkeley, CA, University of California Press, 1999. Hi, Ronald and Peter Henshaw. T.H.E. Lion and the Springbok, Britain and South Africa since the Boer War. Cambridge, Cambridge University Press. 2003, Isaac Mann, A. Displaced People, Displaced Energy, and Displaced Memories. The Case of Gahora Bassa, 1970-2004. International Journal of African Historical Studies 38, No. 2, 2005, 201-238. Isaac Mann, A. and C. Sneden. Portuguese Colonial Intervention. Regional Conflict in Post-Colonial Amnesia. Gahora Bassa Dam, Mozambique 1965-2002. Portuguese Studies Review 11, No. 1, 2003, 207-236. Underscore 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 underscore. the Social and Environmental History of the Building of Gahora Bassa Dam. Journal of Southern African Studies 26, No. 4, 2000, 597-632. Is Bister, John, 
Promise not kept. Poverty and the betrayal of T.H. Erd World Development. Bloomfield, C.T. Kumarian Press, 2003. Isserman, Maurice and Michael Kazan. America Divided. T.H.E. Civil War of the 1960s. Oxford. Oxford University Press, 2000. Eviska, Andrew, of Students, Nizers, and a Struggle Over Youth. Tanzania's 1966 National Service Crisis. African Today Vol. 51, No. 3, Spring 2005, 83107. Joseph, Gilbert and Daniela Spencer, eds. In From the Cold, Latin America's New Encounters with the Cold War. Durham, Duke University Press, 2008. Kapoor, Ellen. Capitalism, Culture, Agency, Dependency versus Post-Colonial THERA. THR World Quarterly Volume 23 Number 4, 2000, 647-664. Katsiafi Cass, George, THE Imagination of the New Left, A Global Analysis of 1968. Boston, South End Press, 1987. Katz. David, Solid Foundation, An Oral History of Reggae, Great Britain, Bloomsbury, 2003, Klim K. Martin, The Other Alliance, Student Protest in West Germany and the United States in the Global Sixties, Princeton, N.J., Princeton University Press, 2010, Klim K., Martin and Joachim Charlotte, E.D.S., 1968 in Europe, A History of Protest and Activism, 1956-1977, New York, Palgrave Macmillan, 2008, Kossler, Reinhardt and Henning Melber, The West German Solidarity Movement with the Liberation Struggles in Southern Africa, A. Self-Critical Retrospective, in Germany's Africa Policy Revisited, Interests, Images and Incrementalism. EDS. U. Engel and R. Kappel. Munster, Lett. 2002. 103-126. Selected Bibliography. 215 Kurlinski, Mark. 1968. T.H.E. Year That Rocked the World. London, Vintage. 2005. Lacey, Terry. Violence in Politics in Jamaica, 1960-1970. Great Britain. Manchester University Press, 1977. Lewis, Rupert C. Walter Rodney's Intellectual and Political T.H. Ott. Detroit. Wayne State University Press, 1998. Luthi, Lawrence M.T.H.E. Sino-Soviet Split, Cold War in the Communist World. Princeton, N.J. Princeton University Press, 2008. Ma, Jison, The Cultural Revolution in the Foreign Ministry. Hong Kong, The Chinese University Press, 2004. Mabry, Donald J. The Mexican University and the State. Student Conflicts, 1910. 1971. College Station, TX, Texas A&M University Press. 1982. Mac Farquhar, Roderick and Michael Schoenhills. Mao's Last Revolution. Cambridge, M.A. Harvard University Press, 2006. Malley, Robert, 
T-H-E call from Algeria, T-H-E-R-D worldism, revolution, and the turn to Islam, Berkeley, C-A, T-H-E University of California Press, 1996. Manley, Michael, T-H-E politics of change, a Jamaican testament, Washington, D.C., Howard University Press, 1975. Marwick, Arthur, T-H-E 60s. Cultural Revolution in Britain, France, Italy, and the United States, 1958-1974, Oxford, Oxford University Press, 1998. MacDonald, Peter, T.H.E. Literature Police, Apartheid Censorship and Its Cultural Consequences, Cape Town, Oxford University Press, 2009. Movement for the Advancement of Nationalism, Movement for the Advancement of Nationalism, Basic Documents and Speeches of the Founding Congress, Quezon City, M.A.N., 1967. M.A.N.'s Goal, T.H.E. Democratic Filipino Society, Quezon City, Malaya Books, 1969. Murray, Bruce and Christopher Merritt, Caught Behind, Race and Politics in Springbok Cricket, Johannesburg, Wits University Press, 2004. Nettleford, Rex, ed., Jamaica and Independence, Essays on the Early Years, Kingston, Hahnemann Caribbean, 1989. Newhauser, Charles, THR World Politics, China and the Afro-Asian People's Solidarity Organization, 1957-1967. Cambridge, M.A., Harvard East Asian Monographs, 1968. O'Malley, Eileen, T.H.E. Myth of Revolution, Hero Cults and the Institutionalization of the Mexican State, 1920-1940. Westport, C.T., Greenwood Press, 1986. Pomeroy, William J. T.H.E. Philippines, Colonialism, Collaboration and Resistance. New York, International Publishers, 1992. Pony Tolsqua, Elena, Massacre in Mexico. Columbia, University of Missouri Press. 1992. Prashad, VJ, THE Darker Nations, A People's History of the THR World. New York, W. W. Norton, 2007. Ranger, Terence, Peasant Consciousness and Guerrilla War in Zimbabwe. A Comparative Study. Berkeley, University of California Press, 1985, 216, Selected Bibliography Roberts, Resilla, Beyond the Bamboo Curtain, China, Vietnam and the World Beyond Asia, Stanford, CA, Stanford University Press, 2006, Rodney, Walter, Groundings with My Brothers, London, T.H.E. Bogle L. Uvertor Publications, 1969. Ross, Kristen, May 68 and Its Afterlives. Chicago, Chicago University Press, 2002. Rossi, Mario, THETH Heard World. THE Unaligned Countries and the World Revolution. Westport, CT, Greenwood Press, 1963. Savi, Alfred, Truamuns, Unplant. L Observator the 14th of August 1952, 257-275. Sayers, Sonia, ed. 
T-H-E-60s, without apology. Minneapolis, University of Minnesota Press, 1984. Schilt, Alex and Detlef Siegfried, eds. Between Marx and Coca-Cola, Youth Cultures and Changing European Societies, 1960-1980. New York, Bergon Books, 2005. Schleffer, Jonathan, Palace Politics, How the Ruling Party Brought Crisis to Mexico, Austin, University of Texas Press, 2008. Siegel, Lauren and Paul Holden. Great Lives. Pivotal Moments. Auckland Park, Jakarta, 2008. Skidmore, T-H-O-M-E-Z-T-H-E Politics of Military Rule in Brazil, 1964-1985. New York, Oxford University Press, 1988. South African Democracy Education Trust. T-H-E Road to Democracy in South Africa. Cape Town, Zebra Press, 2004. Stevens, Julie, Anti-Disciplinary Protest, 60s Radicalism and Postmodernism. Cambridge, University of Cambridge Press, 1998. Surrey, Jeremy, T-H-E Rise and Fall of an International Counterculture. 1960-1975, American Historical Review, Volume 114, Number 1, February 2009, 61-68. Power and Protest, Global Revolution and the Rise of Détente, Cambridge, M.A., Harvard University Press, 2003. Swan, Kino, Black Power in Bermuda, T.H.E. Struggle for Decolonization. New York, Palgrave Macmillan, 2009. T.H. Omis, Nick, Protest Movements in West Germany, A Social History of Dissent in Democracy. New York, Bergon, 2003. T.H. Joseph, American Policy and African Famine, T.H.E. Nigeria Biafra War 1966-1970. New York, Greenwood Press, 1990. T.H. Umpsun, Lisa and Chris Tapscott, ed. Citizenship and Social Movements. Perspectives from the D.H. Heard World. New York. Palgrave Macmillan, 2010. Valley, Eduardo, Eleno de la Rebellion por la Democracia. Mexico, D.F. Oceano. 2008. Vancina, January. Living with Africa. Madison, W.I., T.H.E. University of Wisconsin Press, 1995. Varon, Jeremy, Bringing the War Home, T.H.E. Weather Underground, T.H.E. Red Army Faction, and Revolutionary Violence in the 60s and 70s. Berkeley, University of California Press, 2004. Selected Bibliography. 217 Verdery, CTHE Political Lives of Dead Bodies, Reburial and Post-Socialist Change. New York, Columbia University Press, 2000. Vinette, René, Enrages and Situationists in the Occupation Movement in Paris. 1968, Brooklyn, NY, Automedia, 1992. Waters, Annika, Race, Class and Political Symbols, Rastafari and Reggae and Jamaican Politics, New Brunswick, N.J., Transaction Press, 1985.
Weekly, Kathleen, T.H.E. Communist Party of the Philippines 1968-1993, a story of its T.H.E. in practice, Quezon City, Up Press, 2001. Westhad, Adarni, T.H.E. Global Cold War, T.H.E. World Interventions and the Making of Our Times, Cambridge, Cambridge University Press, 2005. Right. THOMC Latin America in the Era of the Cuban Revolution. New York, Praeger, 1991. Young, Cynthia A. Soul Power. Culture, Radicalism and the Making of a USDH Erd World Left. Durham, University of North Carolina Press, 2006. Zolove, Eric, Refried Alvis, THE Rise of the Mexican Counterculture. Berkeley, University of California Press, 1999. Notes on contributors editors Samantha Christensen is an instructor at Northeastern University. Her research interests focus on youth and student mobilizations in South Asia and Europe and international left politics. Her dissertation, September, 2012, examines the role of student mass mobilizations in East Pakistan present-day Bangladesh and the ways in which student identity empowers young people to make claims against the state. It also explores the relationship of place identity and movement culture. She has taught courses in world history, gender, and the history of South Asia at Independent University Bangladesh and Northeastern University. Zachary Scarlett is a Ph.D. candidate at Northeastern University who specializes in modern Chinese history and the history of radical social movements in the 20th century. His dissertation examines the ways in which Chinese students imagined and co-opted global narratives during the Cultural Revolution. He has taught courses at Northeastern University in world history, Chinese history, and East Asian history. Contributors James Bradford is a Ph.D. candidate and instructor at Northeastern University in Boston, M.A. His research interests include the history of informal economies, political dissent, and drugs in world history. His dissertation is entitled, Seeds of Dissent, Opium, Politics, and Development During the Musahiban Dynasty of Afghanistan, 1929-1978. Nicholas M. Creary received his B.A. in History and African Studies from Georgetown University, his M.A. in American History from the Catholic University of America, and his Ph.D. in African History from Michigan State University. He has taught at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and Marquette University in Milwaukee. His VRST book, Domesticating a Religious Import, THE Jesuits and the Enculturation of the Catholic Church in Zimbabwe, 1879-1980, New York, Fordham University Press, 2011, focused on the history of religion in Africa and adaptations of Christianity to African cultures. Notes on Contributors 219 Arthur Ehrlich lives in Eugene, Oregon, USA, in semi-retirement. In 2010, he served as the Liang Qichao Memorial Distinguished Visiting Professor at Tsinghua University, Beijing. He most recently held the Rajni Kothari Chair in Democracy at the Center for the Study of Developing Societies, Delhi. His most recent book-length publication is Culture and Society in Post-Revolutionary China, The Perspective of Global Modernity. 
Erwin S. Fernandez is an independent scholar who has taught at the University of the Philippines. Founding director of the Apung Napanagbasaya Pangasinan, House of Pangasinan Studies, he engages in a wide range of research from Philippine diplomatic, military, and literary history to Arab-Israeli conflict and Pangasinan history. A poet and a short story writer in his native tongue, he advocates for a just and equitable Philippine society that recognizes its multilingual, multicultural, and pluralistic makeup in a polycentric political economy. Avishak Ganguly was educated in India and the United States. He received his B.A. from Calcutta University, his M.A. from Jawaharlal Nehru University, and his Ph.D. from Columbia University. He is currently Assistant Professor of English at Rhode Island School of Design, RISD. His research and teaching interests are in modern and contemporary drama, post-colonial and Anglophone literatures, the cultures of cities, and literary and cultural theory including globalization and translation studies. Christoph Kalter holds a PhD from the Free University of Berlin and is an assistant professor at the Friedrich Meinecke Institute, Department of History of the Free University of Berlin. He published a revised version of his thesis as Die Entdeckung der Dritten Welt, De Kolonisierung und Neue Radikalinke in Frankreich, The Discovery of the Third World, Decolonization and the New Radical Left in France with Campus Verlag, Frankfurt, Germany, 2011. Conrad J. Kuhn holds an M.A. in History and Popular Culture Studies from the University of Zurich and received his Ph.D. from the University of Zurich in 2010. He is currently a research fellow at the Research Center for Social and Economic History, FSW, at the University of Zurich. His research focuses on the history of development policies, social and protest movements and the field of politicized public history. He has published on international solidarity in Switzerland, on fair trade campaigns, and on the commemoration of slave trade in Europe. Pedro Monaville is a Ph.D. candidate in history at the University of Michigan. He is currently working on a history of the student and left activisms in post-colonial Congo. Some of his writings on colonial culture, decolonization, and post-colonial history can be found at http colon slash 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 monaville slash home 220 Notes on Contributors Stephanie Sapuui is Assistant Professor of Political Science at SUNY Nassau Community College in the History, Political Science, and Geography Department. Her chapter is based on a chapter of her dissertation, Free Spaces, Identity and Student Activism, Repression and Student Activism on West Java, 1920-1979, written at the City University of New York CUNY Graduate Center, Ph.D. Program in Political Science, and defended on the 14th of July 2010. Chris Saunders is an Emeritus Professor in the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Cape Town. He has published widely on the history and historiography of Southern Africa. He is at present working on a new edition of R. Davenport and C. Saunders, South Africa A Modern History, 5th ed.
2000. Julia Sloan earned a Ph.D. in Latin American history from the University of Houston. She joined the faculty at Casanova College in 2004 and currently serves as an associate professor of social science and director of the International Studies Program. Her research interests include modern Mexico, the 1960s, and popular culture. Her teaching interests include Mexico, Latin America, world history, comparative social and political institutions, and social theory. Colin Snyder completed his Ph.D. in history at the University of New Mexico in 2011, where he has also spent the last two years as a teaching associate. He has begun revisions to his dissertation for a future book project on middle-class identities and higher education in Brazil, as well as a handful of articles on Brazil's military dictatorship, 1964-1985.